This is Audible. Brilliance Audio presents the unabridged recording of the Real Book of Real Estate: Real Experts, Real Stories, Real Life, by Robert Kiyosaki. Read by Bruce Risen, Jim Bond, and Sandra Burr. Dean Graziosi, Chapter Nineteen: Marketing. Your ticket to finding and profiting from foreclosures. I first saw Dean on television with his Motor Millions television infomercial. I was very impressed with his communication skills. He was clear and to the point, and his sincerity came through the screen. A few years later, I saw his new infomercial, this time on real estate. While I do not know much about cars, I do know a little about real estate. And I could tell that Dean did too. His wisdom on real estate came through the television screen as well. A friend of mine, Joe Polish, called one day and asked if I would like to meet Dean. When the two of them walked into my office, it was like looking at a pair of bookends. I have known Joe for years, and he is what I call a natural entrepreneur. So is Dean. Listening to the two of them talk about their businesses, I realized both young men were born entrepreneurs. I had to learn to be one. For several hours, I listened to both guys educate me on subjects I thought I was pretty good at. Both Joe and Dean are natural teachers. Dean has the gift of being good at business and being good at real estate investing. It is a perfect combination of skills for anyone who wants to live their life doing something they love while they become rich and financially free. That is why I invited him to be a part of this book. Robert Kiyosaki. I've never met a person who couldn't become wealthy investing in real estate. Doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. I didn't come from a family that had money. I had no mentors and never went to college. I was not even smart enough to read a book like this one to gain wisdom from people who were smarter than me when it came to investing in real estate. Learning from other people's trial and error and success and failure is by far the fastest way to success. I know this now and have been fortunate to write a few New York Times best-selling books myself, but it took a while for it all to sink in. So you have more going for you than I did when I first started, and I congratulate you for taking action and being ready to learn. Although I didn't have money, a degree, or a mentor, I was fortunate enough to have a strong desire to get the things I wanted out of life and a mind that was open to possibilities. I didn't like the fact that my single mom worked two jobs to make about ninety dollars a week when I was growing up. I hated that we lived in a trailer park for part of my childhood, and that money was always an issue in our home. The pain caused a major drive inside of me. What is your motivation for getting the life you deserve? Find it, and don't let anything knock you off course. When Robert asked me to write a chapter in his book, I was happy to say yes and share some capabilities, strategies, and wisdom that could shorten your learning curve for acquiring foreclosure property, so your downside risk will be minimal and your upside gain will be huge. In this chapter, I'm going to share with you one of my most guarded secrets on how to make killer foreclosure deals actually come to you automatically, rather than spending a ton of time, effort, and money going out and looking for them. In fact, my students who have bought my "Be a Real Estate Millionaire" book love this technique the most. So, to make sure I do my best to wow you, I'll be sharing my marketing strategy with you right here. 
But first, let me tell you the story of one of my first real estate investments. This deal took place in the late 1990s, and I have been making money from real estate ever since. As I am writing this, I currently have 30-something deals in the works, so I don't just write about how to profit from real estate. I live it every day. Here we go. My first deal. In my late teens, I was flat broke and constantly looking for some opportunity to make money. There was an apartment house in town that had once been a decent place, but the owners had let the wrong tenants in and the place began to deteriorate. This apartment house was for sale, but its horrible appearance meant that no bank was going to give anyone a loan to buy it. I started talking with the sellers, asking them questions, and bringing up the things that needed repair in the building. I told them, I'd like 45 days to clean that place up, but then you have to sell it to me. To keep you from selling it to anybody else, I'm going to give you a tiny down payment. But in 45 days, I will start pursuing a bank loan. Then I want 60 days to close on a bank loan. The seller agreed. Looking back, what I did next is pretty scary, and I would not suggest this to anyone else. Once the seller and I had a deal, I immediately went to work on the place before I even knew whether I could get a bank loan. I thought if the bank happened to look at this place before I made it look pretty, I would never get the loan. So I blindly put my heart, soul, and sweat equity into cleaning up the place. First, I got rid of the junk in the front yard by calling a junk dealer, who took everything away for free so he could sell it for scrap. Then I got together with some friends and hired the cheapest laborers I could find. Together, we fixed all the broken windows, the front door, and the porch. My contract with the owners allowed me to evict some of the worst tenants, so I got rid of the ones who were unwilling to be part of the massive cleanup. We planted flowers across the front, mowed the lawn, trimmed the hedges, and painted the front of the building. Then we went inside and painted the hallway and cleaned up a couple of the apartments where some of the evicted people had lived. They were nice apartments. They just needed to be cleaned. In 45 days, the building looked gorgeous. I then went to the bank and was fortunate enough to get a loan. In fact, I got a loan for 100% of the money I needed because the property appraised for much more money than I was buying it for. I kept that apartment house for many years, and each month I enjoyed great positive cash flow from it. Then I sold it during a peak cycle and made a wonderful profit. Looking back, that property was a foundation for many amazing future properties. What a great learning experience, and what a great sense of accomplishment. To this day, I can remember standing on the front lawn, looking at the building after I purchased it, and feeling the sense of accomplishment that came from knowing I did everything I said I was going to do. I was so aggressive because I knew what I wanted, and I wasn't going to let anything stand in my way. There was no what-if option, only when. I don't know if I've gotten smarter or just more cautious, but I don't invest like that anymore. One reason my first real estate deal worked was because I never thought that it wasn't going to work. My youth and inexperience kept me focused on winning and nothing else. If I had been older and had overanalyzed the situation, I may never have done it. That's an important lesson to remember. I don't know a successful person alive who didn't also fail a lot at the beginning. The fear of failure is always lurking in the background of the mind, waiting to sabotage one's success. If you pretend it's not there, you can't deal with it. Acknowledge it. Then move forward and do your best. If something you try fails, learn from it. Don't let life's failures talk you out of future accomplishments. The past is the past. Use it as research and development and then start fresh, looking forward to what's next. 
In the 20 years that I've been investing in real estate, a great amount of my time and effort also has been spent studying direct marketing. Smart marketing makes a huge difference in your level of success as an investor. There are a host of classic marketing ideas that will help you stand out in the crowd of investors who are competing for the same properties, as well as some nifty little tricks on how to mail letters of interest to homeowners that get opened and read. Just like other investors, I've used many of the strategies and time-tested techniques borrowed from direct marketing. They are great for helping to find potential deals, and they make the process easier. The more I continued to study and use direct marketing, the more I realized that I could come up with new ways to target specific types of investments with smart marketing. I threw out all my conventional investor thinking and took a strict marketing approach. In other words, if I was trying to market a product to a certain group of people, I asked myself, how would I do it? Well, one of the things I would want to do is avoid competing for the same investments. I would not want to advertise in the same place as my competitors would advertise. I also would want to automate as much of it as I could. You may have seen or heard of the technique of using free recorded messages. Movie theaters have used recorded messages for years to deliver the schedule of shows and showtimes. Marketers use these to offer everything from free information to educating prospects and generating leads. Real estate agents use recorded messages to deliver automated information on homes they list, and investors do the same. It's a tremendous time saver, and a smart way to automate the task of providing duplicate information to many individuals. I'm going to teach you a method of using recorded messages targeted to homeowners with direct response marketing that allows me to attract deals that no other investor may be able to find out about and then funnel the deals in such a way so that I'm left with only the deals I am interested in. It has revolutionized the way investors can find and profit from investments. It completely reverses what 99% of other investors are doing. The difference is this. Instead of me making a cold contact with a person, I use some very specific marketing strategies, sit back, and let them automatically contact me. This method will work regardless of the type of property I want to find, but I'm going to explain how I use it to invest in pre-foreclosures. Automated Marketing for Foreclosure and Pre-Foreclosure Investing as you may know, foreclosure is the legal process in which a lender sells or seizes a person's property to recover and repay the debt attached to that property. Foreclosure occurs when someone borrows money to buy real estate but cannot pay the agreed-upon monthly payments. I hope that you will agree with me that none of us wish hard times on anyone else, but when a foreclosure does occur, it creates an investment opportunity. Someone is eventually going to take advantage of it, so my philosophy is to be first in line. The great thing about foreclosures is that you can make money with them in any market cycle, but down and bottom markets are the best to find and make money with foreclosures. This marketing strategy literally makes people in pre-foreclosures and other stages of foreclosure contact you. Again, when homeowners are facing foreclosure, they have the opportunity to stop it by bringing their payments and any other associated fees current. But most often they can't catch up and they lose everything. My strategy is to come in before that happens when the owners can sell their property to a third party, me, during what is called the pre-foreclosure period. Now, this may sound like a horrible position for me to be in as the buyer, approaching a person who is losing his home, and I'm looking to buy it and make a profit. 
but look at it realistically. The person is going to lose that property because he can't make or catch up on his payments. A sale of the property means the owner can pay off the loan and avoid having a foreclosure on his credit history. Then he can go out and find another, more affordable home without the black mark of a foreclosure on his record. Getting to the owner before he goes into foreclosure gives me a jump on other investors who rely on methods that depend on the entry of foreclosures into public records or paid listing services. It also eliminates all the grunt work associated with locating properties using those methods. Here's how it works. Step 1. Finder Strategies I use direct response marketing methods to create finder strategies that find and drive qualified prospects to me. Let's start with what I'll call finder ads for now. I create finder ads for a number of different applications. I use classifieds, business cards, flyers, mailers, yard signs, and even AdWords on Google. These finder ads must all follow the rules of good direct response advertising. 1. They all have a compelling, targeted headline. 2. They make a big promise to create interest. 3. They ignite a desire to find out more. 4. They tell the prospect what action to take. The key to these finder strategies is that they have to promise helpful information to people or they won't work. Anyone facing a potential foreclosure is going to experience a wide range of emotions. He can be angry, afraid, depressed, and even ashamed. A foreclosure can occur for a lot of reasons. A job loss, an illness, an unexpected death in the family, even a change in the interest rates. Any of these events can get in the way of people being able to continue making their mortgage payments. If a homeowner can't keep up with the payments, the lender puts the property in foreclosure. The first step toward foreclosure usually happens when the lending institution notifies the owners in writing that they are in default of payment. In most cases, the lender will bring in an attorney to start the foreclosure process after three consecutive payments are missed. The attorney will send a letter informing the owners that if they do not pay what is owed, the lender will be forced to begin a foreclosure proceeding. The lender can also request a trustee sale or judicial foreclosure where the property is sold at public auction. The homeowners can still avoid foreclosure at this time by making the loan payments current and paying all overdue amounts after the notice of the default has been recorded. This is called the right of reinstatement. The last date possible for the money owed to be brought up to date and paid is called the cure date. It is usually no later than a few days before the property's impending sale. If the homeowner cannot make these overdue payments, the foreclosed properties often get sold at a real estate auction or trustee sale where it is sold to the highest bidder. If the property is worth less than the total amount owed to the lender, which can occur if property values have dipped since the homeowner took out the original loan, the lender can seek a deficiency judgment, and the homeowner would not only lose the home, but also be saddled with the additional debt, which would be the difference between what the home sold for at auction and the balance of the loan. Sometimes people simply give up and walk away from their property, letting the foreclosure occur. Most people are looking for ways to stop the foreclosure and save their house, or at least prevent a foreclosure by trying to sell it. So they want answers and solutions to their problem and they want them fast. The finder ad must be structured to address not only their concerns, but their emotions. Step 2. Position yourself as an advocate. 
Although the Finder ad is designed to attract people long before they show up on any foreclosure lists, some of the people who respond will have had some kind of encounter with another investor. That investor may have left an impression of being interested only in taking the property for profit. The person facing foreclosure, however, is interested only in ending his own pain, not in helping an investor make a profit. So in my finder strategies and recorded messages, I achieve the end result of positioning myself as an advocate, not an opportunistic investor. I do that by providing the person with a number of potential step-by-step -step solutions to stop his foreclosure, and only mention the possibility of maybe being able to buy his home. By doing that, I am 99% more likely to be perceived as an advocate. Truth be told, if I shared with someone a way for him to save his home and I didn't get a chance to buy it, that would be wonderful to me. I truly want to be an advocate for people in trouble, not pretend to be. If the real-life suggestions and tips I provide do not work for them and their situation is irreversible, then I get to be the investor. Quick List Important Elements of the Recorded Message The recorded message explains the real options to stop a foreclosure. It gives them a true understanding of the reality of their situation. It helps gain the owner's trust. It screens out the deals that would not work or deals that I don't want. I end up with the best of the best to choose from and pursue. Step 3. Remove Emotional Barriers All the finder strategies will direct people to a 24-hour free recorded information line. As I mentioned earlier, this is a well-known technique that smart marketers have used for years to automate their marketing. I take it to the next level by using the message to sift, sort, and screen out the bad deals. That way, I spend time on only the incredible deals. The finder ads clearly state that they are calling a recorded information line. This makes calling a very non-threatening action for people to take. They know they don't have to talk to anyone when they call. They don't have to be afraid of being pressured into anything. It's risk-free, so anyone who's even slightly interested is more likely to call, and it saves face. Remember, anyone who is ever faced with losing his home has varying degrees of negative feelings about the situation. Compared to calling and talking to a live person, the recording can help alleviate any sense of shame or fear a person might feel. The message the caller hears is strategically written. To help me create my message, I hired a professional copywriter, even though I have written best-selling books and I feel very confident in my ability to write and communicate. I provided him with the important facts I wanted to communicate, and he wove them into verbiage that is empathetic to the person's situation and gives callers seven options they can take to stop their foreclosure. It reveals to them the specific actions to take, depending upon where they are in the process. Attract Homeowners to You Here is part of a message I use to attract owners who are skeptical of being scammed. My name is Dean, and I want to thank you for calling my foreclosure scam warning line. In just a moment, I'm going to reveal to you some scams to watch out for, and then I'll provide you with tips and facts that most lenders and banks don't want you to know. Tips that can prevent the foreclosure process from ever starting, and even stop it once it has started. By the time you're done listening to this message, you'll know exactly what your options are and you will be able to make an intelligent, informed decision about the correct course of action to take. You may want to have something handy to take notes as I'm going to be going through this material rather quickly. 
However, at the end of this recording, I'll provide you with my contact information if you missed anything or have further questions. Let's get started with the things to watch out for. If you are facing the threat of losing your home to a foreclosure, beware of certain individuals and companies offering to help you out of your difficult financial situation because some of them are scams. These scams specifically target homeowners who are in financial distress. Scam operators advertise just like legitimate businesses. You may find their ads on the Internet and in local publications. They often copy legitimate businesses by plastering flyers on telephone poles and at bus stops. They drop flyers off on people's front doors or contact people whose homes are listed in public foreclosure notices. Sometimes they direct their appeals to specific religious or ethnic groups. The typical scenario is where the scammer offers to buy your property by paying off your overdue amount on the loan. Then the scam artist convinces you to move out and deed the property over to him or a third party. Signing over a deed in no way releases you from your mortgage responsibilities. These scammers even have been known to give you the option of renting the property with the option to buy it back later. Neither of these promises is ever delivered on. They never pay off the overdue amounts, and if you are naive enough to pay them rent, you later wind up faced with eviction from the home still owing the original loan amount. The message continues, and after it gives all the options for preventing a foreclosure to callers, it offers them one more. If none of the solutions I have already suggested work, that I may be able to buy their property and prevent a foreclosure. Then it qualifies them for me. The message asks the questions I need answered before I can consider their property for purchase. Questions like this. What is the amount owed on their mortgage, and how many payments have they missed? What's the location of the home, the home's age, square feet, and the number of bedrooms? What's the condition of the home? Do they have an appraisal of the home? Has a notice for a sheriff's sale been sent? Has the bank sent a list of additional expenses owed to them for the foreclosure process? Putting it all together. So what does this all look like? A sample finder strategy used in a classified ad might look like this. Free foreclosure help. Learn what to do if you are at risk. Free recorded message. Call anytime, 24 hours a day. The phone number. Here is another example. Seven ways to stop your foreclosure. Don't let the bank steal your home and ruin your credit. You do have options. In the next five minutes, you can find out exactly what to do, and it's provided free. Call this 24-hour recorded consumer message now and learn how to stop this nightmare. Call the phone number. Again, the ad drives people to my recorded message. The recorded message educates them, screens them, and provides a means for them to request contact or to contact me. The people that I ultimately do contact are highly qualified. I can get as specific as I want with my message to sift deals down to the tiniest details. The beauty of it is this method will sift, sort, and screen the best possible deals for me every day, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Investors use the classified section all the time to find folks in foreclosure, but when people see my ads, they want to know what the secret is, so they call. I also use the same strategy on business cards, larger ads, even postcards. Don't forget the Internet. 
I also direct people to a website that contains all the same information as the recorded message. However, from the website, I can capture their email address and put them on an autoresponder series that drips out professionally written emails that repeat the helpful information and also remind them that I am there to help if possible. This method saves so many wasted hours that in itself it would be enough for any investors to stay excited about it. But the fact that it drives deals to my door before other investors can even get wind of them makes it unique and highly profitable. When people see one of these finder ads, it will grab their attention. It speaks to their emotions in a very compelling way, and it's non-threatening. I am able to attract far more deals using this system than I could by old-fashioned, labor-intensive methods. It helps me create more win-win situations than anything else I could possibly do. Even people who aren't in foreclosure see my notices and they often tell a friend or acquaintance who is in foreclosure. Real Life Story Marketing Works One of my students is named Jackie and she lived in Indiana. Jackie told everyone she knew that she was starting a real estate investing career and was looking for property. By simply doing this, one of her friends responded and told her about a couple who were losing their home. They were in pre-foreclosure status, and the couple owed only $10,000 on it. This was a great buy because homes in the area were selling for twenty dollars to $30,000 more than what was owed on this home. This was Jackie's first experience in buying a pre-foreclosure home, and it fit her investing budget. She was nervous about approaching the owners, almost as much as the owners were nervous about getting bank letters. She asked the right questions and found out that they would be happy if they could just walk away from the home and not owe anybody anything. Jackie found out the exact amount owed to the bank and then asked the bank whether they could help with some of the penalty costs because she was going to pay off the debt. The bank agreed and took a flat $10,000 for the home. Jackie had just enough in savings to purchase the home, and afterwards, because she owned it free and clear, she had the options of refinancing and pulling out cash to remodel the property or do a quick fix-up and resell it. There are many other ways Jackie could have done this. She could have borrowed the money from a hard-money lender. She could have gotten a new loan to purchase the home as it was appraised for much more than her cost. So you don't have to have cash reserves to make it work. I use this concept to find and choose the best deals and purchase them myself, but it can also be used to find deals to offer other investors and make your money in the middle. My students do this all the time. Here's one of their true stories. Real life story, find the deal, and win. Brett was a 22-year-old college student who wanted to get involved in real estate, but did not have enough money for a down payment. That didn't stop him. He found one property owner who was in foreclosure and owed around $450,000 for the house and was three weeks away from foreclosure. After doing a little work to find comparable houses in the neighborhood, Brett knew that the house was worth between $500,000 and $525,000, so the deal had a good amount of equity. Brett immediately called an investor he knew in the San Diego area and explained the situation, asking for a 2.5% finder's fee from the investor. Brett sent over a spreadsheet showing the asking price as well as the comps for other houses in the area. The investor called Brett and agreed to his terms. Brett put the owner and the investor in contact, and they closed the deal in two weeks. The owner was able to walk away with a few thousand dollars and his credit intact. 
the investor was able to get a great deal on a house and had to pay only 2.5% instead of the traditional 3% or 6% that a realtor charges. Brett profited more than $11,000 without using any of his money and very little of his time. It was a win-win-win situation for everyone. It really isn't rocket science. Sure, deals like this aren't on every corner, but they are out there. And with a little bit of effort and the right marketing actions, finding them isn't as difficult as one might think. When investing in foreclosures, there are a few do's and don'ts to pay attention to. You can be successful. We all have obstacles that we face every day, some minor, some horrific. But with the right strategy, you can turn your life around in a second and change your destiny. You've heard the old adage, knowledge is power, right? Well, I disagree. Knowledge is only as powerful as the extent to which it is applied. I say knowledge plus action equals results. Knowledge with no action is just trivia. Foreclosure do's and don'ts. Do predetermine what you will do with any property you purchase. Will you sell the property right after it's purchased, commonly called flipping, or keep the property and rent it out for positive cash flow? Do set a goal of creating win-win situations for everyone involved in the deal. Do enough research on areas where you are considering properties and learn to identify your local market condition. For example, if you plan to reinstate and rent, you'll look at the deal very differently than if you plan to flip the property wholesale to another investor. Do learn how to structure your deals carefully. Mistakes can be costly. Don't become emotionally attached to a property. There may not be enough equity to make it worth your time. Don't get greedy or arrogant. Both can make you careless, and neither of those traits are conducive to making good decisions. Don't fleece folks by trying to squeeze every last cent of profit possible out of a deal. I promise you this. At the end of the day, it feels better to take a little less money on a deal where I helped a person avoid foreclosure and still let him walk away with some start-over capital than to be the only one walking away fat and happy from a deal. I hope I have provided you with some new knowledge and have provoked you to take action and make a change to create a better life with confidence. Knowledge plus action equals results. That's power. Ways to learn more. Check out the free online community of other investors at http colon double slash www.deangraziosi.com. You'll find it is an amazing resource for everything real estate investing, from free real estate investing forms and calculators to free forums. Want the complete system Dean detailed in this chapter? You can get it. To see the plug-and-play, automated foreclosure finder he created at his student's request, visit www.automatedforeclosurefinder.com. Listen in on Dean's monthly teleconference training calls on current real estate topics for free by visiting www.askdeanG.com. Dean Graziosi is an entrepreneur, successful investor, author, speaker, and teacher. His Think a Little Different Real Estate program and his book, Be a Real Estate Millionaire, have touched the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and have transformed countless lives from debt and worry to prosperity. Dean is a thriving and successful real estate investor with real estate holdings valued in the multi-millions. His books, Totally Fulfilled and 
Be a Real Estate Millionaire, Secret Strategies for Lifetime Wealth Today, are both New York Times bestsellers. W. Scott Shermer, Chapter 20 Entitlements, The Sleeping Giant of Real Estate Profitability Scott is my neighbor. He lives directly across the street from Kim and me. Every year, our neighborhood has a number of parties, and at every party I look forward to seeing Scott and asking him for his views on the world of money, real estate, and investing. Not only is he a neighbor, but he is a good friend, and someone I look to when I need more sophisticated information on the subject of real estate. One aspect of real estate is politics. Being a developer, Scott needs to be tuned in to the local politics of the areas he is developing. Being a developer means he must be looking years into the future, years before he breaks ground. As some of you know, many times a worthy project, a project that will lift the value of the area, will be shot down by local neighborhood organizations that are resistant to change. This is where politics comes in. I do not care where you live. Politics and real estate go hand in hand. Local politics and politicians can improve or destroy the value of the real estate in an area. For example, at our last Christmas party, I was asking Scott about a local Arizona politician and that person's relationship to the police department. It was Scott's point of view that this politician and the police did not see eye to eye. That is why the crime in this one area was increasing and values of the property were going down. I did not invest in the area based on Scott's view of the future of this area of town. Today, many people who did invest in that once-friendly neighborhood are losing financially as crime infects the area. This means, when I talk to Scott, I am often talking politics, but really I am discussing real estate. If you are to become a professional real estate investor, you must, and I do mean must, have a person like Scott who you can talk to about local politics and then talk about real estate. Robert Kiyosaki Tip. The current financial crisis in the United States is likely to be judged in retrospect as the most wrenching since the end of the Second World War. Alan Greenspan, former U.S. Federal Reserve Chair, March 17, 2008. Missing from Mr. Greenspan's assessment is the other side of the coin. Those getting into a critical aspect of real estate now who prepare for the eventual upturn will be among the most successful in gaining wealth and security. How can that happen? This chapter will show you how to add value to real estate today, often without even owning or developing it, to capitalize on large returns tomorrow. Whether you want to work in the area of entitlements or not, it is important that you understand this critical area of real estate. The knowledge can make you money, and it can make your life easier. Ask yourself a question. When you drive around your state or across the country, do you ever wonder who owns those acres and miles of raw land? The answer is that someone possesses every square inch of it, and it is owned by the federal government, the state, the county, the city, the Indian nation, or a private party such as a company or an individual. Most people believe that private parties are the biggest property owners of our country. But this is not necessarily true. In Arizona, for example, only 15% of the land is privately owned. 
Another illusion when it comes to real estate is, if you own land as a private property owner, then you can do what you want with it. You own your property, you pay taxes, you buy insurance for it, and you maintain it. You own the right to do all that. But what you do not own is the right to do anything you want with the property. Surprised? This is where the term entitlement enters the equation, and it is not a complicated concept. It simply means what you are entitled or allowed to do with your property as defined by the city, county, or state in which the land is located with regard to development. Those decisions are controlled by entitlements granted by the federal, state, county, or local government agencies. These agencies tell you whether your land is usable for agricultural, commercial, residential, or industrial uses. They tell you how much you can build on your property, whether you can remove vegetation, how to mitigate wildlife disturbances that exist on your property, whether you have rights to access streets, water, or sewer, and whether a septic system is permitted, along with many other governmental controls. Tip. Here is an old adage that will serve you well today and tomorrow. In reality, owning an asset is not as important as controlling an asset. And those who entitle an asset have the potential to obtain great profits from their endeavors. Love thy neighbor? Today, one of the most unquantifiable controlling factors that involves the use of your property is your neighbor, a factor that has historically caused owners and developers much grief. Neighbors have always held that they should have a say about what is done with the vacant lot they view over or visit, now and forever. Today, more than ever, neighbors believe they have an inherent right to use a parcel of land as they see fit. Parking, playing, cycling, jogging, walking, dumping, and controlling it, even if that vacant lot now happens to be your property. Neighbors feel that when it comes to your property, whether vacant or with existing structures on it, you, the property owner, should abide by their rules and wishes. Because I've heard these complaints so often, I've given them their own name and formalized the list into the Top 20 Neighborly Complaints for Non-Development. Are these complaints fictitious? Believe me, I could never make this stuff up. Each one is based on a real-life situation I have experienced, and I marvel at the list every time I read it. All developments, whether residential, commercial, or industrial, have many of the same neighborhood concerns. Commercial development adds the apprehension that you may be bringing people from other areas of the community into their neighborhood. Industrial development embodies fears about pollution and the potential hazards of large vehicles in the area. These neighbor issues have always been present, but to a lesser degree than what they are today. There are two reasons for this increase in neighborly concern. One, there has been a shift of political thought in the country from an attitude of self-reliance to an attitude of rights and entitlements. Your project might be the proper development for the site, but the neighborly feeling is, not in my backyard. Such people are commonly referred to as NIMBYs. 2. There has been an increase in the ability of a small group of NIMBYs or activists to organize a vocal minority of people through the Internet. The Internet has changed the political landscape. What has not changed is the axiom that a squeaky wheel does get the oil, and on the Internet a little squeaking goes a long way in creating an adverse situation between neighbors and owners. The Top 20 Neighborly Complaints for Non-Development Do not change the height of the existing building, for it will hurt our privacy. We have always walked across the land and must continue to do so. 
you will disturb the habitat of existing animals, and this you must not do. We will not be able to see over or across the land, for you will block our view. You will create traffic, and that is unacceptable to us. Development will overburden the number of children in the schools. You must not change the character and compatibility of the neighborhood. The old building that is on your property is historic. Do not touch it. There are rare biological plants that must be nurtured forever. The apartment complex you want to develop will bring in undesirable people. Your development will import crime into the neighborhood. Whatever you do will not be environmentally friendly, so you may not do it. The developer is out of state, and we are wary and suspicious. The developer is greedy, and we are not. End of discussion. If we let the owner develop, it should be with less density. The owner should take less money for the property. Any development will increase noise, and that is not good. The lights from the development will destroy the night sky. The city is too crowded, and we do not want anyone else in our neighborhood. If we refuse to let you build the roads, people will not come, and that is good. Our society has evolved in a way that is less social in nature and more segregated geographically in political thoughts and beliefs. As someone who grew up in the Midwest, I knew all of our neighbors. We watched out for each other. I had a feeling of self reliance, but I knew my neighbors were there for me if I needed help, and I was there for them. It was a close reflection of the Ozzie and Harriet Nelson Society. Moving to the West, I find our communities are developing in a way that segregates people. Neighbors are transient, they don't know each other. There is little feeling of community and of looking out for each other. It has forced people to push what they perceive as their rights onto others. The Nelsons have given way to the Simpsons and married with children. Assembling this disenfranchised group is easy through the Internet because it provides empowerment, and it offers pervasive access to large numbers of people almost instantaneously. This, in turn, creates a purpose for a social gathering, often led by a vocal resident who feels validated to carry the cause, the self appointed squeaky wheel. Why have I spent time talking about this? Because whether you realize it or not, it is not your desires but the vote of the politicians to whom you present your product for approval that determines the use of your property. And it is the NIMBYs who elect and therefore influence those politicians who hold the cards. Tip. All politics is local. Representative Tip O'Neill, late Speaker of the House. The World of Local Politics Is it just me, or have politicians changed over the years? To better serve your community is no longer a motivation to run for office. It has become a campaign slogan void of reality. It seems that a large number of elected officials are in political office for their own personal gain. They want the office as a career. Indeed, they feel as entitled to it as the neighbors who embrace a personal ownership of the property you own. Once such politicians have tasted the power, control, and benefits of their positions, they will do whatever is necessary to keep their positions. Therefore, a small group of vocal voters do make a huge difference in the outcome of your project. Real Life Story The Politician Who Wasn't as young people starting out in real estate development, my colleagues and I assembled 100 adjoining parcels in a rundown area of Phoenix and presented a master plan for redevelopment to the Phoenix City Council for approval. 200 people showed up to rally against the redevelopment.
I remember Mayor Margaret Hance standing up in front of the angry crowd and wagging her finger, telling the crowd how good this was for the city. The project passed over neighborhood opposition. Mayor Hance was a leader not because she voted for a project I was involved in, but because she took a stand in support of a project that may have been against her own personal political interest, but that was nonetheless good for the city. She was a popular mayor in Phoenix, in part because she was recognized for her caring about the city. She was also an exceptional politician because she didn't act like one. Most of the time, you will not be dealing with that kind of leadership. You'll be dealing with quite the opposite. Real Life Story The Politician Who Was Recently, I made an application for a mixed-use residential development in the city of Phoenix for my firm, M3 Companies. There was NIMBY opposition from a group that elected a councilman from the district in which this parcel was located. Before city council heard the application, this councilman announced he was against the development. He said he needed to take an early stand, that he was showing leadership. In this case, he was afraid to do what was best for the city. He wanted to appease the vocal NIMBYs for his own political gain. I'd like to say this is a rare occurrence, but it is not. You will find this behavior to be very common in today's political landscape. Entitlements equals profits. Are entitlements difficult to secure? The answer is yes. Then why not purchase property that has already been entitled? You can, and most developers do. But you can make a lot of money by entitling property for yourself or for others without the financing or capital risk that other areas of real estate require. Entitlement can be a profitable area of real estate just by relying on your learned skills. Your profits have nothing to do with how much money you have to buy real estate. There are three secrets to entitlements that lead to success and great profitability. You will hear them from me more than once in this chapter. Please remember. 1. Knowledge 2. Knowledge 3. Knowledge How do you obtain this knowledge? To quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, with apologies to The Lord of the Rings, the tale grew in the telling. The way I gained my knowledge was by starting slowly and deliberately, and from there I worked my way to a comfort level where I could begin to take action. You can start and grow this way too. Only I'm going to make it easier for you with my reality-based, detailed entitlement process. Each area is based on what I've learned, and these guidelines continue to serve me well. The remainder of this chapter is about the process, and it contains everything I do to profit from entitlements. You'll find this process to be a huge advantage as you learn, but it will be only as valuable as your willingness to put in the time and rely on self-motivation and determination. There are no shortcuts to building a knowledge base, but there are long-term gains to be made. Give yourself at least six months to acquire the foundation necessary to succeed. Scott's Detailed Entitlement Process Know your city or county plans, ordinances, and ways of doing business. Become knowledgeable with your city's or county's goals and planning. This will help you understand what the city or town is doing or plans to do and why. You also need to understand how business is conducted to avoid rookie mistakes. Trust me, I have made them. Your mission. Study the general plan for your city or town. Read the zoning code and ordinances. Learn how the game is played. Think in terms of how you can benefit the politicians, not the other way around. Be on top of city and town politics. Learn the political structure. 
Every city or town is governed by elected and staff individuals. I will get to them in a minute. Developing relationships is important, and believe it or not, mayors and council members are approachable. Why? Because they are always looking for new people to help secure their positions and advance their self-interests. This is not cynicism, it is the way of the world. A lifelong friend of mine, Dr. Mark Horowitz, is both a businessman and a scholar of early Tudor England, who has spent much of his life researching and understanding the relationships between those in power and those who benefit from the powerful. In a special issue of the journal Historical Research, commemorating the 500th anniversary of the death of the first Tudor king, 1509 through 2009, Mark defines politics as the pursuit of self-interest and self-preservation through the use of power. Henry VII is a model for all leaders and for those seeking benefits from them when it comes to cultivating relationships for political ends. Half the battle is simply showing up. The same is true for you. For example, on Tuesday, go to the planning committee meetings, and on Thursday, the council meetings. In between, hold meetings with staff members and make appointments with developers. Go to their functions, help them, learn about them, and become known to them. Position yourself positively. When it comes time for you to make an application, they will all know you, which will go miles in helping you get your project approved. Real Life Story when a hole is not the hole. I acquired a 20-acre piece of property that was in a great location but was a massive hole. It was an eyesore to the community and was preventing a major road from being built in the area. This property would require 600,000 cubic yards of compacted, clean dirt to fill the hole. For reference, a large dump truck carries about 18 cubic yards of dirt, so when I say it was a big hole, I mean it it would take about 33,000 dump truck loads to fill it. I wanted to develop a commercial shopping center on the property, which would require that I change the zoning from residential to commercial. The city was enthusiastic and said it would support my application. I deeded the right-of-way the city needed to allow for the development of the road. That was my first major mistake. Then I made the application to rezone the property. The process would take six months. Immediately after applying for rezoning, a contractor approached me with a request to dispose of dirt from a nearby canal project he had been awarded. He would fill the hole in my property with clean, compacted dirt at no cost to me. Naturally, I thought I had hit a home run since I would not have to pay to fill the hole. It took the contractor three months of night and day hauling of dirt to fill the property. The property looked great when it was completed. That was my second mistake. Timing is everything. And as fate would have it, my rezoning request was heard before the city council a month after I had filled the unsightly hole. I was thrilled. I had held up my end of the bargain. As fate would also have it, at the city council hearing, a number of NIMBY residents turned out to protest my application. They didn't want commercial zoning in their neighborhood. Astonishingly, the politician who promised me his support, pre-right-of-way and pre-hole, suddenly had a change of heart and led the charge against my rezoning request. It turned out that with the roadway and hole problems solved in his district, he was now worried only about votes. Thanks to my fine work, he had the right-of-way for the city road, and he had the eyesore problem solved. His job was done. He had the whole enchilada. Lesson learned. Make sure that you receive what is promised to you before you perform your end of an obligation with a politician. Tip. 
Remember, those in power are motivated by self-interest and self-preservation, and they are looking for new faces and new ideas to help them with both. These are the critical players in any city or town that you will want to get to know, and that you will want to know you. The staff. The staff in the planning departments are a constant. They are government employees until they retire. Politicians, on the other hand, are elected every two or four years. Politicians and elected officials come and go. The staff in the planning department stay year after year. They play a very important role in the political support for your project. Your mission. Meet the planning staff. Get to know them personally. Take them out to lunch, a cup of coffee, or play golf with them. Ask for their help. Make your project their idea. Self-interests, remember? Understand how they think. Appointed boards or neighborhood groups. Even though these groups may be informal and volunteer-based, they are powerful and should not be underestimated. Your mission. Go to every neighborhood meeting. Get on neighborhood boards. Determine the leadership structure and who the decision-makers are. Planning Commission. This usually consists of a board whose members are appointed by the elected members of the city council. Their decisions are usually advisory only, but they serve an important role as political cover to members of the city council. Your mission? Go to every planning commission hearing and meet every planning commission member. Get to know them and learn their backgrounds. Make friends with them. Understand how they vote and determine which of them are business-friendly and which are neighborhood-friendly. Understand the alliances they form and why. Determine whose vote you need to pass your project through. Support their ambitions and causes. City Council. This is the ultimate voting body. It will make or break your project, and it has the power to hold it up indefinitely. Your mission? Go to every City Council hearing. Meet the mayor and every City Council member. Support them politically. Become their friends. Get to know all members and what their hot buttons are and try pushing a few. Become known and trusted by them. Understand how they vote and know which ones are business-friendly and which are neighborhood-friendly. Understand the alliances they form and why. Determine whose vote you need to pass your project through. Work on political campaigns and attend political functions. Go to events where they are present and make yourself visible. Find out the local election dates and when different members of the city council are up for re-election. Tip. When it comes to politics, you do not want to bring a controversial case before the city council within 12 months of the election of any member of the city council whose vote you will need. The politician's desire to be re-elected will work against you every time. Does all this homework, knowledge, building, and cultivation of relationships guarantee success? The answer is yes and no. Yes, it will lead to great successes for you because you are way ahead of the curve and therefore ahead of your competitors who do not make the time or the effort. But no, like all of life, there will be some setbacks. It is therefore important to know when to cut your losses, and I am the first to admit that despite all my success in the realm of real estate and entitlements, some things are beyond my control. Real Life Story Crack the Code to Corner Your Market some time ago, I was trying to purchase a corner that was zoned properly for the commercial retail center I wanted to develop. I had a major grocery chain interested in leasing part of the property, but the grocery store representative wanted to have a meeting with the head of the city planning department before moving forward.
At that meeting, the head of the city planning department asked the grocery store to locate to another property that was miles from my site, stating that he believed the trade area my site was located in was already adequately served and the property he was offering had a trade area that was underserved. This is city code for saying that the city can generate more income from sales tax revenue by locating a business in one area over another. The city views each piece of property based on varying degrees of revenue producing potential. Luckily, in this case, the sales pitch didn't work and the grocer ultimately located on my site due to the stability of the trade area. Lesson learned. Altruism usually isn't. Crack the code and you'll understand the real motives. Stay ahead of neighborhood opposition. No matter what project you propose for a neighborhood, there will be neighborhood opposition. Indeed, I began this chapter giving you the top 20 neighborly complaints. Expect these opposing views and build them into your plan. Again, knowledge is power, but as you are planning, be proactive. Your mission? Study the leaders of the neighborhood opposition. Is it the same person or group of people who show up for every entitlement case? What are their backgrounds? Are they NIMBYs responding only to issues next to their neighborhood, or are they full-fledged activists on zoning issues with the community at large? Talk to them. Listen to their issues. Become their friend. Do they use the Internet to communicate with one another? See if you can get on their email list. Try to get hold of the database to be able to communicate with all of the neighbors. Then, when it comes time to present your project, your message will be heard directly from you without filtering. Go to every neighborhood meeting. Get on neighborhood boards. Set up your own Internet website as a proactive approach to groups or individuals both for and against your project. Use your website to educate the public about your project. Include testimonials and quotes from supporters of your project, especially neighbors. This will be a counterweight to NIMBY websites and help you control your message. Most important, do not view NIMBYs as your mortal enemies, although they clearly can have an impact on your aspirations and your billfold. I approach them as citizens who want to be heard for some reason, and not necessarily the reason they may be voicing. Sometimes it can be a gripe or grievance that can be addressed without any harm to your project. Treat them with respect, and some can even be turned around to your point of view. Have a timetable and patience. Depending on the jurisdiction in which you are working, entitlements can take anywhere from six months to many years. Here is the short and the long of it. Short timetable. This comes into play only if you have the full support of all parties. It is just the actual process itself that takes time. Long timetable. If you encounter opposition to a project and or if you have developmental issues, for example, water rights, environmental, access, etc., your timetable will be extended. Realistic timetables are critical to your success for several reasons. You don't want your case to be heard in an election cycle. If you are working with a landowner and you are purchasing the property subject to receiving entitlements by a fixed date, you don't want to run out of time with your seller and be unentitled. You will have invested too much time, effort, and money to get to this point. The market cycle in real estate may pass you by. The capital markets change. The supply of money, interest rates, and underwriting criteria may change. Real Life Story Turning a Mountain into a Molehill One project I developed early in my career involved a residential community. The owner of the property adjoining mine believed that my property would stay vacant forever. 
See complaint number two in the top 20 list. We have always walked across the land and must continue to do so. Now that I had arrived, he feared that my development would impede his view of a mountain. We talked about his concerns at length, and after some homework I came back to show him how I could reorient the houses to maintain his view. See complaint number four in the top twenty list. We will not be able to see over or across the land, for you will block our view. In effect, I converted an adversary into an advocate, and the project went through. Lesson learned? Compromise can turn NIMBYs into allies. Get to know the developers and builders. Just as you have met every staffer and every committee and council member at City Hall, meet every developer and builder that makes an application. Call them on the phone and make an appointment to learn about their projects. Meet them at all hearings. They will be enthusiastic to tell you about their projects because they will want your support. Your mission. When you speak with the developers and builders, seek to answer the following questions. What are the opposition's issues and how are you, the developer or builder, overcoming those objections? What third-party vendors are you using? These may include the following, land planner, architect, civil and structural engineer, zoning attorney, traffic engineer, contractor, and their subcontractors. Who does your soils report, and who performs your environmental studies? What title company and escrow officer do you use? What real estate broker are you using? After attending a number of meetings, you'll have a good idea of the vendors who do quality work and can perform on time. These vendors will become invaluable to you when the time comes to put your own team together. Think of the education you will be getting from actual practitioners, and it's free. Understand what developers and builders want. To repeat, knowledge is your most important asset. I made getting it a point early on in my career and continue it to this day. When it comes to developers and builders, I try to find out everything I can from each type. I want to know as much as I can about single-family, multi-family, retail, office, industrial, or mixed-use development. These developers and builders are putting their knowledge, reputation, and capital on the line. Why not learn as much as you can from them? All of these resources are coming to the city seeking approvals. It's a knowledge vein that is yours for the mining, and is much better than school-based education. This is the real world, and that is where money is made. Your only impediment to success is your own lack of effort in mining this knowledge. Tip. Builders want to acquire entitled property. Hence, you are of great value to them, and they will pay for that value. Entitlements involve all types of real estate. Apartment buildings, residential, commercial, medical, mixed use. The key is to be aware of the specific requirements of each and understand the differences. Then, learn as much as you can about similar projects and how they have been entitled. Here are the questions that I've asked of developers and builders. This will get you started and will help expand your knowledge base for planning your first project. Your mission? Ask residential builders these questions. What size lots do you want to develop? Why that size? What are the setback distances from the front, back, and side yards? What are the sizes of the homes you are building? How many phases do you plan for? How many lots per phase? How many lots do you need in order for you to develop a model home complex? Where do you like to locate your models within the subdivision? Why? Beyond just asking questions, visit their subdivisions. Go through their model homes. Talk to the salespeople. 
Find out what are the most sought-after home features buyers ask for and why. By knowing the kind of product they build, you'll be in a better position to provide them the entitled land they are looking for down the road. Your mission? Ask apartment builders these questions, the same as above, plus these additional. What density do you like to build? Usually it is 14 to 21 units per acre, depending on the city and projected rental rate of the project. How many units does it take to make a project operationally feasible? What do you pay per unit, referred to as per door, for a piece of property that is entitled? What unit mix, one, two, or three-bedroom units, are best for the market? What size, one, two, and three-bedroom units, do residents want most? What is the best mix? What rental rates does the market accept? What amenities are being offered and why? How many parking spaces per unit does the city require versus the market demand? What is the land size necessary for the density needed to operate and park properly? Are there any specific lighting, trash locations, and noise abatement issues? What kind of vehicle and pedestrian integration into the adjoining neighborhoods is needed? What about schools and crime? Your first project and jumpstart game plan. After six months of hard work, you now possess the three secrets to entitlements that can lead to great success, and you should be able to rapid-fire repeat them by now. 1. Knowledge. 2. Knowledge. 3. Knowledge. Gaining these assets has brought you to this point, and no one can take your knowledge from you. You can succeed or fail using other types of capital, but your best chance of success in entitlements is directly proportional to your knowledge capital. Tip. Principal rule. Use your knowledge base as capital to create value. Your mission? Put into action my jumpstart game plan to get your first project off the ground. A few truths about buyers and builders. A new home buyer is sold on a home before he or she walks in the front door. The streetscape of the subdivision, landscaping, and the elevation of the home are most important for the sale. School districts matter. Locate your residential developments in the best ones. Cities with the best images may be more expensive, but create the most security for your investment. See if the builder will share his infrastructure costs with you. Find out, on average, how much is the cost to engineer the subdivision to a recorded plat. This is called paper lots. How much does it cost on a per-lot basis to construct the streets, sewer, water, common area amenities, and landscaping? It's good to know how much it will cost a home builder to improve a single-family lot. Builders will pay 20 to 25% of the sales price of the home for an improved lot. Scott's Jumpstart Game Plan 1. From the knowledge you have gained, you can put together the best team of third-party vendors, such as surveyors, land planners, environmental companies, etc. Quality and reliability are key. 2. You know which areas of the community are sought after the most. Ask your real estate broker to map out vacant land or redevelopment opportunities in this area. Try to locate in a popular school district. 3. Compare your prospective sites to the city's general plan. 4. From your learned knowledge, work with your land planner in developing a plan which will be marketable to a buyer upon receiving entitlements. 5. Because you learned from the builders what they are willing to pay for entitled property, apply that number to the value of the property. 6. 
From that price, subtract the following. The cost of the land, unusual or extra costs of construction required for the property you are considering. This might include rocky or expensive soil conditions, bringing in utilities to the property, undergrounding power lines or irrigation ditches. The cost of your team's work to entitle the property. Your cost of resale, brokerage fees, and title work. 7. If you are successful in entitling the property, this total will be the profit you earn for your knowledge and hard work. Determine if that bottom line is acceptable to you for your time and effort and cost of planning. 8. Meet with the people you are now familiar with in the city's planning department. Ask what use and density they would recommend for each property you have potentially selected. See if it matches your estimate. 9. Narrow the scope of your search to the most profitable properties, if they were entitled for what you want, and what the city staff would recommend. 10. Work with the landowner of the property you want to purchase. The landowner already has his capital in the land. Find out the motivation behind the landowner's desire to sell. If you can meet the seller's need, you might be able to get enough time to purchase the property subject to getting it entitled. Again, your profit is the value you create through entitlements. Real-life story. Be prepared for unusual requirements or actions that often defy logic. You will be exposed to every imaginable roadblock for your project. From underground mice to crashing airplanes, do not be discouraged. I have encountered the most outrageous hurdles. Approach them with tenacity and later you'll have great stories that will keep everyone laughing. Hurdle number one, or the mouse that roared. We were working on a master plan development in Colorado. The fish and game department was concerned that an endangered animal known as a Preble's mouse might exist on the property. Unfortunately, the only way to prove that supposition was to catch mice, kill them, and check their DNA for a match, thus potentially endangering the endangered species in the process. The department decided that we needed to set aside property within the development to provide habitat just in case the mouse existed. Moreover, they told us that we had to impose a ban on the ownership of cats by residents since they might hunt and kill the mouse should it exist. This is no joke. Through negotiations, we were able to change the department's requirement from forbidding cats entirely to making it a requirement in the covenants, conditions, and restrictions, CC&Rs, of the community that any cats residing in our community would have to remain indoors, we complied, fully realizing that this was the political solution to a problem. Commissioners, developer, residents, and mice were all happy campers. Hurdle number two, or sinking the boat to see if it floats. We wanted to subdivide 620 acres in Santa Barbara County, California. It was an area where water was scarce and permits were rationed for homes. However, we had three wells on the property and the hydrology reports concluded that there was more than enough water for the development. The county determined the reports to be insufficient and decided that, despite the scarcity of water in the area, they would need to measure the water in the wells by letting the water run into ditches for an entire year. At the end of the year, and at great cost and enormous loss of water, it was determined that, in fact, there would be sufficient water for the development. Hurdle number three, or playing it straight. For a seemingly simple single-family residential subdivision with improved lots, we proposed a layout that was a little out of the ordinary. It involved adding curves to roads rather than creating a straight grid plan where houses lined up like barracks. The staff for this city said the plan was unacceptable. Why, we asked. 
It was then that the city informed us that elderly people who might not be able to make the subtle turns could be driving the streets. They could run off the road. We call this protecting every issue that isn't an issue. We countered by saying that elderly people can make a subtle turn and that if they cannot, they shouldn't be driving. Moreover, like the mouse in Colorado, no one knew if in fact there was a problem to begin with, in this case regarding the street design. The staff would not compromise and the streets were built perfectly straight. In fairness, we believe no elderly people have run off any of the roads to date. Hurdle number four, or it's a bird, it's a plane, it's you're kidding, right? A vacant piece of land was already developed on three sides. The fourth side fronted on a major road. We designed a small residential subdivision with one access point. The city didn't like this plan because they wanted two access points, which in fact was physically impossible to accomplish. Why two access points? One city staff member offered this explanation. What if an airplane crashed in the entryway of the project? How will the fire department get in and save the people? My response was plain and truthful. They wouldn't get in and everyone would die. Of course, it is an absurdity to think that you can plan or respond to every event that more than likely will never happen. Moreover, even with two access points, the fire department, under these circumstances, wouldn't be able to save anyone anyway. The result? We took the staff's objection and went to the city council, which overruled the staff and approved the subdivision. Indeed, they saw the logic to our plan. I am happy to report that after 30 years, maybe a few birds, but no airplane, has crashed into the subdivision. No meteorites have either. Lesson learned. Prepare to get very good at jumping hurdles calmly. Know the power of control versus ownership. Remember, control of a piece of property is as effective as owning it, with the additional benefit of minimizing your risk. If you purchase a piece of property before it is entitled, you will need to think about the following factors that could impact your investment. Capital. You'll need either your own or your investors to purchase the property. Risk. You risk the capital invested if your entitlements are unsuccessful. Unprofitability. Your cost of capital and interest may eliminate any potential future profits. Marketability. You now have an unentitled property that you may not be able to sell. You may be wondering, why would a seller give you the time to go through the entitlement process without risking any money? There are some very valuable reasons. First, you can offer the seller more money than his property is presently worth, which is obviously appealing. You can do this because, remember, if you purchase the property outright, you would be paying interest on the capital used to purchase the property, so you might as well give that to the seller in the form of an increase in price. Another reason a seller would allow you the time needed to gain the entitlement relates to taxes. If the seller sold the property, most likely he or she would pay capital gains tax on the sale, currently 15% federal tax plus state tax. Then, when that money is reinvested and earning interest, that interest would be taxed as ordinary income, up to 38% under current law for federal income tax plus state and local taxes. If you offered the seller more money for their property to buy the time to get the entitlements and close the deal thereafter, the seller will be paying tax at the much lower capital gains rates instead of the higher ordinary tax rates. Another incentive is offering to give the seller the survey, environmental report, soils report, traffic study, utility study, land plan, and title work you are doing as compensation for the time if you are not successful with entitlements and do not purchase the property.
The seller will need those studies anyway with another buyer, and that information will decrease the time and upfront money needed by a new buyer. This information is worthless to you if you are not successful. You can even find out if the seller will pay for the reports mentioned above. You can offer the seller an increased price for the land and a percentage of the increased value you are creating from your knowledge and entitlement work. Since you don't have to pay for the reports, now you don't have any capital at risk and only upside potential with the increased value you will be creating through entitlements. This is the best real estate position to be in. Time can also be a blessing when a seller wants to find an exchange property before closing the sale of the current property so there is no exposure to the strict time constraints for a 1031 exchange. By giving you time to get the entitlements, the seller gets more time to search for another property investment. Exchanges must be executed within a specified period, and this allows the luxury of time most sellers would love to have. Finally, a seller may want to be a part of the development on his property. The property may have been in the family for generations. There may be family pride regarding what is developed on the land. The motivation of a seller will either be monetary or family legacy. An agreeable agreement for you. Have your real estate attorney draft a standard letter of intent, LOI, for you to use with each seller. An LOI outlines the terms and conditions of a sale, is usually a non-binding agreement, but is used as a gentleman's handshake. Once you have an executed LOI, ask your attorney to draft a purchase agreement for execution using the signed LOI as your guide. Make sure you have the right within the agreement to rezone the subject property for your intended use. Once the purchase agreement is signed, you have the property under your control. I repeat, it is not what you own that leads to wealth generation. It is what you control. Once the purchase agreement is signed by all parties, open escrow with the title company and escrow officer you have learned to be the most reliable. Have the title company give you a title report with all recorded easements and liens and the requirements for an extended or lender's title policy. Your mission? Have your real estate attorney draft an LOI. Execute the LOI with the seller. Have your real estate attorney draft a purchase agreement with the appropriate provisions from the LOI, particularly the right to rezone the property. Get the agreement signed. You now control the property. Open escrow and get the title report. Some diligence is due. It is important to continue growing your knowledge base to protect your investment and avoid unwanted surprises. Consider these steps. Your mission? Review your title report with the help of your title company. Make sure there are no recorded covenants, conditions, or restrictions, CC and R's, recorded against the property that would affect your intended use. Check for deed restrictions that would affect ownership or use of the property. Read the recorded easements and understand who has the right of access. Make sure you have legal access to your property. See if there are any assessments recorded against your property that you will become responsible for. Study who has the rights to the minerals on the property. Give the title report and all recorded documents to your civil engineer to create an ALTA Builders Lenders Survey. Once you have control of the property, have your team's real estate agent contact potential buyers for the property subject to your acquiring the entitlements. Don't think of a good real estate broker as a cost. Rather, he or she is a valuable member of the team. A good broker has developed credibility over many years with builders and buyers. 
This will help ensure your success. If the deal can't afford the real estate fee, don't do the deal. Work with that builder buyer in the planning process. Do not plan your property around one buyer unless that person has paid you a sizable non-refundable deposit if you are successful in entitling your property and he does not perform. If planned around one buyer, you might ultimately receive the entitlement, but no one else can use the plan. Real Life Story Removing Rocks from Your Soil May Be Mining Recently, M3 companies were involved in moving 6 million cubic yards of dirt on one of our 2,000-acre master-planned communities. We were not selling the dirt or rock during the grading process, but simply sifting the dirt to eliminate rocks for the golf course. We also crushed the larger rocks on site to a more manageable size. By chance, a representative of the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, a federal governmental agency, was driving by the site and noticed what we were doing. When he returned to his office, he wrote us a letter saying we owed the BLM a royalty right for mining the minerals on the property since it owned these rights from the original governmental patent. Almost every development crushes rocks on site and moves earth materials and screens soil. We explained that we weren't moving any material off-site or selling it and therefore we did not believe we were mining minerals on the property. They replied to our argument that if we pick the rocks out of the soil by hand instead of using machines, they don't consider it mining. The rocks were far too big for that. Never before had they imposed this requirement on any other development of this scope. We ultimately negotiated a settlement with them to avoid the costly delays in construction and litigation. Lesson learned, expect the unexpected and bone up on your negotiation skills. Surveys and Reports the next step is securing a lender survey which shows all of the recorded title report issues such as easements, property lines, and net gross acreage square footage. It also outlines unrecorded roads and encroachments, legal descriptions, etc. It is used as the basis for all other planning on the property. Your land planner will use the survey's information for computing acreage and for laying out everything that you do. It is your foundation. Below is a guide you can use during this important phase. Your mission? Review your survey to see if there are any encroachments such as fences, structures, etc. that your neighbors have on your property or you have on theirs. See if anyone is using unrecorded access points on your property or unrecorded paths and roads across your property that may be a claim for adverse possession by the using party. This may restrict financing and ability to develop. Determine if there are any power and gas line easements and how that may affect the usability and marketability of your property. Make sure your engineer includes floodplain information on the survey. Give the survey to your land planner to help you develop a land plan and layout. I never rely on my land planner's input only. I've found my learned knowledge and research is just as important to the final product. There is a belief with some merit that you design for a plan with a greater intensity and density than you really need so you can cut back at a later date. Why? So that the NIMBYs and politicians can feel they have pushed the developer back and got their way. You are catering to today's political correctness. Your learned knowledge will tell you whether you should bring in a representative of the NIMBY group to be part of the land planning process. It is always better to have the NIMBYs as part of the planning process. Be prepared to cover your third-party vendors with liability insurance when they go upon the land of your seller to do their work. I would recommend that you provide at least $1 million of coverage. This insurance is relatively inexpensive. 
In addition, get these reports done up front. There's no point in waiting. A soils report. A soils report determines if there are any soil conditions that will increase the cost to build on the property and therefore lessen the price someone can pay for the property. Some sites have expansive soil that would increase the cost of construction. Some sites have hard rock and may need to be blasted. That would increase cost too. If you were going to use septic tanks instead of city sewers, your soil condition might not meet the requirements. Some sites even have underground fissures that are not readily determined. How important is a soils report? I have a true story. Real life story. Low cost property can be very costly. During the frenzy of the recent soaring real estate cycle, a buyer purchased 900 acres of land at a low price with the intent to flip it for a profit. The buyer came to me to help him after he had bought the property. The buyer did not order a soils report during the due diligence period prior to him buying the property. If he had, he would have realized that the soil was very expansive. That particular soil condition would make the foundation work for each house so cost prohibitive that the homes would have been priced out of the market. Sadly, although the land was acquired at good price, the actual cost of the property was very high due to the increased development costs to mitigate the poor soil conditions. There wasn't much I could do. The buyer could have avoided all this by doing homework and getting a soils report. Lesson learned. Soil matters. Never skimp on things that cost little and can save you a bundle. A Phase 1 Environment Report this report will show you if your property is located within a Superfund site area or if there are any environmental issues recorded on adjoining properties that may affect your property. It would include such things as a previous gas station on the adjoining property that had a fuel tank leak which is now flowing under your property. If any issues are discovered, you'll receive a recommendation to do a Phase 2. This is more expensive and extensive. Laboratory testing will determine if contamination exists and what remediation methods need to be done. The remediation of environmental issues is often next to impossible to quantify. If your Phase 1 report comes back with a recommendation for Phase 2, back away from the property. Do not look back, and most of all, do not move forward on any property with environmental issues at this stage of your career. And one more thing. If your proposed property is in a rocky granite area, you should have your environmental engineer do a radon gas study to see if there is a need for mitigation. A Constraints Report Besides doing the survey, have your civil engineer prepare a constraints report on the property. This will be a study of all the utilities to service the property. It will include water, sewers, telephone, gas, electric, cable, fiber optics, and storm sewers. This study will show the location, capacity, water pressure, service providers, and methods of access to these services. It will also ascertain whether you are going to incur extra development costs by resizing existing utilities to serve your development or extending utility lines to provide these services to your property. Have your engineer provide any utility development fees and utility recovery charges agreements in their report. A Drainage Report this report will determine if you have any 404 issues. These are federal regulations by the Army Corps of Engineers on all navigable waterways. Don't think you need a stream on your property to come under this jurisdiction. It may be only an irrigation ditch. You also want to determine if there are any excess costs for retention, detention, or runoff of water from your property. Archaeological Study
If you are in an area that has artifacts or where artifacts are believed to exist, you should do an archaeological study. Just because you are far away from a colonial settlement or an ancient Native American village does not mean that something may not be buried on your property. FAA, Federal Aviation Administration Review. Make sure the FAA has not imposed any restrictions on your property. Is it located out of the noise zone and flight paths? It's a good idea to be sure. Wells. Check to see if there are any water wells on the property and if they have been properly recorded with the State Department of Water Resources. Also check to see if there are any historical records on the depth of the well, pumping capacity, and drawdown of the water table. Make sure all abandoned wells are closed properly. Real Life Story Unfortunately, the builder didn't strike gold. A home builder was well into the development of his project when he discovered artifacts while digging water and sewer lines. The project was immediately put on hold for 18 months while archaeologists, tiny picks and brushes in hand, meticulously uncovered and retrieved the artifacts. It almost bankrupted the builder because his capital costs, debt payments, contracts with vendors, and other cash outlays were dependent on his completion of the project on time. An archaeological study in advance of development may have prevented this calamity. Lesson learned, if it can happen, it just might. Don't tempt fate. The Application We're getting close now. You can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, assuming that all your reports came back positive and you didn't have to back away from the environmental hazards or anything else. It's time to make an application for the entitlement you are requesting. Every jurisdiction has different requirements. Some may require a traffic study, drainage study, landscape design, or letter from the school district on the impact of your proposed development on schools. Spend money only on the reports as are necessary. Your mission? Take your plan door-to-door -door and give every neighbor within 600 feet of your project a personal presentation of your plan. Bring with you a full-color site plan and renderings of your development. Traffic information generated by your development. Letter of support from the school district. Your business card and contact information. A petition for the neighbor to sign in support of your project. Printed cards giving the location, times, and dates of hearings, and the names, phone numbers, and email addresses of the mayor and city council members. Start your presentation with the neighbors farthest from your project. They may be the least interested. You will have a better chance to get their signature on a petition of support. Use those signed petitions of support when asking the next neighbor for his support. Keep building those support petitions for your presentation to the neighbors that are closest to the project and to show to members of the city council. Give only those supportive neighbors your printed cards with the times and dates of the hearings. At the same time, continue to call upon all of the people you have met over the previous six months, including your friends on the city planning staff, on the community boards, the planning commission, and the city council. Try to get the leaders within each group to support your project. Use that support and visit with every member of each group. This is very important. Politicians you have developed relationships with want to help you, but you need to give them the political reasons to support you, including narrowing the objections of the NIMBYs. Let the politicians know if there is neighborhood opposition, what objections they have, and what you are doing to resolve their issues. A politician always needs to understand why it is in his or her political interest to support you in the face of opposition, self-interest, and self-preservation.
Being prepared for this through your previous six months worth of studying how the politician has reacted to other cases before you made your application, you will have insight into the right answer almost instinctively. Remember, the vote that counts is the vote of the City Council. Know that you have the votes that are required for approval before you allow your application to be heard for a final vote. Postpone the hearing until you have the votes committed. How to talk with the neighbors. It's easy to make mistakes when talking with neighbors. Follow these guidelines and you should come out without incident. Things you should do. Dress neatly and be enthusiastic about your project. Always be polite. Present facts and be honest. Be prepared to answer objections. Listen, don't debate. Make friends and develop relationships. If you do not know an answer to a question, return to personally give an answer. It gives you another chance to develop a relationship. Be proud of what you are doing. Ask for support and get contact information. Communicate with your neighbors. Ask supportive neighbors to invite their friends to a small meeting so you can explain your project. Get petitions of support signed. Ask supportive neighbors to be at the hearings. Have dates, times, and locations of meetings ready as a handout that you can distribute. Ask for them to email and call city council members expressing their support. Have that information available to give to them as a handout. Get the support of the Chamber of Commerce, Home Builders Association, and Board of Realtors. Things you should not do. Do not leave any project information behind except for your business card and hearing information and give it only to supportive neighbors. You may need to change your site plan while you are going through the process. If you leave your initial site plan behind, you will be accused of being deceitful by your neighbors if it changes in process. Do not exaggerate your project. Do not have group meetings initially. Group psychology is more difficult to cope with than handling individual concerns. Do not allow your differences with neighbors to become a matter of principle. Do not threaten neighbors with alternate uses, but point out to them the range of possibilities for which the land could be developed. The End Game What are the best-case scenarios for all your hard work? Your acquired knowledge and relationship building will help you obtain the right to purchase property you will entitle. You will get your property entitled, creating value. You will have a builder buy the property, with you profiting from the difference between the negotiated price from the landowner and your markup for entitling it. You will have succeeded by applying your knowledge and not your capital. Tip. Remember, you don't have to own a piece of property. You just have to control it. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Starting small is the way to learn, but what you'll soon discover is that the size of the project is meaningless. You will go through all of the same steps for a small project as you would for a large project. That means the bigger projects have the potential to net you more money with the same amount of effort. It's just a matter of building confidence. The M3 companies have taken this direction, using our expertise in the planning, entitlement, and execution of master plan communities from our learned knowledge over four decades of work. From developing a 610-acre American ranch community in Prescott, an 1,100-acre Prescott Lakes community, and the 2,100-acre Wickenburg Ranch community, all in Arizona, to the 2,000-acre American Ranch Sandstone community outside Denver, and our 6,000-acre community in Eagle, Idaho, we have taken advantage of our entitlement knowledge to succeed. But make no mistake, you will make a lot of mistakes. Everyone does. Cut your losses short and let your gains run. Your own drive is the only limit to your success. The future.
What is the future for someone who specializes in entitling real estate? We can count on governmental bodies to continue to impede property rights with each new law, regulation, ordinance, and environmental mandate. It becomes harder and harder each year to navigate through this minefield, and there are fewer people willing to make the attempt. Yet the demand from development companies and builders for entitled property increases each year. In adversity, there is advantage and opportunity for those willing to pursue entitlements. And what is the key? Knowledge. It is the knowledge you will gain that will make you one of the most sought-after properties in the real estate industry. You can work for yourself, consult for others, or be in an executive position with a development company. Entitlements are the future of real estate. This chapter has given you the tools to create that future for yourself. Knowledge is your capital when it comes to entitlements. But unlike other forms of capital, such as cash, equity, or debt, your capital can never be taken away, and it can only grow and help you succeed. Most important, your capital is most valuable when the economy is in a recession. Sellers of properties are more receptive to giving you the time to entitle their property. Lenders who have taken properties back need someone with the knowledge to prepare their properties for resale. Why? Because you can add value to property that is losing value in the marketplace. That makes you indispensable, sought after, and in a very profitable position for yourself. It takes many months to entitle a piece of property for development or for resale. Use the downtime of a recession to entitle a property. When the recession ends, as it always does, you will be ready immediately to take advantage of the recovery because your property is ready for development. It is called great timing. Friends in high places during low times. During a recession, you can process your application more quickly because the city staff has very few applications to process. Furthermore, it is more difficult for political leaders to turn your project down in the face of growing municipal deficits. Don't forget, landowners are willing to give you the time to work on entitlements. They need you. My last words of wisdom are these. Be a contrarian. In a recession, people focus on their jobs, the economy, and the stock market. They rarely see an opportunity to take advantage of what only appears to be a dismal situation. When no one is investing money, when no one can borrow money, and when equity is disappearing on properties, keep this in mind. You have the most valuable capital during this period, your knowledge. Let others spend their time looking backward and protecting their current declining assets. You will be using your time pursuing the sleeping giant of real estate profitability. Entitlements. It's time to get going. W. Scott Shermer is a managing partner for M3 Companies. M3 Companies' core competency is developing master-planned communities that honor and advance the timeless heritage of the West. Shermer is president of Shermer Ball Company and CEO of SMDI Company. Since he began working in Arizona real estate in the late 1960s, he has entitled, acquired, syndicated, financed, developed, managed, and brokered real estate in Arizona, California, Idaho, Illinois, Oklahoma, and Utah. Shermer and the M3 Company's charities are children-based giving support to Child Help, the Boys and Girls Club of Scottsdale, SARC, ANOZIRA Foundation, and the Solid Rock Foundation. Tom Wheelwright, Chapter 21 The Tax Lien Investment Strategy 
Tom Wheelwright is one of those people who is not just an expert in a very important aspect of investing. He is an investor himself who practices what he preaches. I like to surround myself with people like Tom because they don't just talk about what others should do. They actually do what they say. Tom is a CPA, a tax strategist, who knows that the government rewards people who know the tax code and play by its rules. And he is also a real estate investor. Tom has spent more than 25 years working with sophisticated investors to help them develop innovative tax, business, and wealth strategies. Tom is a teacher at heart, and even in his early days when he worked for a big four accounting firm, he managed the training for thousands of CPAs. He makes the complicated simple. And that is no easy feat because in order to do this, it takes a complete understanding of your subject and an ability to boil down the details to the ones that matter. Tom's skill comes from his years as a trainer and from his firm grasp of taxation and tax strategies. But Tom has influenced my life in a much more profound way than just through his knowledge of wealth strategies. If you read my introduction to Chapter 1, Tom's first chapter, then you know I mentioned his Mormon faith. Through Tom and others like him, I have learned much about the beliefs of this faith. His religion has many important lessons to share with a world that is in financial turmoil. One lesson that comes from the Mormon faith, and that seemed odd before now, doesn't seem quite so odd. That lesson is the Mormon practice of storing enough food, water, and money to survive for at least one year. Many of my Mormon friends do this, and so do my wife, Kim, and I. We put these necessities away in case of economic disaster, or worse, financial collapse. How close did we come in 2008? We're all used to a world of plenty, and don't think twice about what we would do for food and other necessities in an emergency. As many of us know, our supermarkets only have enough food to last three days, and if you have ever lived in an area that is hurricane-prone, and the forecast is predicting a storm on the way, you know how quickly the most critical supplies are snatched up. Water, bread, canned goods, batteries, and other vital supplies vanish from the store shelves in a matter of hours. In 2008, the world came very close to becoming a world of collapsed credit cards. Think about this for a while. What would happen if the world stopped accepting credit cards? What could you buy with only the cash you have on hand, the money in your wallet, the change in that jar? Not much. I believe the world would shut down. Of course, I don't wish for financial disaster, but Tom has taught me about preparation, and being prepared allows me to keep my mind free of worry, to think clearly, even as we enter a period of economic chaos, and to seize the opportunities. These are the times when fortunes are made. Tom has been an influence on me on many levels, and I honor his integrity. This chapter and the knowledge he shares is a must-read for anyone seizing investment opportunities now and in the future. I greatly value him personally and professionally. He is a true friend. Robert Kiyosaki If you have even taken a quick glance at the chapter titles in this book, or considered its sheer size, then you are probably realizing there are as many ways to invest in real estate as there are models of homes. 
The key, of course, is to invest in the type of real estate that best suits you and your personal investing preferences. Your investment preferences may include risk level, tax advantages, and simplicity, among others. For example, some people prefer investing in single-family homes because they like the simplicity and there isn't a lot of management involved. Others prefer commercial real estate, so they have to manage only a few properties and can deal with business owners as tenants instead of dealing with families. Still others prefer to invest in apartment buildings where the loss of a single tenant doesn't make a major impact on the overall cash flow from the investment. And then there are those who prefer to invest in raw land, where there are no tenants at all. So, before you begin investing in real estate, take some time to figure out which type of real estate is best for you based on your personal investing preferences. You are likely to be more successful by doing something you enjoy, and of course, it makes life a lot more fun. The question I get most often from investors just starting out in real estate is how to decide which type of real estate investing is right for them. Again, remember to focus on your personal investment preferences. For a complete list of the personal investment preferences we review with our clients, go to our ProVision School of Wealth strategy at www.provisionwealth.com products. Once you have figured out your personal investment preferences, it's time to figure out which type of real estate investing most closely matches these preferences. This book is a great place to do some initial analysis of the different types of real estate investing. One of the least known and most lucrative real estate investments is known as tax lien investing. Some of the best bargains in real estate are found through these tax liens. At ProVision, we have several clients who have made millions of dollars investing in tax liens. Let me start by giving you a brief explanation of how tax liens work. Then we can discuss whether tax lien investing is right for you, and if it is, which tax lien investment strategy might work best. What's tax lien investing? Tax liens are investments made possible by state law. Governments love to use tax money, but they really don't like being in the tax collection business. And they especially don't like to be bankers. Governments want their money now so they can balance their budgets. So they have a serious challenge when a taxpayer, for whatever reason, decides not to pay his property taxes on a particular parcel of real estate. In fact, sometimes it takes years to collect the taxes from the owner of the property, and sometimes the owner never pays the taxes owed. As much as governments hate being the bank, they hate being property owners even more. What they really want is the cash, and they want it now. So, instead of becoming a creditor of the property owner and waiting for the money until the taxpayer ponies up, many local governments, usually counties, have figured out how to get their money immediately. It's called a tax lien. In the simplest terms, here's what happens. 1. The government assesses taxes on a piece of property, which is called a parcel. In most cases, the owner will simply pay the taxes that are due. 2. But what if the owner of the land decides not to pay the taxes on time? Then what happens? 3. The government puts a lien on the parcel for back taxes. 4. Then the government sells the lien to an investor, such as you or me. The lien is sold at a public auction with an opening bid made up of the amount of back taxes and other costs. 5. If the lien is sold at auction, multiple investors bid on the lien. Although variation exists among tax lien states, there are some general similarities. First, all primary sales must be held in a public auction and ordinary citizens like you and me may take part in the sale. Some states use a process in which the price of the lien is bid up that is, increased, based on competition for the lien. 
In this situation, the price paid for the lien may be bid higher, but the interest rate earned on the tax lien remains fixed and does not fluctuate due to the bidding. Other states use a bid-down system. In this situation, the interest rate earned on a tax lien is bid down by the bidders. The standard interest rate on tax liens varies among states but can be as high as 18%. 6. The lien earns simple interest based on the standard rate or auction final bid rate. 7. The interest accrues, accumulates, until either the taxpayer or another lien holder, such as a bank holding a mortgage, ultimately pays the interest and the back taxes to the investor in order to have the lien on his property removed. 8. After a certain period of time, if the lien is not paid, the investor can foreclose against the property and can end up owning the property outright for only the price of the back taxes and foreclosure legal fees. Summary of a Tax Lien Step 1. Property owner does not pay taxes due on the property. Parcel. Step 2. The government places a lien on the parcel for back taxes. Step 3. The lien is offered for sale at a fixed interest rate or at auction. Step 4. If lien is sold at auction, multiple investors bid on the interest rate of the lien. Step 5. The lien earns simple interest based on the standard or auction rate. Step 6. The interest accrues until the property owner or another lien holder pays the back taxes. Step 7. If the lien is not paid, the investor can foreclose against the property and own the property for the price of the back taxes. The great thing about foreclosing on a tax lien is that a tax lien supersedes nearly all other liens. So, if you are able to foreclose on a tax lien, you get the property for the cost of the unpaid taxes and in the majority of situations, any other liens are wiped out. Pretty cool, huh? Well, at least it can be in the right circumstance, but more about that later. In any case, there are several important steps to investing in a tax lien, and we are going to take them one at a time. Step number one, your tax lien strategy. So, there are two possible outcomes of investing in a tax lien. First, and most likely, is the outcome that you will earn interest at a stated rate that can be as high as 18%. The other possible outcome is that the lien is never paid off, redeemed, and you get the property. These two outcomes are the basis for the two different tax lien investing strategies. While it may seem to be the luck of the draw whether a tax lien is redeemed or not, in fact there are several factors that can give a strong indication of which outcome is likely to occur. Because of this, anyone investing in tax liens should first decide how tax lien investing fits into his investment strategy. Do you want the interest, or is your goal the underlying property? You really must decide what you hope to get out of your tax lien investment up front because this decision will affect everything else you do pertaining to tax lien investing. Why? Primarily because the type of property for which you are willing to buy the lien is going to differ based on the interest rate investment strategy versus the property acquisition investment strategy. The type of property owner will also be a factor, since some property owners are more likely to pay their liens than others. So, let's look at why you would choose one strategy over the other. The Interest Rate Investment Strategy In actuality, interest rate investing and property acquisition investing are almost completely opposite investment strategies. The interest rate investment strategy is a fairly short-term cash flow strategy with little or no possibility for long-term growth. This may be a good place to park some cash at high interest rates while you are waiting to make another investment. Or you may have accumulated a lot of assets and you just want the pure cash flow as mailbox money. 
money you get in the mail with no effort other than the initial investment and a little monitoring. This can also be a good investment strategy for money you have accumulated in a retirement plan, such as a pension plan, 401k or IRA, superannuations or RRSPs for you Australians and Canadians. The interest will be tax-deferred, and there won't be any real tax or leverage benefits to holding an interest rate tax lien outside of a retirement plan. Property Acquisition Investment Strategy A property acquisition investment strategy is completely different from the interest rate investment strategy. Rather than looking for quick cash flow, you are hoping for the opportunity to foreclose and own the underlying property for a long-term investment. This could be part of a long-term landhold strategy or a development strategy for property that you expect to be in a redevelopment zone. While it is possible to do property acquisition investing in a retirement plan, in most countries there are real tax benefits to holding property outside of a retirement plan. It could be, as it is in the United States, that the gain on the sale of the property would be taxed at preferential capital gains rates, or you may be able to do a like-kind exchange and not pay taxes at all. Furthermore, if the underlying property is improved, you could receive depreciation benefits from holding the property. Or you may find yourself with significant equity in the property, and you may want to refinance to take advantage of the leverage opportunities of real estate. These opportunities typically are substantially restricted inside a retirement plan. These and other reasons point to holding this investment outside of your retirement plan in the eventuality that you end up owning the property. Step number two, your tax lien investment criteria. Once you have your strategy in place, you can begin creating your criteria for the tax liens you want to acquire. Let's look at the interest rate investment and property acquisition investment strategies separately. Interest rate investment strategy criteria. When you think about investing criteria, think about what's essential for a specific investment to meet your standards. What rate of return do you want? What level of risk are you willing to assume? In the case of tax liens, how much are you willing to risk that you will end up with the property? How long are you willing to hold the lien until it is eventually redeemed? As with any investing strategy, the clearer your criteria, the easier the investment process. With clear criteria, you can easily eliminate most of the available tax liens and concentrate solely on those that meet your specific needs. A little later on in this chapter, we will look at how to determine whether a particular tax lien meets your criteria. Property Acquisition Investment Strategy Criteria When your goal is to acquire the underlying property, you start looking at your criteria much differently. Here are some of the questions you need to ask yourself. How likely are you to be able to foreclose on the property? What is the likelihood that the owner or another lien holder will pay off the lien before you can foreclose? How many years will you have to wait to foreclose? What are the property taxes that you will have to pay in the future before your foreclosure waiting period is up? And then you have to look at all of the criteria you have for your property investments, including the following. Does your investment strategy call for investing in raw land or improved property? Are you going to develop the underlying property? If improved, what type of improved property is within your focused investment strategy? Is it industrial property, commercial office buildings, multifamily housing, or single-family homes? To be a focused real estate investor, you must be able to focus on a single type of real estate. This is the only way you can become an expert in a particular type of property investing. Once you have this focused strategy in place, you can look at the specific criteria for your tax lien investing. 
What is your criterion for rate of return? Do you want the property to cash flow? And if so, how much cash flow is required? Do you have a particular location of concentration? What about the expected appreciation of the property? What is your maximum holding period for the property? What tax benefits are you expecting from the property? Step number three, evaluating the tax lien investment. With your criteria in place, you can now begin looking at tax liens and evaluating whether they fit within your criteria. Between two weeks and one month before the tax lien auction, the county will release the information on the properties with tax liens that will be available for purchase. Begin your evaluation by determining which of the available tax liens will fit within your investment strategy. Interest Rate Investment Strategy Evaluation Interest rate investors should look for properties that are less likely to be abandoned by the owner. Properties less likely to be abandoned include improved property, owner-occupied property, property with other liens such as a mortgage, property that has a lien because the tax bill was sent to the wrong address. Property Acquisition Investment Strategy Criteria Property acquisition investors should look for liens on properties that are more likely to be allowed to go to foreclosure, including properties that have been abandoned by the owner, properties where the owner has died so the property is in probate or has passed to an estate or trust, property where ownership of the property is free and clear of other liens, property that has several years of unpaid back taxes, property owned by someone living out of state. Once you have narrowed down your investment possibilities to those that fit within your strategy of interest rate investment or property acquisition investment, you need to further focus on which liens you should go after in the bid process. If you are an interest rate investor, you'll want to understand exactly how the interest rate is applied in the state where you are investing. Once you determine this, find liens that are less likely to have multiple bidders or that are located in a state where the interest rate remains fixed at the auction. In a state where the interest rate is bid down at auction, look for properties that are likely to have the tax lien redeemed, but they have some attributes that might scare away other investors. These liens will retain the highest interest rate because they will have the least amount of interest in the bidding process. Look for tax liens with the following attributes. The property is located in a remote area of the state. The property is small or in odd shape. The property has other undesirable features. If you are a property acquisition investor, you'll want to find liens on properties that you want to own. Begin narrowing down the properties by researching only those properties that meet your criteria. For example, suppose you want to invest in raw land, which, by the way, is the most likely property to be available for foreclosure. Suppose also that you want land that is likely to be developed in the near future. In this case, you would want to find liens on property that is near other developed property is in a redevelopment area, is in an area that will likely be developed in the next few years due to the growth patterns of the county, does not have restrictions that could hinder development. A ProVision client purchased a tax lien on a 1.5-acre parcel a few years ago in a bad part of town. Across the street from the property was a lot of industrial junk, but the area was on the verge of being redeveloped. There were 10 years of taxes owed on the property, so the liens were not likely to be redeemed and the client noticed that the owner of the property was an estate. This client purchased the tax lien for the current year and then went back to the other tax lien holders and redeemed all of the other tax liens. The total cost of 10 years of tax liens was $7,000. The client then went to the owner of the property and asked if he wanted the property. 
The estate was willing to deed over the property just to get rid of it and not have the headache of the tax liens or the cost of a foreclosure. Six months after purchasing the tax liens, a developer approached the client about buying the property. The developer wanted to consolidate several parcels of land in the area to do a large commercial development, but he didn't want to deal with the legwork of the tax lien process, so once the liens were all cleared, he approached our client and made an offer of $197,000 for the property. The result? Our client made a profit of $190,000 after owning the property for just six months. Step number four, due diligence. Once you have decided which properties fit within your strategy and your criteria, it's time to do the due diligence on the properties. Due diligence is the process of assessing the risks of both the tax lien and the underlying property. At this point, you should have already assessed the risk of the lien being redeemed, but there are other risks to the lien that you will need to consider. And let's not forget about the underlying property. You need to assess the risks of that as well. Lien Risks Tax lien risks can be separated into two categories, property owner risks and tax lien process risks. Let's go over each one. Property owner risks. The biggest risk with respect to the property owner is a property owner's bankruptcy. If the property owner files bankruptcy, you will not be able to foreclose on the lien until after the bankruptcy is resolved. Of course, bankruptcy courts normally respect property tax liens and give them a high priority when the bankruptcy is resolved. However, in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, the bankruptcy trustee could have the tax lien subordinated to administrative expenses. In this case, the tax lien holder could become an unsecured creditor and wind up with little or nothing. Luckily, there are steps you can take to guard against this. A very small percentage of properties may have mortgages held by a bank now administered by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC. When a bank fails due to insolvency, that is, not enough money, any loans owed to the bank are administered by the FDIC. If a loan administered by the FDIC is attached to a property on your list, it could mean delays during the foreclosure. The good news is that it is easy to check for FDIC-held loans. With a few simple steps, the risk of a delayed foreclosure due to an FDIC-administered lien is quite remote and easily avoidable. Another risk is that the owner is in the military. It's very difficult to foreclose on an active member of the military. Another difficult owner to deal with is an owner who lives in a foreign country. In this case, the difficulty lies with finding the owner and serving him or her with the foreclosure papers. Yet another risk is that a minor or a mentally disabled person owns the property. This could cause delays in the foreclosure process and additional litigation costs. Finally, there is the off chance that the lien is on government-owned property. Since the government is normally exempt from property tax, once the lien is corrected, the investor will likely receive his or her investment back, but may not receive any interest. Good research will prevent this and other owner problems because you can easily determine the owner of the property and avoid buying the lien. Researching the owner is not as difficult as it may sound. The owner of the property is public information that is typically available at the county assessor's office. You can then go to the county recorder, county treasurer, and bankruptcy court to find out additional information about the owner, including other liens he may have outstanding and whether he has filed bankruptcy. A quick search on the Internet about the owner may also turn up helpful information. Lien Risks, Property Owner Risk Risk 1. 
Property owner files bankruptcy. Risk 2. Property owned by an active member of the military. Risk 3. Property owned by someone who lives out of the country. Risk 4. Property owned by a minor. Risk 5. Property owned by a mentally disabled person. Risk 6. Property owned by the government. Real Life Story. Research Paid Off. While owning property can be a risk, it can also be a great opportunity. My client, Ellen, acquired a tax lien a few years ago that was owned by a hotel chain. In her research, Ellen discovered that the hotel chain had changed its strategy and no longer was interested in the community where this property was located. So she purchased that tax lien for $7,000. Less than three years later, Ellen sold the property for $360,000. In this case, the property owner's intentions almost assured Ellen of a great investment, so her research about the property owner really paid off. Tax Lien Process Risks Several risks can arise due to the lien itself. These are risks that typically involve litigation costs or delays in the foreclosure process that increase the cost of ownership. They can arise because of disputes over property ownership, disposition of other liens, and getting clear title to the property after foreclosure. In addition, there is the risk of too much success. How is that? What if you successfully acquire a property that needs a lot of fixing up? Are you prepared to invest the additional money required to get the work done? And will it be in your best interest? The key to minimizing these risks is evaluating the potential of the property, quantifying the potential additional costs of litigation or improvements, and determining whether the tax lien meets your criteria, including the possible additional costs to complete the foreclosure process. Real Life Story More Due Diligence Was Due Andy purchased tax liens against all of the condominium units of an apartment building. During his due diligence research, Andy had learned that the out-of-state owner was no longer interested in the property. Andy foreclosed on the property only to find out that it needed $300,000 of repairs to a building that was worth only $200,000. More due diligence would have saved Andy from this disaster. Lean Risks, Tax Lean Process Risk Risk 1. Litigation Costs Risk 2. Disputes of Ownership Risk 3. Disposition of other liens. Property risks. Once you have evaluated the tax lien risks and have concluded that there are a number of liens that meet your criteria, you can then evaluate the underlying property. Some of the risks to evaluate are as follows. Environmental risks. Perhaps the biggest risk in any property investment is that there is an environmental hazard that will be expensive to clean up. Reviewing the history of the property and contacting the EPA and State Department of Environmental Quality about possible environmental problems is essential in any property investment, but particularly in a tax lien investment. An environmental problem could be the very reason that the owner has not paid the taxes. Value of the property The most obvious risk, of course, is that the property will not be worth the cost to buy the lien and other tax liens, both previous and subsequent to your lien. Include in your analysis the administrative costs of foreclosing on the property and getting clear title to the property. Step number five, forming your team, the real key to real estate investing. At this point, you may be thinking that all of this is just too much work. As I was writing this, I had the same initial reaction. But remember that you don't have to do all of the work yourself. 
In fact, we like to say at ProVision that the three most expensive words in the English language are do-it-yourself. While some of you will enjoy the research and the details, others will be content with a little lower return and a lot less work. The answer to this is to build a tax lien team. You can reap the rewards of tax lien investing without doing all of the legwork yourself. Rather, hire others to do the work for you. You already have determined the criteria for your tax lien investing, and you know the risks associated with tax liens that you are going to have to consider with every tax lien investment. You just don't want to spend all of the time and effort on the details of going through the various liens and the properties all by yourself. Remember that there are lots of people who are looking for employment and are very competent at research and details. I know this. I hire these people myself, both for my accounting firm and for my real estate investing. If you have clear criteria and create good procedures to follow for doing the due diligence, you can turn it over to someone else to do. I suggest you pay these people primarily based on results, but you can also pay them a small hourly wage. I like to give my team members large bonuses for success. Let's take, for example, the tax lien that my friend Jim acquired several years ago. Jim found a property with 12 years of taxes owed. The property consisted of 80 acres of raw land located in a floodplain near a power plant. Most people would pass this property by, but Jim noticed that the property was not far from developed property and was zoned for industrial use. Industrial zoning usually means that just about any buyer could use the property. It's normally fairly easy to rezone industrial property to a more conservative use of the property, such as commercial or residential. After doing all of his due diligence, Jim acquired the current year tax lien and then went to each of the prior lien holders and acquired their liens as well. Because he now owned all of the old tax liens, he could foreclose immediately. The total of the tax liens was $40,000. That's $500 per acre for property that was close to developed property. A few years after buying the property, a solar energy company came to Jim and asked to purchase the property. Jim negotiated a price of $9,500 per acre for a total sales price of $760,000, a profit of $720,000. The due diligence and research into this tax lien took Jim a lot of time and effort, which he was happy to do. But suppose he didn't want to do the work himself. What if he had hired someone to do the research for him? He might have paid this person $10 to $12 per hour, plus a bonus when the property sold. Suppose he offered a 10% bonus on the increase in value from the total cost of investment. The researcher would have received a bonus of $72,000. Knowing that this type of bonus was possible, you can bet that the researcher would have been very diligent in his or her research and would have made sure to find only the best properties. Some of you are thinking, wow, what a high price to pay for research. But think how many properties you could find if you had multiple researchers doing the work for you and it really costs you very little. You have a small out-of-pocket cost for the initial wages, but you have no risk for more than that. Yes, you give up 10% of the profit, but that's a small price to pay for 90% of the profit that you didn't have to work for. Now let me tell you the rest of the story of this property. When Jim sold it, he did a tax-free exchange for a sale leaseback on a fast-food restaurant location. This property came with a 20-year lease with options for an additional 20 years. It is paying Jim $4,300 per month of lease income. 
In addition, Jim had $80,000 left over from the sale that he put into another piece of land, all because he found the right tax lien on the right piece of property. Just think, if Jim had not had to do all of the work himself, how many more tax liens he could have found, and how much more property he could have acquired. What other team members do you need? Here is a list of possible positions. 1. Real estate appraiser to determine the value of the underlying real estate. 2. Real estate banker, mortgage broker, so you can refinance the real estate once you acquire it. 3. Real estate attorney to assist with foreclosure proceedings and other legal matters throughout the lien process. 4. Tax lien auction bidder. If you don't want to handle the auctions yourself, in most instances you can outsource so long as you provide proper guidance to the bidder. 5. Bookkeeper. You will need to keep good track of the properties you acquire and the costs to acquire each property for tax and investment analysis purposes. 6. Property Manager if you plan to acquire improved property. 7. Real Estate Broker to handle the sale of your acquired real estate. 8. Banker to handle financial transactions. 9. CPA to assist with the tax aspects of tax lien investing in property transactions, including like-kind exchanges of acquired property for desired property. 10. Foreclosure assistant to follow through on all of the details of foreclosing on tax liens and obtaining clear title. 11. Wealth coach and mentor to help you create your tax lien investment strategy and to keep your investment moving. Step number six, setting up tax lien investment systems. Like any good investment strategy, tax lien investing should be set up as a business. This includes setting up your team in step number five and determining a good strategy. It also includes setting up the systems to make your investing efficient and effective. In order to maximize your investing while minimizing your time and your risk, consider setting up the following systems. Due diligence system. This will include a due diligence checklist, a list of your investment criteria, and reports from your due diligence team members to let you know their progress and so they can ask you questions. Investment Reporting System This will include reports monitoring the progress of the tax lien investing, as well as reports indicating the returns on your investments. There are some good software packages available to track and monitor your tax lien investments, including rate of return and deadlines. Auction System. This includes policies and procedures for your auction bidder to follow when attending tax lien auctions. Foreclosure Procedures. Make a complete list of the steps for your foreclosure assistant to follow in beginning, handling, and completing the foreclosure process and obtaining clear title to the property. Sales Procedures for Real Estate. Make a complete list of steps for your real estate broker to take in order to market and sell or exchange your properties. Now you know about tax lien investing, which is a lucrative way to participate in real estate, and you have the strategies, steps, and checklists you need to begin exploring it if you so choose. As I mentioned in the beginning of this chapter, whichever real estate investing opportunity you choose, it should be one that meets your objectives and one you really enjoy. That one factor alone will increase your chances for success considerably. Steps for Tax Lien Strategy Step 1. Determine your tax lien strategy. Strategy A, interest rate investment. Strategy B, property acquisition investment. Step 2, identify your tax lien investment criteria. Step 3, evaluate the tax lien investment. Step 4, 
Complete your due diligence. Step 5. Form your tax lien team. Step 6. Set up your tax lien investment system. Author's Note I would like to thank Mark Manoil Esquire for his assistance with this chapter. Mark is the foremost authority in Arizona for tax lien investing, and his book, Arizona Property Tax Liens, was the source of much of the technical information included in this chapter. Mark was also gracious enough to spend some of his valuable time giving me his personal insights into tax lien investing. I would also like to thank Darius Barazande, Esquire, for his assistance with the state variations and subtle nuances of tax lien investing. Darius is an expert in the field of tax lien investing, and his training, Attorney Secrets to Investing in Tax Liens, covers the subtle yet vital variations among states for those wanting to use a multi-state investing strategy. Ways to learn more. Please go to www.provisionwealth.com products for more information regarding the wealth strategy information contained in this chapter. For more than 25 years, Tom Wheelwright has strategically developed innovative tax, business, and wealth strategies for sophisticated investors and business owners across the United States and around the world, resulting in millions of dollars in profits. His goal is to teach people how to create a strategic and proactive approach to wealth that creates lasting success. As the founder of ProVision, Tom is the innovator of proactive consulting services for ProVision's premium clientele, who on average pay a lot less in taxes and earn much more on their investments. He coaches select clients on their wealth, business, and tax strategies, lectures on wealth and tax strategies around the world, and is an adjunct professor at Arizona State University. Wayne Palmer Chapter 22. Horse Trading. The Original Way to Wealth on the Great American Frontier. Some of the happiest days of my life have been spent sitting with Wayne Palmer in real estate exchange meetings. In the span of just two or three days, a group of real estate exchangers share information on several hundred investments and exchanges get made. These meetings are perfect opportunities for Wayne to use his innate sense of creativity and his ability to see the opportunities that most people miss. That's what makes him a master of this forum. Wayne's ability to confidently navigate the waters of a real estate exchange meeting is nothing short of genius. For me, exchange meetings are as close to poetry in motion as you can get as an investor. Wayne introduced me to real estate exchange meetings, and they make me feel like I'm a starving man at a Chinese buffet. It's a rush being invited into these groups where the sheer power of deal-making creativity flows hour after hour. As a person who is sick and tired of hearing ordinary people say, I can't afford it, or I don't have any money, sitting in these exchange meetings is a breath of fresh air. They are an escape from the self-imposed financially and creatively handicapped. Here people are making deals happen with little or no money, and they are doing it all day long. Sitting in a real estate exchange meeting with Wayne is far more exciting than playing cards or rolling the dice in Las Vegas. It's the thrill of the hunt, the challenge of creativity, and the drive of winning all rolled up into one. Whenever I am at a dead end, brain dead, and in need of a shot of creativity, Wayne is the first person I call. 
I can count on him to help me see a deal or a situation in a completely different way. And he doesn't just tell me what I want to hear. When I call Wayne, I know I will always get honest feedback. He'll tell me if the deal I'm looking at stinks, and he'll show me ways to creatively, while legally, ethically, and morally, make a good deal into a great one. Wayne is a great friend and teacher to me. In this chapter, Wayne will teach you some of what he has taught me. This chapter about exchanges will open your eyes. Robert Kiyosaki When I was a small boy, my father had a metal sign planted on the side of the road at the edge of our farmyard that read, Hay, Horses, Sell or Trade, Val Palmer, 254-4768. Dad's story is a classic tale of the American entrepreneur. He grew up on my grandpa's farm during the Great Depression. When he was a young man, the farm wasn't profitable enough to support more than one family, so he was obliged to leave the farm to find work. This bothered Dad because he loved the farm, and he especially loved livestock. His dream was to have a place of his own, where he could make a living working with his animals, without having to sell his time to someone else for money. When I was a baby, Dad moved our family to California so that he could search for work. He got a job driving a building materials delivery truck for Chambers Hardware in Orange County. At that time, the economy was much better in California than it was in Utah. In the space of two or three years, Dad was able to pay off all of his own debts as well as the remaining debt on Grandpa's farm. Being debt-free was his ticket out of California and back to the rural environment of his youth. Back in Utah, Dad took a job driving a garbage truck for Salt Lake County. He despised working for someone else. He was independent by nature and wanted to be his own man. However, he had a plan and realized that he couldn't work for himself without a grub stake to get started. While on the garbage truck, Dad and his crew worked extra hard to complete their route by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. In Dad's book, that left the other half of the day available to pursue his own business. To eliminate rent or mortgage payments, he moved a home from a neighboring town onto the corner of Grandpa's farm. From the day we moved into that house, it was paid for. Without any debt of any kind, Dad started using his excess income to purchase assets, just as Rich Dad teaches. In my dad's world, animals were assets because he could buy them for one price and sell or trade them for a higher price. Farm commodities such as hay and grain were also assets. They generated cash flow. He bought hay from local farmers at bulk prices and sold it to horse enthusiasts priced by the bale. He delivered it using his 1956 Ford pickup truck that had a flat wagon hitched behind. He would buy horses from individuals, clean them up, work with them to make them better behaved, and then resell them at a premium to those who could afford the classier animals. While doing all of this, he also rented land next to our home on the neighboring farm and planted potatoes. He had a harvest one year of spuds so spectacular that the entire crop was contracted by the Country Club Potato Chip Factory. In each of these transactions, Dad made a modest profit and added it to his business capital. Each small deal brought him closer to getting out of the rat race. After three years of driving the garbage truck and running his own business part-time, Dad quit his job at the county and bought his own Red Ford semi-rig with a 32-foot flatbed trailer. He finally had his own full-time trucking business that would be big enough to support his family. He moved from the E-quadrant to the S-quadrant within the Rich Dad cash flow quadrants. It took me years to understand the power of what Dad had done. If someone had cash to buy hay or horses, he would accept their cash. 
However, it eventually became clear to me that Dad understood something that perhaps most businessmen today don't, which is if entrepreneurs are willing to accept items other than cash for their stock in trade, they can often dramatically increase the volume and profitability of the business they do. My dad was a gifted horse trader. Dad traded hay for horses and cattle for hay. He traded his trucking services for animals, and he even traded livestock with old-school grocers and shop owners for food and clothing. When we remodeled the house, Dad traded hay and livestock for materials, labor, cabinets, and the skills of various tradesmen. Why didn't I see it sooner? After all, barter was the way business was conducted before modern money was introduced. It had always worked, and come to think of it, I suppose it always will. I probably didn't see it because I was in the real estate business, not the agricultural business. As the economy faltered in the early 1980s, interest rates soared and the cash purchase of real estate slowed to a crawl. I started hearing about a little-known sector of the 1031 exchange industry known as exchanging or equity marketing. Either term may be used to describe this industry niche. While the technical aspects of exchanging under the rules of Internal Revenue Code Section 1031 are adeptly covered elsewhere in this book by Gary Gorman, listen to Chapter 17, what I include here will open up an entirely new world of wealth-building possibilities for anyone who taps into this information and qualifies himself or herself to play in this arena. Here's how to do it. Equity marketing is an alternative way of practicing real estate investment that rejects the idea that cash is necessary to complete a real estate transaction. Instead, the focus is placed on the equity value of each party's property and on exchanging those equities to achieve greater benefits for all. In a traditional buy-sell transaction, the emphasis is on how much cash the seller can receive and how little the buyer can pay. This puts buyer and seller at odds with each other, competing for the same dollars. If Dad had waited for every farmer to sell a horse before the farmer could pay for hay to feed his cows, you can begin to see it would have taken my father much longer to win his independence. Trading the hay for the horse accelerated the process. Real estate professionals who practice equity marketing are called equity marketers or exchangers. In the exchange industry and throughout this chapter, those terms are used interchangeably. Exchangers hold regular meetings where they gather together to explore ways that they and their properties can be matched with other owners and properties in profitable exchanges. These meetings are hotbeds of opportunity. They constitute one of the most vibrant and effective marketing forums in the real estate industry. Tip. Perhaps most importantly, because equity marketing doesn't rely on cash, it continues to thrive, even during downturns in the real estate industry at large. Exchangers are often able to continue building wealth while those in other factions of the industry stagnate during tough times. How important is that advantage over a lifetime of investing? Exchanging can make a world of difference in one's net worth over a period of years and protect an investor from the losses that often take place during a down cycle. In October of 2005, Robert Kiyosaki was invited to be the keynote speaker at an equity marketing meeting sponsored by the National Council of Exchangers, NCE, which was held at the historic Brown Palace Hotel in Denver, Colorado. After a few minutes in the room and seeing a flurry of offers made on properties that were presented for exchange, Robert turned to me with boyish enthusiasm and said, This is my cash flow game in real life. Wow! I had never thought of it that way, and to my surprise and delight, I realized he was right. I could instantly see the correlation. 
The venues where the meetings are held might be compared to cash flow game boards. The bylaws of the organization and its codes of conduct are the rules by which the game is played. The book of opportunities that is published for each exchange meeting is full of one-page property data sheets that contain essentially the same information found on cash flow game cards. Some are small deal cards and some are large deal cards. There are properties, lease rights, water rights, timber, and even an occasional business opportunity. Some are high-risk deals and some are relatively low-risk deals. Just as the cash flow game sets the context for teaching the rich dad education system, the equity marketing arena provides a context that allows people to learn and play the exchange game with others for real. And like the rich dad company, NCE and other national exchange groups such as the Society of Exchange Counselors (SCC) foster a commitment to lifelong learning for their members. Tip Exchange organizations teach real people in real life how to get out of the rat race using real estate as the primary vehicle. As a boy, I went to livestock auctions with my dad, where we sold some of our animals from time to time. Now I go to exchange meetings to trade properties. For the average person, equity marketing may be the most powerful tool there is for building wealth in real estate in any economy. Robert quickly sized up equity marketing as an important addition to the rich dad real estate system. In subsequent meetings, he expressed his deep desire that his students not only learn about money but also be made aware of avenues for putting their knowledge to work in acquiring real wealth. His vision is not only to provide quality financial education but to point the students to real-world tracks they can run on to become wealthy. Robert and I have since teamed up around that vision to share the concept of equity marketing with the rich dad community. The results have been rewarding. Kiyosaki students, already armed with the rich dad philosophy, have used equity marketing tools and formulas to reposition their assets, increase their cash flow, grow their net worth, streamline management commitments, and reduce their taxes, to name but a few of the benefits they have realized. Twelve-year-old John Paul, one example of successful equity marketing involved a boy from Texas. Robert asked me if I would consider mentoring then twelve-year-old John Paul Pigeon. John Paul started reading the Rich Dad books at the age of seven and had devoured the entire Rich Dad library before his twelfth birthday. Following the Rich Dad cash flow pattern, he had started two businesses, had written a book, and had produced a music CD prior to our meeting. He had a goal to own his first property before he turned thirteen. I flew to Dallas, Fort Worth, to meet John Paul and his family. The love and respect shared in the Pigeon home is impressive beyond words. The emphasis they place on education and the way they work together as a family to secure their financial future is inspiring. I noted John Paul's single-minded desire to learn only what actually works in the real world. Even at age twelve, he displayed little patience for empty theory. I was also astonished that the mind of a mere boy could so quickly grasp concepts and retain vocabulary that certain adults sometimes struggle to understand. He had already attained an aptitude and a passion for learning. Two life skills for anyone who wants to excel financially. It was clear to me that exceptional parenting had produced an extraordinary young man who could indeed be coached in business, even as a preteen. I had dinner with the Pigeon family along with my friend and partner John Spinola, a former president of the NCE. As you might guess, John Paul took to our wealth building and exchange formulas like a duck takes to water. His mother was newly licensed in real estate, so we introduced Mrs. Pigeon to equity marketing. 
Within a year, 13-year-old John Paul had realized his goal, acquiring a minority interest for his family in an RV park valued at nearly $1 million, using only his mother's commissions as a down payment. He had taken his first step toward real estate wealth thanks to the combined power of the Rich Dad System, the Equity Marketing Forum, and remarkable parents. Cooperation Replaces Competition in an equity marketing transaction, the buyer and seller cooperatively seek to exchange more than the deed to a property. They exchange a package of benefits that results in a much more profitable transaction for all parties. For example, the added benefits of an equity marketing exchange may include enhanced tax treatment, reduced management duties, lesser or greater leverage, debt, a better location for both parties, a more favorable property type, or a bigger opportunity for profit based on the particular talents of each investor. Equity marketing identifies what unique needs and capabilities each party has and engineers ways of matching them to amplify the benefits of the exchange all around. It is synergy at its finest, a true win-win. Turning Lemons into Lemonade One of the most powerful forms of leverage I have accessed through equity marketing is the ability to exchange as a way of solving problems in my portfolio. For example, as a lender, I made a loan against a four-acre horse property. The borrower went into default, and I eventually had to file foreclosure. My loan was junior to the first mortgage, which was also in foreclosure. That meant that I had to assume the first mortgage to protect my position in the property. I wrote a check to the first mortgage holder to satisfy their demands and foreclosed on the borrower. I became the new owner of the property through foreclosure. Following foreclosure, I discovered that the borrowers had left the home in poor condition. It was going to require significant work and expense on my part if I hoped to get the full value upon sale. I was holding what, for me, was a bitter lemon. Before undertaking the rehab, I presented the home for exchange, priced at $225,000 and in as-is condition, at a local equity marketing meeting. That was a price I wasn't confident I could soon command in the buy-sell market, even after fix-up. A gentleman in attendance at the meeting said that he thought his daughter and son-in-law might be interested in the property. He offered to trade me two lots as a down payment on the home. The first parcel was a luxury view lot located 50 miles north of my home in an older but stable subdivision of good values. The problem was it was so steep that we referred to it as the billy goat lot since nothing but mountain goats could climb the embankment to the street. It required some special engineering to make the lot usable. Having had experience in construction, I wasn't nervous about the geology of the parcel, but the seller was. I was more nervous about an empty horse property on which I was servicing a $150,000 mortgage. My vacancy didn't bother him because his daughter was willing to occupy the property. The second lot was zoned for a duplex and was close to home, but the subdivision in which it was located was non-conforming. That means that the county of jurisdiction had never fully approved the subdivision, so no building permit could be issued for any structure on the lot. Consequently, unless the county's regulations could be satisfied, the lot was of little commercial value. It seemed to me that the problem was resolvable, given the investment of some time and perhaps some engineering work, which was necessary to prove to the county that the boundaries, placement of utilities, and drainage were all conforming to county standards. I also felt more comfortable with the duplex lot than with the empty house. 
We structured a transaction wherein he traded the two lots to me for a combined value of $75,000, and his son-in-law secured a new mortgage for $150,000, meeting my asking price of $225,000 on the foreclosed home. The exchange became the sugar that turned my lemon into lemonade. Not long after we closed, I was approached by a young couple about buying the duplex lot. The husband worked in the county planning and zoning department and had an inside track to secure the needed variances. After the lot was approved for a building permit, the couple paid me $50,000 cash for it. I eventually sold the billy goat lot for $70,000. Consequently, by using an exchange, I was able to get $120,000 for the equity in the foreclosed home that probably wasn't immediately worth $75,000 in a cash sale. More sugar, more sweet-tasting lemonade. Benefits are more important than price. It is not uncommon to realize more than the cash-asking price in an exchange because equity marketing focuses on more than price. Remember, it focuses on structuring benefits for both parties. Under the equity marketing system, an owner's equity rather than cash becomes her stock in trade. An exchange or tallies how much equity an owner has and lists the benefits a new owner could derive from that equity position. Then, potential transactions are explored that might allow the owner to increase her equity while improving the benefits she receives from it. The benefits become so valuable that there is little motivation on anyone's part to haggle over price. In the previous example, the other party's lots provided me with the benefit of an immediate upside potential in value if I could overcome certain conditions, namely the topography of one lot and the zoning status of the other. Although these conditions were a detriment to the existing owner, they were a benefit to me because I had the experience to solve the problems. My property provided added benefits to the other gentleman as well. He found a home for his daughter, and he consolidated equity in lots he no longer wanted into a single property that could provide shelter for his grandkids while the property appreciated through upkeep and market forces. Neither one of us had to go through the hassle of marketing the properties in the traditional fashion. Rather, we were able to close quickly and move on. The benefits we both received were over and above the mere asking prices of our respective properties. True synergy was created in the transaction because we both solved immediate problems and set ourselves up for greater gains in the future. I made at least an extra $45,000 by concentrating on the benefits rather than a cash price. By working this combination of equity and benefits within the framework of the equity marketing arena, you can amplify multiple forms of leverage for all parties. Notice in the foregoing example how I was able to leverage my experience in construction and the process of getting zoning entitlements to increase the value of the lots. The other owner leveraged his daughter's need for a home and his son-in-law's credit to consolidate his equity in one property that they could fix up and make more valuable. For both parties to the exchange, the equity became fluid or liquid without first converting it to cash. This is a very important distinction. Equity marketing allows us to spend our equity to acquire a new property without first changing it to cash. The equity in each property is liquefied through the power of thought, ideas, talents, knowledge, agreements, networking, and formulas that when knitted together create a synergistic, bigger than before, win-win for all parties. Tip. Equity marketing allows us to spend our equity to acquire a new property without first changing it to cash. In other words, when we exchange equities, as opposed to engaging in a mere cash sale, 
my equity and the new benefits that my property offers you, plus your equity and the new benefits that your property offers me, equal much more for both of us than the standalone equities ever could. And it is all accomplished without first having to find the cash to do the deal. Imagine the advantage this gives you during times of tight credit or rising interest rates that undermine traditional financing. Equity marketing equals the fast track. If we again liken equity marketing to the cash flow game, you'll find it can be your path to the so-called fast track, which is exactly what I believe Robert saw in his first exchange meeting. In the exchange forum, just like on the fast track in the cash flow game, you are able to move forward faster, earn more, and experience a synergistic multiplying effect. Everything suddenly becomes more fluid. Consider the benefits to the two parties in the following story of another exchange transaction. My friend, Maji Bird, who is nationally revered as an exceptional instructor on equity marketing techniques, had some clients who had outgrown their home. Mom, Dad, three kids, a dog, and a cat had overrun both the house and the small yard. They needed something bigger, but didn't feel they could afford a larger house payment. They also owned a piece of recreational land in a distant community that they hadn't seen in 17 years. Maji suggested they consider trading their existing house and the land for a bigger home. They found a large two-story home on three acres that was perfect for the family. The owner of the home was an elderly widower who had recently undergone hip surgery. He could no longer tolerate stairs, and being alone, he didn't need the extra space. The big yard was a burden on him as well. He desperately needed a smaller, single-story dwelling. Maji and her clients made an offer to the old gentleman to trade the family's modest one-story house plus the recreational lot in a straight-across exchange for the larger home. He accepted their offer. The price of his home equaled that of the smaller home and the lot combined. Each party moved into a home that was better suited for their current needs at essentially the same payment they had each been paying. The exchange was made solely on the basis of the non-monetary benefits. The family got a roomier home and a bigger yard without going deeper into debt. They also activated the equity in a lot that had cost them money for years in property taxes. The elderly man moved into the smaller, more comfortable home that was safer for him and much easier to manage. He also received an extra lot in the process that required no upkeep, unlike the big yard he left behind. The extra lot gave him an option to either sell it to augment his income or keep it and leave it to his heirs at his passing. Tip. Benefits. It's the benefits in an exchange that are often more important than the price of the property. Jim Keller, a 50-year veteran of the exchange business, one of my personal mentors and a man for whom I have profound respect, tells the following story about completing an exchange for one of his clients strictly based on benefits. A couple owned a large home in Incline Village at Lake Tahoe. The couple divorced and both moved down the mountain to Reno, Nevada. The home was empty, and the ex-husband was writing checks totaling $8,000 a month in mortgage payments, taxes, upkeep, and management fees. As his broker, Jim Keller brought the man an offer to trade his equity in the home for 52 timeshares in Padre Island, Texas. Jim's client replied, I don't want that. Jim quickly responded by saying, Yes, you do, and let me explain why. Putting his problem into monetary terms, Jim pointed out the reality of a $96,000 per year negative cash flow on the home at Incline. The maintenance fees on the timeshares, by contrast, were only $14,000 a year. 
The client immediately saw the benefit of reducing his overhead by $82,000 a year on a home he didn't need or want. The exchange closed. The subsequent owner tore down the house to build a new home on the prime Tahoe lot. Jim's client was almost $7,000 a month better off. What was more important to the client, the price of the vacant home or the benefit of saving $7,000 a month? Two-way, three-way, or multi-leg exchanges. All of the examples used so far are of two-way exchanges. That is to say that one party traded their property straight across for another property. While this is the simplest of exchanges, it presents the added challenge of having to find someone who wants your property and also has what you want. As you may imagine, that kind of match made in heaven does not always come easily. Included in the format of exchange meetings are one or more methods for discovering who wants what and how those pairs can be connected to form three-way or multi-leg exchanges. Here is an illustration of an actual transaction that closed recently between the members of the Salt Lake City, Utah Exchange Group. Mr. Blomquist was 73 years old and lived in a multi-story house. He had a degenerative spinal condition that made it increasingly more difficult for him to walk, climb stairs, and maintain normal mobility. Not long ago, he lost his balance and tumbled from the top of a flight of stairs to the bottom. Thankfully, he incurred no serious injury but was shaken by the experience. He realized some changes had to be made. He and Mrs. Blomquist purchased a ranch-style home around the corner. They then had two homes and two house payments. They moved into the new home and put the other home on the market without results. Mr. Blomquist came to the local exchange meeting and offered the multi-story home for trade. Mrs. Roosh was attending the meeting and offered to trade two condos and $20,000 in barter credits for the home. Mr. Blomquist didn't want her condos, so no two-way exchange was possible. At the same meeting, Mr. Welch presented a parcel of commercial land for trade located in a rural area and approved for the construction of storage units. Mr. Blomquist was interested in the land, but Mr. Welch did not want Mr. Blomquist's home. However, Mr. Welch was interested in trading his land for Mrs. Roosh's condos and barter credits. Finally, everyone found something they wanted and someone who wanted what they offered. Here is how the three-way exchange was structured. Mr. B's house. Value, $310,000. Debt, minus $210,000. Equity, $100,000. Mrs. R's condos. Value, $160,000. Debt, minus $80,000. Barter, plus $20,000. Equity, $100,000. Mr. C's and Mr. W's land. Value, $100,000. Debt, $0. Equity, $100,000. Mr. Blomquist took the commercial land, Mr. Welch took the condos with the barter credits, and Mrs. Roosh got Mr. Blomquist's house. Remember, we said exchanging focuses on equity, not on price or cash. Notice that the equities were all traded in balance at $100,000 each. Also notice that Mrs. Roosh had only $80,000 equity in her condos, so she had to add something of value to balance. She could have added cash, or she might have added a promissory note payable to Mr. Welch to make up the difference. However, she offered barter credits, which can be spent within the barter company system for various goods and services from other merchants who accept those credits. The $20,000 in credits, together with the $80,000 in equity, gave Mrs. Roosh the $100,000 she needed to balance her part of the exchange. 
Now let's consider the benefits each received over and above the $100,000 in equity. Mr. Blomquist got rid of the extra house he no longer needed. He reduced his debt by $210,000 and his monthly outgo by approximately $1,650. He moved his equity in the house that wasn't likely to appreciate much over the next year or so into a development property that he could improve to rapidly increase his equity. He had no capital gains tax due on the transaction because the home he traded was his primary residence for at least two of the prior five years. Mrs. Roosh got rid of her condos that were far away from her home in exchange for a larger, nicer property closer to home. While she took on more debt, she had someone to lease the home with an option to purchase within two years. She got ease of management, less travel, a larger basis that increased her tax shelter, and the possibility of a sale in two years that would liquefy her equity once again, allowing her to move forward and make another profit. She paid no capital gains tax on the sale because the transaction qualified as an exchange under IRS Code Section 1031. Mr. Welch disposed of the land he had been sitting on. He no longer has the negative cash flow associated with paying the property taxes. He has two condos that are rented for a positive cash flow. He also has an increase in basis of $80,000 that he can begin to depreciate, thereby providing him with tax shelter that he didn't have in the land. He also paid no capital gains tax on the sale because the transaction qualified as an exchange under IRS Code Section 1031. Are you beginning to see that the benefits of the exchange are often more important than price and cash? As Rich Dad often says, cash is trash. While we all like some cash on hand, holding it as the primary motivation when building a real estate portfolio can be much too costly. It is more lucrative to exchange for a valuable package of benefits. Exchanging benefits grows wealth faster than accumulating cash ever could in the same transactions. You see, trading causes the same acceleration in real estate as it did for my dad when he swapped livestock and commodities, rather than the slower method of waiting for the cash to come along. That is one of the valuable lessons I eventually learned from life on the farm. Other Advantages of Exchange Groups Relationships As is the case in so many other arenas in life, it is, in my opinion, the people I have met at the exchange groups who make up the most valuable element of exchanging. I consider it a privilege to associate with a group of several hundred people from all across America who, on the whole, live by a code of conduct that is refreshing in a financial world that is frequently rocked by greed and corruption. I can say with some authority that my experience of exchangers has been that they are smart, honest, reliable, and dedicated to the respectable practice of their trade. I have found a few exceptions to that rule, but that is to be expected, I suppose, inasmuch as we are still dealing with human beings. Tapping into such a network of reliable professionals is one of the unspoken advantages of affiliation with organizations such as NCE and SEC. It drastically increases my potential field of operations. I am comfortable investing outside of my own area as long as I have exchange friends there. Their presence allows me to contain the risk that would normally be incurred by venturing too far from home. I can call someone in every state in the Union in almost any community of any size and get up-to-the-minute information on what is happening in that area. Such a network allows me to become mobile with my equity. I can enter almost any economy with the confidence that I am making sound decisions based on local experience and involvement, and they can do the same in my town. 
More and more, regional markets behave independently of each other based on employment trends, government policies, local economies, energy, and even weather. Instead of having to wait out a downturn in my own market until things improve, effectively sitting on the sidelines of the game until an upturn, I can exchange my equity from town to town, state to state, and take advantage of opportunities in micro-markets. I can invest in oil states when energy is hot, agricultural areas when farming is good, and housing when there is localized demand. My network of exchanger friends empowers me to capitalize on employment trends and to anticipate growth in multiple markets with the steely confidence that comes from having reliable allies with boots on the ground in the area. As I said, the people I have grown to love and respect and with whom I now do business through various exchange organizations comprise the biggest benefit of being an exchangeor. I am honored to number such marvelous people as my friends and associates. I am a wealthy man, if only by virtue of those associations. Because exchanging is what originally brought me into a relationship with Robert and Kim Kiyosaki, I include the entire Rich Dad family when I count my blessings of these priceless friendships. The Brilliant Brain Trust In all of my life's experience, I have never seen a more potent bunch of brains gathered in one location than I inevitably see at exchange meetings as pertaining to real estate. One of the activities normally included in a meeting of exchangeors is a problem-solving or brainstorming session. The group intentionally looks for the most difficult problem, the nastiest, most tangled situation that presently exists among the attendees. For an hour or so, a discussion ensues wherein anyone who has an idea takes a turn at the microphone and offers their experience and possible solutions to the dilemma. The level of creativity and the depth of experience that exude from some of the minds gathered there is nothing short of astonishing. I truly cannot put a price tag on the value of having such a brain trust to turn to with difficult situations. Perhaps even more surprising is the fact that no one in that circle ever asks for anything in return for a brilliant idea. Anything anyone can do is offered freely, as part of the camaraderie of the club, as it were. Win-win. Unlike traditional real estate sales where competition for listings and buyers is brisk and often brutal, exchangers operate from a win-win mentality. Everyone is welcome to participate because the more people and the more properties present in the circle, the more potential transactions exist. Everyone who comes to an exchange meeting for the first time is assigned a mentor to make sure they get off to a good start. It is an environment where everybody supports everybody else. It is common to see arms around the shoulder of the new guy and to hear words of wise instruction and encouragement. Exchangers are a family, so to speak, and take good care of their own. Sponsoring, mentoring, and championing the new person is a way of life with exchangers. This concern for others is perhaps no more apparent than in the many charities that have been spawned by exchange groups. There are scholarship funds for college-bound kids of high aptitude and modest means. There is an educational fund that underwrites courses to be taught in the real estate community. And there are many more private charities directed to local recipients with health problems or other disabilities. Great good radiates from the generous hearts of the members of these professional groups. I, for one, am proud to be part of the exchange community. Joint Ventures It only follows that after finding such a capable, trustworthy group of professionals who gather together to do business, that we would end up building investment teams within the group. Many exchangers are part of such teams that have in some cases been wildly successful in their investment activities by allocating each of their strengths to larger projects of which they each own a share. 
This is where it really gets fun. Hanging out with friends while making millions together is about as good as it gets. Expect to pay your dues, to be tested, and to prove yourself before being invited to participate in any such ventures. Once you have demonstrated your character and capability, the quantity and quality of the opportunities for joint venturing with other exchangeors increases dramatically. Education. As I intimated previously, continuing education is a cornerstone of exchanging. Exchangeors operate at such a high level of expertise and creativity that their skills are not easily acquired. There is a structure within each national exchange organization to preserve, catalog, and teach all of the principles and practices that make exchanging such a powerful tool for building wealth. Every national exchange meeting includes at least one full day of education. The best instructors in the business teach topics in which they personally excel to advance the collective competency within the exchange community. Like professional athletes, those who make big money in exchanging pay a price to acquire the skills necessary to perform at peak levels. Nothing in this information is meant to give the impression that equity marketing is an easy business. Like everything else of value, it requires dedication, education, and a good bit of perspiration to succeed. However, the same effort spent learning and perfecting your practice of exchanging is apt to produce results beyond almost any other field in real estate where you might apply the same effort. As you embark upon your venture into exchanging, please keep this axiom in mind. I didn't say it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. Tip. The best of exchangeors operate at the top of their game. By comparison, they have skills in real estate on par with any professional athlete in sports. They are the creme de la creme of real estate practitioners. In addition, the groups teach a specific skill set known as counseling to all exchangeors. Counseling is the art of communicating with exchange clients in a way that familiarizes the client with the new world of possibilities available through exchanging. Counseling educates the client in preparation for the client to begin approaching transactions in non-traditional ways. This grooms the clients to engage their equities in creating the mutual exchange of benefits outlined above. Counseling and the preparation of our clients to participate fully in the exchange process is one of the core tenets of the educational commitment of the equity marketing community. Counseling courses promote high-level communication skills and one-on-one -on -one teaching skills. An exchangeor expects to handpick a select few clients and to form a long-term mutual commitment to represent them. Lasting bonds of friendship are often formed with clients. To do the best job possible, an exchangeor must know her client's finances as well as she knows her own. The exchange community offers dozens of examples of exchangeors who have made tens of millions of dollars for themselves and their clients over a period of a few decades while living an abundant life in the process and enjoying beautiful friendships. Through the education offered by the equity marketing groups, wealth building through real estate becomes a fun and affluent way of life. When I first began attending exchange meetings and heard how lucrative it could be for anyone who paid attention and worked hard, I wondered if it was true. As I looked around me, I saw people well into their 70s and 80s who were still working. I wondered how it could be so profitable if people who had been at it for so long couldn't afford to retire. As I got to know those grand folks with gray hair, I learned that most of them were indeed wealthy. I realized that they continued to come and to do deals because nothing brought them greater pleasure than making money while associating with their best friends. What are they going to do instead? Go golfing or boating? Most of them do plenty of both and anything else they want to do. 
I can't think of any group that enjoys life more than exchangers because they have the means to live their dreams. There you have it. While this chapter is only an overview of equity marketing, it gives you a starting point, a portal to which you can connect. Like my father, if you have a dream to control your own destiny, if you are a fan of the rich dad system and wish to set foot on a path that has been proven to build wealth during good times and bad, this is your invitation to do so. On the wall of my private office at home hangs a painting of a Palomino stallion, an image of dad's all-time favorite horse, Old Yeller. On the back of it, scrawled in my dad's cowboy handwriting, are the words, For Wayne, when I'm gone, penned there to make sure I received it after his death. For me, the painting is an emblem of the joys of my boyhood, spent at my dad's side as we traveled up and down Utah, Idaho, and Nevada, trading horses and cows, hauling hay, and learning to be entrepreneurs. It has been a long and rewarding journey from horse trading to real estate exchanging. So much of my father lives on in me and in my sons and daughters. He died content and proud of his family. I love him. I miss him. I think he would be happy to know that his story may inspire others to strike out on their own. In his dichotomies, he was both my rich dad and my poor dad. In being both, he taught me great lessons. He gave me much to measure up to and a few things to strive to improve. His example presented me with choices similar to those that Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad and poor dad presented to him. I chose to go for it to live my entrepreneurial dream. On a crisp January morning a few years ago, Robert Kiyosaki shared his vision with me of giving people a track to run on as a means of acquiring real wealth and of accomplishing the rich dad mission, which is to elevate the financial IQ of all humanity. Robert asked me to make available to his students the incredible opportunity inherent in equity marketing. Will reading this chapter be the gateway to your financial future? Will plugging into the vibrant exchange community I have described be a means of accelerating your personal accumulation of wealth? Now that you are armed with this information, it is entirely up to you, and the choice is now yours. For me and for my family, I choose to grow old with my dear friends, being one of those gray-haired rich guys still doing deals and living my dreams into my golden years. I choose to be rich in relationships, rich in finances, rich in health, and rich in wonderful experiences. I choose a rich life. Each of us has the power to choose for ourselves. What will you choose for yourself? Ways to learn more. www.waynelpalmer.com www.nce1031.com A soon-to-be-published book on real estate formulas by Wayne Palmer. Wayne Palmer is widely recognized as a master in the creative structuring of real estate acquisitions and financing, using notes and other forms of real estate paper together with 1031 equity marketing formulas. His skills come from 30 years of daily practice of his trade, as the owner and manager of National Note of Utah, L.C., and several other companies. He has been involved in real estate development since 1978 in Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Hawaii, and Minnesota. By way of industrial credentials, Wayne is a licensed principal real estate broker, a certified real estate note appraiser, a certified cash flow master broker, a licensed continuing education provider, and holds the Equity Marketing Specialist, EMS, designation with the National Council of Exchangers. Marty Dorito, Chapter 23 
How to Create Retail Magic, A Tale of Two Centers Marty Dorito is an expert on retail real estate, shopping centers, and retail properties. As you know by now, there is a difference between residential, commercial, office, raw land, and other niches of real estate investing. When I want information on retail real estate, Marty is the person I call. For years, no matter where I would go to in Phoenix, I would see Marty's company's signs, Dorito Partners, everywhere. But I had never met the guy. One of my bigger commercial properties is right next to a shopping center that Marty manages. I knew the owner of the property and some of the tenants, but still, I had never met Marty. After a while, my imagination began to take over. I pictured that Dorito Partners was an old firm and that Marty was some old guy who had started the firm but was no longer active in the business. Then one day I met him in the gym and was surprised to meet a very young person. After talking to him, I realized that the reason I had not run into him was that he is a very busy, ambitious young man. Today Marty is taking on some of the biggest and most ambitious retail real estate projects in Phoenix. He's got guts. Talking to him is invaluable because he has insights into the world of business seen only from the world of retail. In other words, he focuses on what shoppers are buying and where, along with how well the shopper is doing financially. When I want to find out what is hot and what is not with shoppers, Marty is the guy. He has insight into the local economy and what parts of the city are growing and what parts are dying because he is on the front lines of consumerism, just by knowing how retailers in the area are doing. This is why Marty's knowledge is priceless. Robert Kiyosaki In your city or town, I'm sure there is one retail center that is simply the place to see and be seen. It is the center where people congregate, where people take their out-of-town guests, where they shop and where they go for fun. And it is the center that you as an investor might be interested in owning one day. It is the center that you as a developer may want to emulate. And it is the center that you as a business owner would put at the top of your list when looking to lease space. No matter what your interest is in retail centers, this chapter will provide you with experiences and truths that you will want to know before entering the retail arena. Generally speaking, centers like the one we are describing are no different from any other retail center. After all, retail centers are simply a collection of stores and eating places with parking spaces, signs, and landscaping. But somehow, certain centers seem to be the ones that have won the popularity contest. They have become the winners in the battle for the shopper's time, attention, and almighty dollar. In the early days of my career, I admired the great minds who could pull together such amazing opportunities and then shape them into retail developments that didn't just hit the mark, they nailed the mark. Heck, they invented the mark, and then they nailed it. Now, I admire those people even more because I know what it takes to make that kind of magic happen. Now, I, along with the help of my team, have waved the magician's wand a few times. Experience has taught me, though, that it takes more than a wand, and there is little magic involved. Developing a premier shopping center takes three potent ingredients. Great relationships, great real estate, great attention to detail. Now, you may be thinking, Marty, of course it takes those things. I've read a few other chapters in this book, and that seems to be what lots of successful real estate pros are saying. Good. I'm glad the other authors are reinforcing my message. 
Great relationships, great real estate, and great attention to detail are universal truths. And anyone who wants to achieve any level of success in real estate simply must put every ounce of effort into each one because any two without the other isn't good enough. In my years, I've known real estate pros who have tremendous relationships with some of the biggest and best retailers. They can get the appointments when no one else can. They have their foot in the door. I've seen them have tremendous retail locations, at the proverbial corners of Center and Main, with high traffic and plenty of customer potential. But then I've seen them completely blow it when it came to the details. The architecture is off, or the economics of the center aren't right, or the visibility is impaired, or the list goes on and on. It takes excellence in all three of these ingredients for success. But what does excellence look like when it comes to retail centers? It's a very different animal when you compare it to other forms of real estate, and as you listen further in this chapter, you'll come to see why. So whether you are considering venturing into the world of retail centers, thinking about buying a retail center, or even thinking about leasing space in one for a business venture, I'll show you what excellence means so you can recognize it when you see it. It has taken me decades to learn what I am sharing with you. I was fortunate to handle the leasing and sales of hundreds of centers when I was a retail leasing agent at Grubb and Ellis Company, and on my own at Dorito Partners Incorporated. And the lesson has cost me plenty. About ten years into my real estate career, approximately seven years after I left Grubb and Ellis Company on good terms to start my own shopping center leasing and development company, I recognized a great piece of real estate. The one million square foot Christown Mall. It was more than thirty years old and needed a significant rehab to accomplish a drastic change in the tenant mix. My idea was simple: at large power center retailers, Walmart, Costco, Target, etc., into an enclosed mall setting. The previous standard department stores had either left or were leaving to go to the newer mall near the freeway. But my research showed Christown Mall still had significant traffic counts on the arterial street. There was a good density of customers who wanted discount stores, and the existing owner already had Walmart in the center, but it wanted to expand to a super center. It all sounded like I was well on my way. My mistake was in choosing a partner to purchase and redevelop the shopping center. The firm I chose had a net worth at the time that was equal to the size of the transaction. In development, nothing ever goes 100% right. Working through a project takes time, persistence, and staying power, and by that I mean cash. The minute we hit some major obstacles, my partner wanted out. To make matters worse, when my partner entered the transaction, he sold a portion of his ownership to a hard money lender. I didn't know about it until it was already done. I knew if trouble were to occur, hard money lenders had no interest in giving me more time to work out the obstacles. Their business plan would be to push me out and force me to live up to the financial guarantees that I had given my partner, who I knew very well. The lesson I learned was never enter a partnership if you are the sweat equity, unless your financial partner has a significant net worth. Find a financial partner who has a net worth or financial means that is at least five times the opportunity. Additionally, never allow your partner to sell all or a piece of his ownership without your written approval. And/or a first right of refusal. My little mistakes cost me seven million dollars in cash. That was eye-opening to me, and eyes once opened must never close again. I became far wiser after that, and so will you with every project. But my goal with this chapter is to make you wiser from the beginning, before your money is on the line. 
I guarantee you'll never look at a retail center the same way again, whether you are looking at it as an investment or simply as a shopper. You'll see it in a whole new light. I call this chapter, How to Create Retail Magic, a tale of two centers, because I will be using two separate centers as examples throughout. The first center, called Casa Paloma, is one I built from the ground up, and it has been completed for about ten years. The second center, the Scottsdale Pavilions, is an acquisition, and we're in redevelopment right now, but the work was probably about ten years overdue. I chose these two centers for this chapter because, in ways you will come to see, they are living, breathing examples of my three key ingredients for success. Great relationships, great real estate, and great attention to detail. Let's dive in and define what these mean more specifically. Ingredient number one, great relationships. Years ago, I had the privilege of meeting Mel Simon, the largest owner of retail properties in the world, NYSE, SPG. And he said something I'll never forget. Make a friend today and a deal tomorrow. Those were profound words, particularly in retail real estate, where you may find yourself working with those same friends your entire career, particularly when it comes to leasing space to these tenants. Unlike some areas of real estate, commercial office for example, where you may do a deal with a tenant company once and then never again, or at best maybe five or ten years later, retail real estate is often the opposite. You may find yourself doing one leasing deal, two, five, ten or more a year with a company like Subway, McDonald's, or a grocery store, for example. These companies and their real estate teams become regular customers, and like anyone else in sales, I believe our product provides better value and adds to their bottom lines. In other words, almost on a daily basis, our reputation and our relationships go hand in hand. Weak performance is not an option. Relationships, I've found over the years, come in a variety of flavors. Relationships with Tenants I can't tell you how many times the great relationships I've earned with retailers on one project have helped me on another. For instance, at our Casa Paloma Center, a wonderful upscale mixed-use shopping area, our tenants there appreciated us because we created an exceptional property with significant retailer sales per square foot, and we worked to bring in the best of the best retailers, creating a strong tenant mix. Scottsdale Pavilions is a recent acquisition that we have always seen as a center with huge potential. It had been neglected by its previous owner and currently it is about 20% vacant. The retail tenants didn't like the previous owner very much, but they are beginning to like us a lot because we are making a difference. We're infusing huge dollars into improvements that will make the center more desirable to both retailers and shoppers and we are working with them to redefine the right mix of tenants and create significant customer demand so that everyone can make money. That's what relationships are all about. This opportunity to completely redefine the tenant mix and re-merchandise the Scottsdale Pavilions is good news for everyone. Guess where we will go to find new tenants? You got it, to the people and the companies who believe in us, who are partners with us in our other centers, and who are our friends. Of course, there will be retailers we've never worked with before in the Scottsdale Pavilions, too. Our existing relationships will even help us forge those new relationships. We have a ready, willing, and able group of friends who not only want their own brands to succeed, but they have us as well. And they know that partnering to create a great tenant mix is one of the ways success happens. Relationships with Shoppers 
Just as it is important to have great relationships with tenants, it's equally important to foster great relationships with shoppers. In retail, relationships come in the form of giving shoppers what they want. Later, we'll get into the details of exactly what that is, but for now, let's focus on the relationship itself. When Dorito Partners, my Arizona-based company, bought the Scottsdale Pavilions, we knew it had a bad relationship with shoppers. How? Well, for starters, business was dwindling year after year. It was an errand center, meaning it was a place where shoppers would come to stop at one store and then leave as quickly as possible. In retail, the goal is to get the shopper to stay at your center as long as possible. Think about it. If you stay at a retail center an hour longer than you intended, you'll probably spend more money. We all do it, either on food or on some luxury that suddenly transformed into a necessity right before our eyes. That's the psychology of shopping. There's more, so keep listening. And each of us brings it to life every time we enter a Costco, a Saks, or any other retailer. But getting people to stay longer isn't as easy as it may seem. It takes the right combination of convenience, entertainment, and ambience to make it happen. That's where relationships come in. Call me a ladies' man, but I try to have great relationships with women. No, not in that way, but in the sense that women comprise two-thirds of all shoppers. With men making up 95% of retail center developers, it's critical that anyone in this business understand what women want. Before I began developing Casa Paloma, I asked my wife why she was traveling 20 miles north to shop at the retail centers in Scottsdale, rather than going to the ones closer to where we lived. She looked at me with an expression that seemed to say, You don't know? And then began to explain. The centers here don't have the right stores. There's no Banana Republic or Chico's or Ann Taylor. There are no good restaurants and no AJ's Fine Foods, a higher-end grocery store. There's nothing upscale. It's just more fun to go shopping in Scottsdale and more convenient because there are lots of other stores nearby that I can stop in to pick up little things here or there. Oh, I replied, my wheels turning. I know she left thinking, duh, or some more adult equivalent of that expression, but the truth was I wanted to hear the truth from her. And then I asked the same question of her friends. From them, I got similar looks and similar answers. That led me to my lifelong relationship with female shoppers, and it's paid off in big numbers. Casa Paloma remains today one of the top-grossing centers in the state. The Scottsdale Pavilions, by contrast, had forgotten about its shoppers. It was a hot property when it first opened up 20 years ago, before there was much competition in the area. But then the trade area began to grow. Other retail developers began forging relationships with shoppers where the Scottsdale Pavilions didn't bother. Business began to trail off, and before too long, the Scottsdale Pavilions was in a downward spiral. When I bought the center, one of the first things we did was send a questionnaire to 6,000 homes in the surrounding community. We told our neighbors that we were going to reinvigorate the center, and if they would kindly tell us what they would want there, we'd give them two free movie tickets. We had a flood of responses, not because of the free movie tickets alone, but because people were honored to have been asked their preferences. It was the beginning of our relationship with the shoppers in the trade area. What Women Want Women make up two-thirds of all shoppers, so it's a good idea to deliver what they want. Convenience Variety Atmosphere Fun Entertain me Ample, easy parking Security one-stop shop, the right stores, value for their dollar, cleanliness. Ingredient number two, great real estate. Ah, here it is again. 
you're thinking location, location, location. You've heard that before, but in retail, the word great means several things beyond just location, and they are critical. They are non-negotiable. They are the differences between success and failure, between happy tenants and problem tenants. Here's my list. Great means visible. Let me say it again. Great means visible. Shoppers can stop only in stores that they know are there, and that's all there is to it. A story that is hidden is a store that is empty, or a restaurant, or a newsstand, or a health club, or an oil and lube shop for that matter. Being seen from the street and visible to customers is numero uno. One of the classic breaches of this rule happened a number of years ago in downtown Phoenix. The development was positioned on a busy corner a few blocks east of the city's main thoroughfare. It was an expensive center with beautiful Spanish mission-style architecture and stucco walls. It was touted as a destination for shoppers downtown and the perfect venue for free community-building events. Add to the project that a very prominent, newsworthy group of investors were behind the development, and you have the makings for a real success, right? Wrong. The developers forgot two important rules, visibility and shoppers. Allow me to elaborate. The center was built in an open-air, courtyard style, with its focus facing to an inner courtyard on all four sides. From the north, south, and the east-west streets, drivers saw only the sides of the buildings. Sure, there were some signs that faced outward, but they were not prominent, and couldn't have been any more so without compromising the mission feel of the architecture. From inside the center, the feel was quite nice, with good intimacy and ambience. But there were a few other problems. First, the center didn't have an anchor tenant to support its size and draw enough people to the destination. That was a big mistake. The second problem was that too few people ever actually experienced the courtyard ambience because the center's design wasn't inviting. And the third problem was there simply weren't enough people living in the trade area to support the businesses that leased there. The economics didn't work. The center struggled to attract retailers and shoppers, and within a few years, it became office space and classrooms. It is a classic example of retail developers getting too focused on a vision for a retail center and forgetting the most critical rule of retail, which is visibility and shoppers. I see the visibility and shoppers rule broken all the time, and I've seen retailers pay the price. Look around and you'll find otherwise successful retail brands and restaurant concepts unable to make their numbers work because there simply aren't enough customers walking through their doors. You'll begin to notice centers that just churn tenants every two to five years because no one can last. And you'll hear shoppers peg centers or specific storefronts as jinxed because nothing can ever survive there. I'm sure, just as you have the winning centers in your city or town, you have the centers that just can't seem to get things going. Nine times out of ten, the problem is visibility. I admit the Scottsdale Pavilions has a visibility problem, but thankfully, it is one that can be corrected. When the center was first built, the front of it was designed to be along a soon-to-be-constructed freeway on the center's west side. Large signs and landscaping water features, complete with the annual migration of Canadian geese, flank the west side of the center to this day. The signs are very visible, and anyone driving by can't miss the destination. Sounds great, right? The problem is that a few years after the Scottsdale Pavilions was built, the community had a change of plans and decided to build the freeway on the east side of the center, not the west. 
So now, the center's backside is facing the valuable freeway drivers. And let's face it, the backside doesn't have the water features, it doesn't have the landscaping, and it certainly doesn't have the geese. Our backside is not our best side. So part of the plan is to literally make over the center so that the back is no longer the back and the visibility from the freeway will be glorious, including new pylon signs. Great means the right density of the right shoppers. But all the visibility in the world won't buy you anything if the right people and the right quantity of the right people aren't in the vicinity of the center. This is called demographics, and every center lives and dies by the density numbers. It takes the right number of people within your center's target demographic to create a winning project. Retailers, restaurants, etc. are all interested in demographics. They count rooftops, they look at census numbers, and more, all to arrive at the ideal location profile for their stores. From the developer's perspective, density and demographics define which retailers will succeed in a center. For example, at Casa Paloma, there was a high density of people who were perfectly suited to upscale retail. Our preliminary research showed that, so it made sense for us to skew the center that way. We were a fit for the higher-end retailers we targeted, and they were a fit for our shopper demographic. And the right density of those shoppers meant we could be confident that we would have enough traffic. In some areas, density and demographics dictating the type of center is obvious. For instance, there is no point putting a check-cashing service into a center that is sitting in the midst of million-dollar homes. But some areas are in transition and the demographic makeup isn't always obvious. That's where research comes in and plays a critical role. In planning the Scottsdale Pavilion's retail tenant mix, we know the higher-end customer density is there and we have identified a number of demographic needs that are not being served. Our key priority will be matching those needs with the center, its retailers, and its customers. Great means convenient. My wife and her friends taught me this truth years ago when I was doing my research for Casa Paloma. Convenience is everything, and it came up over and over again in the list of what women want in a shopping center. If I sound sexist, I don't mean to be. Anyone getting into retail needs to always remember that most shoppers are women, so let's just say it. We are catering to women's needs, not the needs of men. Convenience to women means several things. It means on the way to somewhere else. The center's location has to be on the way to or from work, school, the gym, the daycare center, the salon, or some other destination. And better yet, if it is on the same side of the road she is traveling, all the better. Ask women, and they will tell you that all things being equal, they are more inclined to stop at a store on the right side of the street than they are to stop at a store on the left side of the street. Crossing traffic is an inconvenience and can be dangerous. Convenient also means easy and ample parking. Searching up and down rows of cars for a parking space is the last thing shoppers of any gender want to do when they are in a hurry. And who isn't in a hurry today? Shoppers tend to give a center a few chances when it comes to parking, but if the problem persists, shoppers will mentally label the center as a hassle, and they won't come back. There are simply too many other choices today, including stores on the Internet, where parking is never an issue. At Casa Paloma, we knew shoppers' feelings about parking, so we made sure it was plentiful by building more parking than a center typically requires. But how many times has plentiful parking been an inconvenience all its own? Sometimes an overabundance of parking can cause the parking to be so far away from the store entrance that it is all too easy for shoppers to think, I'll do this another time. 
Parking that is too far away from the store is inconvenient. Knowing this, when we built Casa Paloma, we built it with a parking configuration that extends wide instead of deep in relation to the storefronts. In other words, the walk from a parking spot to the center is a matter of at most 20 yards versus 50 or more. The perception is, we're convenient, and convenient means great real estate. Great means happening. Another important aspect of great real estate is that it happens to sit in an area that is vital and alive. That doesn't mean it needs to be in the nightclub district. What I mean is that great real estate has, or has had, other great real estate projects happening around it. Take, for example, the Scottsdale Pavilions. One of the reasons I acquired it is because it is sitting right in the middle of two huge development projects, both of which are compatible to retail. On the east side is a $450 million casino resort under construction. It will bring convention business to within a quarter of a mile of the center. On the west, less than two miles away, is the $1 billion Ritz-Carlton Hotel and high-end community slated for development. Beyond that, commercial office space is springing up all around, and the center itself sits on a road currently under construction. Translate that, in the process of expansion, to carry a heavy load of east and westbound traffic. Add this action all up, and you have a happening location. This location, with all its opportunity, seems extraordinary, but sometimes happening locations are far less obvious. I've seen small neighborhood centers be very happening spots for the right tenant mix. They seem to be where people congregate or where people go to eat out or shop. It's all relative. Sometimes a happening center in a small town would be a failure in a bigger city. You can feel which centers are happening and why they are happening. The key is knowing which ones are going to become happening and which ones are going to stay happening. We placed Casa Paloma in an area that had higher incomes, lots of families, strong high-tech employers, along with a strong and growing population density. The trade area wasn't providing places for these people or others with similar demographics to shop and eat. They wanted a high-end grocery store, such as AJ's Fine Foods, and upscale shopping for the families, such as Gap, Banana Republic, and Talbot's. Additionally, they wanted higher-end restaurants, which included Z Tejas Grill, Fleming's Prime Steakhouse, and Roy's Pacific Rim Cuisine. Casa Paloma delivered, and the center continues to be a success. Great means affordable. Arizona has some of the most beautiful retail shopping in the world. I'm not biased about this. We simply do. We're a tourism state, and the Phoenix metro area is a tourism area, so my opinion stands to reason. We'd better cater to the tourists and provide great experiences, or they will simply take their travel dollars elsewhere. There are lots of wonderful travel destinations in this world. But in an effort to create the most amazing shopping experience, it is easy for developers to overspend on a project, particularly with today's building costs. Elaborate building designs, costly facade work, expensive hardscapes and water features, high-maintenance landscaping and high-dollar necessities like parking areas and garages can inflate the costs of a retail project very quickly, sometimes to the point where the economics just don't add up. Here's what I mean. For the most part, all developers want to build the most beautiful shopping center that garners accolades from peers, family, and friends. However, your cost per square foot must be met by what your target retailers can afford to pay. A retailer whose rent factor, which is ideally less than 10% of sales, must have the appropriate sales volume from their customers. 
If the retailer can't justify the sales volume to meet the rent, they will not lease space at your shopping center. For us, we start with what we think the retailer can afford in rent, and then we back into what we can spend to develop or redevelop the shopping center. If cash flow is king, as Robert talks about often in his books, then profitability is the king royale. Any center with economics that are so out of line that proven retailers cannot turn a profit will not stay in business long. Actually, when this pattern plays out, the center will go bankrupt, and a second owner will buy it for cents on the dollar. Second owners do stand a better chance of getting the economics in line because their baseline costs are lower. But sometimes the damage is done, the shoppers' patterns have been established elsewhere, and there's no turning the center around. As tempting as it is to want to build or even be a part of the most beautiful and best center in town, really examine the cost per square foot and sales per square foot spread. Even if you are looking to lease space, this rule applies. Affordability equals success. Great means a superior tenant mix. Way back at the beginning of this chapter, I asked if there was a center or two in your community that just seemed to be the winner. My guess is that at least one and maybe two came to mind. Well, while all these other great real estate requirements help make centers successful, the right tenant mix is a big part of the magic. Is it an art or is it a science? Creating the right tenant mix is as much about understanding the shopper's psyches as it is about discovering the retail options, building the relationships, and knowing how to negotiate the deals. It takes being able to visualize a center before it comes out of the ground or before it is revitalized. That's the art part. I am fortunate to have great people around me and we all work together to create a vision for a center. It is truly the most exciting part of my job and makes all the tough stuff worth it. I mentioned earlier about the importance of keeping shoppers at your center longer. I always think of Las Vegas when this subject comes up. That's the key to success there. The casinos do everything in their power to keep people from walking out the door. They offer food, they offer drinks, they have shows. They have a variety of games to play, and many of the newer properties have spectacular attractions, like elaborate gardens, water shows, and nightclubs. If a Las Vegas casino were a retail center, what I just described would be called the tenant mix. So, using a casino as a model, what does that example say about tenant mix in a retail center? To me, it means making sure we have the right something at the right time for our shoppers. It's not about having something for everyone. I don't want everyone at our centers. I want only the people the center is designed for. But when those right shoppers are there, I want to satisfy their every need. I want to feed them. I want to entertain them. I want to make them beautiful. I want to make their lives easier. I don't want them going to the next casino or retail center if I can keep them at mine. A retail center is about more than just shopping, and a good tenant mix delivers it all with a blend of shopping, eating, dining, entertainment, and attractions so that even an errand can become a fun excursion. A great example is Casa Paloma. It has a fantastic tenant mix that satisfies shoppers' needs all in one location. There's no need to drive from center to center wasting time, fuel, and effort. Casa Paloma Tenant Mix Great real estate has a superior tenant mix that satisfies a shopper's every need. Food. AJ's Fine Foods. Cold Stone Creamery. Z Tejas Grill. Pei Wei Asian Diner. Tommaso's Italian. Fleming's Prime Steakhouse. Fashion. Ann Taylor. Banana Republic. Chico's. Francesca's Collections. 
Coffin and Trout Fine Jewelers, Gap Woman, Gap Body, Gap Kids, Baby Gap, Paris, Paris, Talbots, White House, Black Market, Furnishings, Creative Leather, Ritz Camera, Showcase Home Entertainment, Sur la Table, Gifts and Accessories, Urban, Paper Soiree, Personal Services, Rolf Salon, Altel, Bath and Body Works, Cool Cuts for Kids, Philosophy, Postal Annex, American Laser Center, Valley Nails. Great Means Attractions Over the years I have learned I can't always address every shopper's need through my retail tenants. Sometimes it takes a bigger attraction to make that happen. And if we think about our Las Vegas casino example again, we know that big attractions have the power to keep people engaged longer, sometimes for hours and sometimes for days. I'm proud to say that our new Scottsdale Pavilion's acquisition is the home of the longest-running auto show in the United States. Every Saturday, car enthusiasts come to the center and show off to other car lovers and spectators more than 400 of their classics. Camaros, Chargers, Corvettes, Cobras, and more than a few Mustangs. It draws hundreds and hundreds of people every weekend. That's an attraction. The show's beginnings were humble. The center's McDonald's franchisee, a car buff himself, started bringing his three collector cars to the center every week. They would attract attention, draw people to his restaurant, and in the process he would talk with other enthusiasts when the opportunity arose. Little by little, this passionate, enterprising franchisee began inviting others to bring their cars, too. Now the show is a landmark, and because of it, so is this center. Alcohol can be an attraction. What do I mean? The Scottsdale Pavilions is part of a Native American community which currently doesn't allow alcohol at retail shopping centers. This makes it very difficult to get sit-down family restaurants such as Chili's or Macaroni Grill. Eating is a form of entertainment and keeps people shopping longer. The community now recognizes this and recently voted in favor of having alcohol served at these restaurants. I've seen centers offer everything from merry-go-rounds to wade-in fountains, a big attraction in Arizona in July, and everything in between. The key is finding the right fit for your target shopper. Is the car show the right fit for a shopping center when it attracts mostly men? Especially since we know women do most of the shopping. At first glance, you may think not, but consider that a lot of those men bring the women in their lives along with them to the car show. Some of the women enjoy the car show while others do their shopping as the men talk cars. The show is actually a terrific attraction for men and women shoppers alike. It certainly doesn't hurt McDonald's or other restaurant business either. The show practically surrounds the restaurant. Another important kind of attraction is architecture. Exceptional design and architecture will draw people from all over if for nothing else than the experience. Of course, everyone knows a positive experience requires something to remember it by, so most people who visit will buy something, which is the point of all this. People like to shop, dine, and in today's world, even run errands in pleasant environments. That's one of the reasons why at the Scottsdale Pavilions we are embarking upon a major renovation. When the center was built 20 years ago, it was considered aesthetically pleasing. But after 20 years of neglect, when we bought it, it looked tired and out of date. The appearance absolutely affected everything, including leasing, customer count, and sales particularly when newer, more exciting competition popped up during the last boom real estate cycle. Great architecture can stand the test of time.
It can grow better with age, and it can help you establish your center or business as the place to go with shoppers. That was the case with Casa Paloma. Yes, we have a good tenant mix, but architecturally the center is a winner. Not only does it look up to date in terms of style and color, but there are no flat storefronts. The center itself moves in, it moves out, and each store is separate and distinct architecturally. It is not a long box with window fronts. Why? Because in the science of shopping, when the eyes get tired, the eyes leave. We have to keep things interesting. And the more interesting the storefronts are, the more shoppers lose track of how far they have walked. If I can get a shopper to walk into one more store, they will buy something. Malls employ this psychology, so why shouldn't retail centers? And speaking of malls, Casa Paloma was able to lock in concrete consumer shopping patterns before the big regional mall opened up three years later, about eight miles away. Today, that mall has not impacted our business because we serve shoppers' needs in terms of offerings and we are more convenient. So, whether you are considering investing in a shopping center, looking to develop a new one, or lease a space for your business, find a center that fits the bill when it comes to this very important second ingredient great real estate. You will make your life exponentially easier if you do. Ingredient number three great attention to detail. The business of real estate is a detail business. From the very beginning of a real estate deal to the very end of it and beyond into management and eventual sale, the best real estate is planned and managed to the very last detail all along the way. So, what does that involve? Well, aside from a long to do list, for me, attention to detail is all about time management. Yes, it is the ability to effectively manage your time, which will allow you the luxury to pay attention to the details, and there are lots of them. For example, if there are 5,000 retailers out there, I can spend 10 years meeting them all, or I can spend three. I choose to be efficient with my time and do it in three. That means I need to have more appointments, more meetings than others, and not waste any time. Do you know why Napoleon won so many battles? Because, as historians recount, He saw the value of one minute. For Napoleon, it was all about operating more efficiently than his enemy operated, and he squeezed productivity out of every minute. If you can adopt this mindset, then you will have time for the details. If you don't, you won't. Not because there aren't enough hours in a day, days in a week, and weeks in a year, but because in real estate you are in a race against the clock with just about everything you do. Whether you're deep into your 60 day due diligence period and must meet your contractual obligations, or you are completing construction on a center and are neck and neck with a competitor down the road, or whether you are working to get your spaces leased, the race is against the clock. At Dorito Partners, we have a Monday morning development meeting that lasts three hours. You may say that doesn't sound like an efficient meeting, but allow me to elaborate. In that meeting, we go over each and every development project we have underway, and we clearly define exactly what we must accomplish that week and who is responsible for doing it. There is no question about our path, and there is no hiding under a rock. Everyone steps up, and everyone is held accountable. But at the same time, everyone is allowed to do their jobs. It's a simple process, and it works. I believe one of the reasons why the details are so important is that in real estate development, again, whether you are developing something from the ground up, buying an existing property, or searching for the right leasing opportunity, you must be thinking 10 years out. You have to look at who the shopper is, what retailers that shopper will want now, and what they will want 10 years from now. 
You have to understand the real estate cycle trends and be able to predict where they will go in the next five years and in the next ten years. Listen to Craig Coppola's chapter in this book. Then you must have the guts to leap early enough to get the jump on your competition, solid plan in hand. The List A book I read many years ago had a long list of everything a developer had to do when developing and managing any kind of real estate project. We have adopted it as our detail list. Of course, within each of the items on this list are sizable lists of actions as well, but this will give you the start you need to understand the definition of the word details. We don't miss a single one of these as we plan and execute a retail center project. We talk about them at our Monday meetings, and we feel a tremendous sense of accomplishment when we can cross completed items off the list. I see the world in terms of goals, objectives, and accomplishments, and this list is the cornerstone of what we do. Here it is from A to almost Z. The List Consider this your to-do list for developing and managing a retail real estate project. A. Establish your development criteria and objectives. B. Analyze and identify your market. C. Develop and prepare preliminary site plans, concept design, and strategies. D. Oversee the entitlement process and prepare the legal documents required by your city or town. E. Establish a construction team, a construction manager, and consultants. F. Perform your preliminary feasibility studies and financial proformas. G. Negotiate any joint venture agreements, development agreements, and construction loans. H. Set up your legal documents such as leases, utility contracts, easements, CCRs, etc. I. Create and maintain your project schedules. J. Develop your construction and operating budgets. K. Negotiate construction contracts and manage the bidding. L. Hire your brokers and manage your marketing, leasing programs. M. Negotiate your consultant contracts. N. Manage your development team regularly. O. Organize and hold on-site construction meetings regularly. P. Manage project accounts payable and watch costs. Q. Approve all invoices and submit for payment through loan draws. R. Review your change orders and lien waivers. S. Develop your monthly joint venture reports complete with financials, marketing, and budgets. T. Establish your property management plan and management guidelines, procedures, if self-managing. U. Manage tenant turnover, punch lists, and occupancy. V. Select a mortgage company and negotiate the terms and conditions of the first loan. W. Work with the utility companies in the city or town to secure a certificate of occupancy. X. Negotiate and manage any sale of the property to a new owner. Y. Be persistent, honest, positive, and work hard. The Result When you pay attention to detail, the result is a center that works. It's a center that feels good to be at and is an enjoyable experience from the moment shoppers drive in to the moment they leave. Perhaps you have a center or two like that in your community. You know the ones that I'm talking about. They are the ones that are easy to get into. There is no driving 500 yards past the entrance making a U-turn to double back and pulling in. Access is truly easy. Convenience is a given from the first turn of the wheel. Another telltale sign that a developer paid attention to detail is good parking. I can drive into a center and within a moment know whether the developer got it right. Are there enough spaces so that shoppers aren't searching and searching, wasting time and being caused aggravation? 
Or is there too much parking, causing a center to lose its intimacy and for shoppers, particularly female shoppers, to feel insecure at night? These things matter. You can do everything else right, but botch the parking and you can be in trouble. I could cite pages of other signs. Ultimately, the magic all comes from bringing everything together. Design, architecture, shopper needs, tenant mix, convenience, feel, legal aspects, construction, parking. The list goes on and on. And ending up with something that is uniquely suited for the market and the moment. From there, magic becomes lasting by having the foresight and the plan to grow the center into maturity. I love the complexities of retail real estate, and I love the challenge. This business taps into every aspect of who you are and every talent you have, or think you have. It confronts your weaknesses head-on and forces you to find solutions and resources to overcome them. It puts you in front of and beside some of the most amazing people in the world who possess talent and perseverance beyond compare. And in the end, all the hard work produces a product that satisfies people's needs, but more importantly, provides the escape and enjoyment that makes life all it can be. For me, retail centers are more than just bricks and mortar. They can be, and often are, magic. A magic that requires hard work, integrity, dedication, and a healthy dose of lifelong passion. Ways to learn more. www.icsc.org www.uli.org www.ccim.com Zeckendorf, an autobiography of William Zeckendorf by William Zeckendorf. Threshold Resistance, The Extraordinary Career of a Luxury Retailing Pioneer by A. Alfred Taubman. Trump, The Art of the Deal by Donald J. Trump. Trammell Crow, Master Builder, The Story of America's Largest Real Estate Empire by Robert Sobel. Crossing the Road to Entrepreneurship by Bert L. Wolstein. Sharing the Wealth, My Story, by Alex Spanos. Maverick Real Estate Investing, The Art of Buying and Selling Properties like Trump, Zell, Simon, and the World's Greatest Landowners, by Steve Bergsman. Marty Dorito is the CEO of Dorito Partners Incorporated and Dorito Partners Development Incorporated, brokerage, management, and commercial development companies based in Phoenix, Arizona. He has more than 20 years of commercial real estate experience, specializing in the sale, leasing, and development of retail properties, including shopping centers and automotive parks. Dorito has been successful in providing top-quality, aggressive leasing and management expertise, combined with conservative development expertise. Dorito Partners Incorporated is the largest retail brokerage company in the state of Arizona, based on the number of exclusive listings. The firm has 30 retail agents and exclusively represents and provides leasing services to 62 retailer accounts. The company has leased more than 11 million square feet and has listed for lease approximately 230 shopping centers totaling more than 14 million square feet. Part 4. Lessons Learned Kim Kiyosaki, Chapter 24 what one property can teach you. What can I say? I got lucky. Kim is beautiful on the outside, and even more beautiful on the inside. On top of that, she has courage and is very smart. She learns quickly, and I know she did not marry me for my money, because when we met, I did not have any money. 
What we had was our love and a dream of becoming a rich couple together. In 1987, the stock market crashed, the savings and loan industry went bust, and the real estate market crashed. This is when I said to Kim, now is the time to invest. She often states that, back in the 1980s, she had no idea what investing was, especially investing in real estate. On top of that, most people around us were crying the blues and complaining about the bad economy. Fear and pessimism were everywhere. In spite of that, she trusted me, and we began looking at distressed properties. Our plan was simple. We would buy two houses a year for ten years, which meant we would have twenty homes to provide us income. She studied, did her research, and looked at house after house. Finally, she bought her first property. That investment changed her life. Within 18 months, she had achieved her 10-year goal of 20 properties. She has never looked back. She took to investing like a duck takes to water. Today, Kim is an investment partner in more than 1,400 rental units. Even as the economy crashed in 2007, her properties delivered positive cash flows, while many other real estate investors were losing everything. In fact, her investment income went up as more people became renters. She is, as the title of her book states, a rich woman. But more than money rich, she is financially smart. She is a financially independent woman who does not need a man or me to take care of her. That is why I am so proud of her and love her with all my heart. Robert Kiyosaki it's amazing the number of life lessons as well as the amount of hands-on knowledge you can learn from one single investment property. I'm not just talking about your first two or three investment properties as you're starting out. Those almost always seem to deliver a steep learning curve. I'm talking about the lessons I continue to learn after years of real estate investing. Every property teaches me something new that I didn't know before. Here's the story of one property that to this day remains one of my greatest teachers. Miami, Florida In 2003, my husband Robert and I were in Miami, Florida, attending an investment conference. At one of the breaks during the first day, a young real estate broker, Matt, introduced himself to us, and we spent a few minutes chatting. Being the good salesman that he was, he couldn't help but tell us about a real estate property that he had some inside knowledge of. The property was not on the market, but the two owners were entertaining offers if the buyers were serious. My first response was understandably skeptical. I didn't know this guy, and I didn't know if this was just a hyped-up sales pitch. In any event, it was a good pitch, and we had a couple of hours free that afternoon, so we drove with Matt to take a look at this property. Of course, according to Matt, it was the best deal he'd seen in years. About 20 minutes later, we pulled into an attractive strip mall with a few shops and restaurants. The mall was less than two years old, and some buildings were still under construction. At one end of the mall was a large health and fitness club. The building was about 38,000 square feet, with parking spaces allocated for the club. The property for sale was the building occupied by the one tenant, known as a single-tenant property, the fitness club. This particular piece of property was a triple-net lease investment.
This means that the tenant, the fitness club, pays the property taxes, insurance, and all repairs and maintenance. There's very little management on the owner's end. It's a very appealing type of investment, given the right terms. We wanted to know more. The First of Many Lessons One of the first things that struck me on this visit was the potential risk. Since there is only one tenant, this means that all of our income on the property would be dependent on this one tenant. Therefore, the ultimate key to the success of a triple-net, single-tenant investment property is, very simply, the quality of the tenant. Our income, our cash flow, and the value of our property would all depend upon the tenant's ability to pay us every month until the end of the lease. You can see the implications here. With any single-tenant building, you want to make sure that the tenant is financially strong and has a solid business foundation. In other words, Microsoft is a quality tenant. Martha's typewriter repair shop probably is not. The reason why you want an A-list tenant is that if the tenant leaves, so does all your income, and then you're left with an empty building that was designed for the tenant who is no longer there. Tip. One way to protect yourself from your only tenant vacating your property is to set up a reserve account. This is an account that you add to every month from the cash flow of your property. To sleep well at night, I'd recommend at least one year of reserves that allows you to pay the mortgage and any expenses associated with the property while you look for your next better quality tenant. The Good and the Bad with any single-tenant property, there is the risk of the tenant moving out early and leaving the property vacant with no income. However, associated with that risk, we discovered another risk that was unique to this property. The mall where the fitness club was located was adjacent to a gated neighborhood community. Ordinarily, that might be a good thing, but in this case, an agreement between the owners of the fitness club building and these neighbors was in force. The agreement stated that any changes to the building must get approval from the neighbors. What would this mean for us? It meant that if the fitness club tenant moved out, then the neighbors would control what we were allowed to do with the property. They would control who and what could move in there. The neighbors, not the owner of the property, were in charge. This was a stumbling block. Of course, Matt, the broker, didn't see this as much of a problem. Robert and I did, though. If we were to move forward, we would want this agreement closely reviewed. On the plus side, this property was in a prime location. It was just around the corner from a prestigious country club, and it was on a high-traffic main street. The property was newly built, and the financials, at first glance, made sense. Based on the numbers shown to us, we would receive a healthy cash flow of about 18%. Tip. Lesson learned. The financials given to you by most brokers are projected numbers, not actual numbers. Projected numbers are typically the best-case scenario, and they present a better picture than how the property is actually performing. Matt drove us around so we could get a feel for the area, there was quite a bit of new construction going on, and the number of people moving into the area was on an upswing. All good signs. 
We gathered up all the information he had and flew home to Phoenix. On the plane trip home, Robert and I discussed the pros and the cons of the property, at least what we knew of it in the brief time we had. By the time the plane touched down in Phoenix, we had decided we would make an offer on the Miami property and pursue it further. The next day, I phoned Matt and put in our offer. We went back and forth with the owners and fairly quickly came to an agreed-upon price. Now the work began, otherwise known as the due diligence period. This is when you perform a very thorough check of the property to make sure that what you think you're getting is what you're actually getting, and this is when my problems began. From the beginning From the outset, this property had challenges. First of all, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. The property is located in Miami, Florida. Phoenix is nearly 2,000 miles from Miami, quite a distance. There was no way I could just drive down the street to check on the property. If a problem arose, I'd have to get on a plane, spend all day flying, rent a car, stay overnight in a hotel, and then spend another day flying home, a lengthy and costly affair. Second, this was the first triple-net commercial property I had ever pursued. Most of the properties I owned were apartment buildings with many tenants. This was a whole new animal in a whole new area. I immediately started telling myself how much I didn't know about this type of deal, and my feet were already cool from the start. I heard these words repeated in my head, What if I lose money? What if I make a mistake? Do I know what I'm getting into? My self-doubt was strong and loud. Then someone suggested, You should hire an attorney to review the agreement. Aha, I thought, that will solve my problems. So I got a referral for an attorney in Tucson, Arizona, and I hired him. That decision led to my next problem, which I didn't understand was a problem until later. The lawyer I had hired was not a real estate attorney. He was a business attorney. He understood contracts, but didn't understand a real estate investment. There is a big difference. So the due diligence continued on. Now my attorney was talking to their attorney, and neither attorney thought the other knew what he was talking about. They didn't like each other. They did not respect each other. Whatever my attorney suggested, their attorney rejected, simply because it was my attorney's idea, and whatever their attorney recommended, my attorney said no to for the same reason. We were getting nowhere quickly, and the fees were mounting. My attorney, being from Arizona, began arguing on issues that were not relevant to this Florida property. It was as if they were bickering over what remedies we'd have in place if a blizzard hit Honolulu. Highly unlikely. Our attorney wanted guarantees on absolutely every single thing that could possibly go wrong. Tip. Lesson learned. Out of this ordeal came a real estate and business rule that I now follow closely. Do not allow an attorney to negotiate your deal for you. An attorney's job is to point out potential problems and options to those problems, and then it's up to you to decide what to do. It's up to you to negotiate the deal. On a Plane My attorney lesson was a major one. This back-and-forth dogfight went on for three months, 
and we did not even have an agreement yet. All we had was an agreed-upon purchase price. That was all. My attorney would call me every day with a new wrinkle in the deal. Finally, after weeks and weeks of this, Robert and I decided we needed to get on a plane and go meet face-to-face with the owners to work out the final four or five issues that were still unresolved. We flew to Miami, rented a car, drove to the property, and sat down with the owners to discuss the final points. Within 30 minutes, all issues were resolved and agreed to. It was that fast when we met buyer to seller, another lesson learned. The seller went back to his attorney to draw up the final contract. Robert and I flew home. I called my attorney and explained what we agreed to and that a new agreement was on the way. The new agreement arrived, and every point we and the seller had agreed to in our conversation was different than we had discussed. Had the seller or the seller's attorney revised the deal points? I didn't know. The two attorneys went head-to-head once more. This whole process was not just frustrating, it was exhausting. The Phone Call We had been working on this deal for three months, and there was still no agreement. Just when we thought we had the final issue resolved, a new one would appear. We'd take one step forward and then two steps backward. Would we ever close this deal? Then my answer came. It was 10 p.m. on a Thursday, and Robert was out of town. The phone rang. It was Matt, the broker. The deal is off the table, he said. What? I responded. What do you mean it's off the table? Matt went on. The owner decided it's just been too difficult, and he's pulling the property off the market. He's going to hold on to it for now. I was stunned. But we've been working on this for months. How can he just walk away? He just did, Matt said. I'll stay in touch, since I'm sure there's another good deal out there. Bye. I hung up the phone, and I sat in silence for what seemed an hour, It was probably five minutes. I know how I can save this deal, I said to myself. I'll call the owner and talk to him directly. Not paying attention to the time difference, I phoned the property owner, and thank goodness he was a late-night guy because he answered the phone. He graciously spoke with me about his decision for about fifteen minutes, but it became clear that I was not going to change his mind. We said our goodbyes, wished each other well, and hung up the phone. What the hell happened? Again, I was stunned, and now I could feel the anger building inside of me. I thought to myself, I have spent months on this one deal. I've ignored every other deal that's come to me. What a waste of time, flying back and forth, all the phone calls, all the arguments, all the time, and to end up with nothing. Then, still fuming, I started to ask myself some questions. Why did I hire a Tucson attorney for a Florida property? Why didn't I call Dan and Stephen, my two friends who understand this kind of deal? Why did I act as if I know nothing about real estate? I know how to put a real estate deal together. Why did I let it drag out for so long? Why didn't I just talk to the owner instead of going through attorneys? What was I so afraid of? My anger was now near explosion. First, my anger was directed at the owner for pulling out of the deal. I was furious with my attorney. I was furious with their attorney. I was mad at Matt for not holding the deal together. 
But then the truth hit me. My real anger wasn't at any of them. My anger was with myself. The truth was the owner, the attorneys, and the broker didn't cause this deal to fall apart. I let this deal fall apart. Why? Because I was afraid I would screw up. I was afraid I would make a huge mistake and I'd lose our money. This was the biggest deal I had done up to this point. We were going to put $1.5 million cash into this deal. What if I lost it? I kept asking myself. The bottom line is that I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust what I knew to get this deal done. After 15 years of doing real estate deals, I still didn't trust myself. And that's what really set me off, because I did know what to do. At that moment, I knew exactly what I should have done to get this deal closed, and I didn't do it. Why? Because I let fear take over. I let my own fear beat me. I stepped up to the line, and I quit. At that exact moment, I knew that I quit, and I was furious with myself. Now what? By now, it was about one in the morning. I don't even know if I was talking silently to myself or if I was yelling out loud. I was nearly psychotic by this time. I don't even know how I got from the living room of my house to my home office in a separate building, but there I was, standing in my office. I glanced at my desk, and on the corner was a stack of real estate investment offerings. I began to calm down. One of the things that upset me so much was the amount of time I spent on this deal, only to wind up with nothing, when there were probably several other investments I could have been pursuing. I picked up the pile of pro formas, each with a description and some financial information on a property, and I started to look through them. Most of the properties were apartment buildings, since that is primarily what I invest in, and the brokers I dealt with knew what I was looking for. Then I came across an offer that made me smile. Craig Coppola, a commercial real estate broker in Phoenix, who has since become a very good friend and contributor to this book, had presented this particular property to me when he heard about the Miami property I was looking at. But I was too engrossed with that time-consuming deal to pay attention to what he was showing me. At the time, I figured he was just looking to make a commission— now that my mind had cleared enough to see what was in front of me, I recalled some of his conversation. You should take a look at this property. Better deal. In Phoenix. I spent the next hour with my calculator, reviewing this offering and writing down questions. I went to sleep that night with one all-important question on my mind, the answer to which had to be yes. The Morning After I knew that Craig was an early riser. He's very driven and is always one of the top commercial brokers in Arizona. At 7 a.m. I called his cell phone. Hello, this is Craig, he answered. Hi, Craig, it's Kim Kiyosaki, I replied. Hey, Kim, what can I do for you, he asked. Then I asked the all-important question. Craig, remember that property you talked with me about when I was looking to buy the Miami property? Yes. I remember you weren't too interested, he reminded me. I held my breath and asked, Is it still available? Craig responded, That was months ago. They never actively listed it. They only wanted to talk to truly serious buyers. Are you interested in it? 
I am, is all I said. Seriously interested? he asked. Very seriously, I replied. Let me call them and see what the status is. I'll call you back as soon as I talk with them, he replied. Thanks, Craig. The sooner the better, I said anxiously. The next thirty minutes seemed like forever. I had my cell phone by my side every second, glancing at it every few minutes. Finally, my phone rang, and I saw it was Craig. Hi, Craig. Did you get a hold of them? I impatiently asked. I did, he said. And? I asked, holding my breath. It's still available. It's not on the market, but they will consider a serious offer. I took a deep breath, more of a heavy sigh of relief. Are you still there, Kim? Craig asked. I'm here, I answered. How much are they asking? Their price is $7.2 million, he replied. What's it worth? I asked. Craig laughed. Honestly, I think it's worth at least $7.2 million. I still love this deal. I was elated. Craig, tell them I'll give them full price, $7.2 million, Craig asked. Do you want any special terms, such as subject to you obtaining financing or specific terms of the due diligence period? I replied with confidence, no, full price. We have our due diligence period, and if all is as they say it is, we'll close in 60 days. Craig questioned, that's it? That's it, I said. It's a new deal. Craig called me back less than an hour later. It's done, he said. Now it's time to get to work. I have to ask you, though, when I first showed you this deal, you wanted nothing to do with it. Why are you so confident about this property now? What changed? I explained, Craig, for the past three months, I've been pursuing this health club building in Miami. I know more than I ever wanted to know about this type of property. I've learned about the business itself, about what's important to obtain financing, as well as what's an issue and what's not an issue related to a health club property. So even though the Miami deal fell apart, I realized I was simply paying my dues. I laughed and continued, Craig, the beauty of this Phoenix property is that it is a health club, almost identical to the Florida property. The purchase price is less and the amount of down payment is less than the Miami deal. Plus, the cash flow is greater in percentage and in actual dollars. But the most ironic thing of all is that instead of being located in Miami, this property is four blocks from my house. I think I know this area pretty well. Sometimes your best opportunities are literally right around the corner. The Closing we spent the next two months going through our due diligence, putting together the financing and drawing up the agreement. In 60 days, the deal was closed without a lot of effort. Today, that Phoenix property is one of the best-performing properties I own. Had I not gone through the process, the drama, the headaches, and the learning of the Miami property, I would have never noticed this Phoenix property— and I would not be enjoying the wonderful cash flow this property delivers. The biggest win for me out of this entire process was learning that the reason I lost the Miami property was because of my own fear. It was my own fear that caused most of the stumbling blocks to getting this deal done. I could blame everyone else, 
But in reality, it was my own fear that was to blame. Fear of making mistakes, fear of losing money, fear of looking stupid, all of it. When I dug a little deeper, I came to the conclusion that, yes, I probably will make mistakes, and I may lose money, and maybe I'll look like an idiot if things go sideways. But the fact is, I know how to do a real estate deal, and if I do my homework, do my due diligence, get good terms and financing, and dot the I's and cross the T's, then my chance of success is pretty good. My greatest win from the Miami deal is that it eliminated 95% of my fear regarding real estate investing. No longer would my emotions get in the way. I could now focus on the facts and the creativity often needed to make a real estate deal work. It reminded me of what I do know and that I will always learn more. The Property That Keeps On Teaching And today, I have learned more. There are several other lessons this whole situation taught me. Here are a few more behind-the-scenes stories. Money? What money? Have you ever said to yourself, that, fill-in-the-blank, is too expensive, I can't afford it, and you walk away somewhat relieved that you don't have to put yourself in the uncomfortable position of buying something that will stretch your limits? I understand I've done the same thing many times. The problem is, when it comes to real estate, if you automatically say, I can't afford it, you take yourself right out of the deal, and it may be an exceptionally good deal you're walking away from. One of many things I've learned from Robert's rich dad is that instead of saying, I can't afford it, ask yourself, how can I afford it? By asking yourself that question, it forces your mind to think and it's amazing the number of solutions you'll come up with. So that's what I do with almost every real estate deal I pursue. There was a time when I was just beginning in the world of real estate investing when I simply did not have the money because Robert and I were building our business, and we were broke. We barely had enough money to pay the bills. Actually, we didn't even have that much. So if we were going to purchase rental properties, we had to get creative. We had to come up with inventive ways to finance our down payments. Today, when I come across a good real estate deal, Robert and I rarely have the money we need, not because we're broke, but because our money is always invested. It would be easy to say, I don't have the money, and pass on the property, but it's more challenging and makes me smarter if I have to figure out how to come up with the money that I need. That was exactly the case with the Health and Fitness Club property. I pursued the property first. Once I decided that I intended to purchase the property, only then did I begin to figure out how we were going to come up with the down payment. On the Phoenix property, the time frame was short from the time I said, I'll take it to the day we actually closed, I had only about two weeks to create the cash funding needed. Tip. Lesson learned. When it comes to a single-tenant commercial property, not only is the buyer concerned about the quality of the tenant, but the lender is even more cautious. Fitness clubs in general at the time were not considered grade-A tenants, simply because of the number of clubs that had gone out of business throughout the years. 
The industry as a whole had a lower ranking when seen through the eyes of a lender because they were viewed as a higher-risk tenant. Because of this, the lender required an even greater down payment than an apartment building lender might require. So not only did I not have the money for the typical down payment, but also I had to come up with an additional 10% to get this deal done. The deal did get done. The down payment was a combination of cash we had on hand, a loan from our business, and a third private party loan. The loans were just that, loans, paying interest. No equity in the property was given up for these loans. One of the two loans has since been paid back, and the other will be paid off shortly. The rent on this property has increased annually as per the agreement, so every year the cash flow has increased, the cash-on-cash return on our investment has increased, and the overall value of the property has increased. It is an outstanding performing property. Yet when all the papers were signed, the cash changed hands, and we took ownership of this property, I made one more unbelievable mistake. The really big mistake. As we were leaving the law office where the closing took place, Craig, the broker, reminded me of something I had forgotten. He said, Just to let you know, I told you several weeks ago that the seller of this property you just bought owns the exact same property in a location up north. It's still on the market if you want to make an offer. After all I went through in the past few months, and then scrambling to find the funding for this property, I was just so relieved to get the deal closed that I laughed at him and without thinking said, Not right now, Craig. I'm tapped out. I can't afford it. And that was a very big and costly mistake. Instead of taking a step back and looking at the opportunity in front of me, I fell into the I-can't-afford-it trap and let a fantastic opportunity slip through my fingers. Had I taken the time and asked myself, How can I afford it? and put my mind to work, today, instead of one great performing health club property, I could have two great performing properties. It was a costly but priceless lesson. An attorney can be your friend. Yes, we've all heard the countless lawyer jokes. How can you tell when a lawyer is lying? His lips are moving. What's the difference between a dead dog in the road and a dead lawyer in the road? There are skid marks in front of the dog. Why don't sharks attack lawyers? Professional courtesy. I've met my share of attorneys who are the cause of these jokes. They are the ones who give lawyers as a whole a bad name and reputation. The two attorneys handling the Miami property did absolutely nothing to give me a warm and fuzzy feeling toward attorneys. But out of every bad deal comes something good, and in this case the good was our Scottsdale attorney, Chuck Lotzer, who is also a contributor to this book. Robert and I had met Chuck earlier through a mutual friend of ours. Chuck is a business attorney with a great deal of real estate experience, because the fitness club property I was purchasing is a single-tenant property, the lease agreement between the property owner and the tenant must be very tight. For that reason, we brought Chuck on board to review and give us his expertise on the agreement. Chuck made some necessary revisions in the agreement, and we all concurred 
But then he brought up a crucial point that I was not aware of. Remember earlier when I mentioned that with a single-tenant commercial property, the quality of your tenant is number one? As far as I could see, the tenant was a large, well-known National Fitness Club chain, but that's not what the lease agreement stated. Chuck red-flagged this and brought it to our attention. The tenant on the lease had a similar name to the national chain, but was an Arizona entity. The lease we were looking at had listed a subsidiary of the national chain as the lessee, not the national chain itself. I asked Chuck what that meant and why it was important. He asked me, This being a single-tenant property in a 44,000-square-foot building, sitting on 5.2 acres, what's your biggest concern? Simple, I responded. My biggest concern is that the tenant might move out before his lease is up. Exactly, he replied. If your lease is with a small Arizona subsidiary and they wanted to break their lease, they could simply declare bankruptcy and walk away, right? Yes, I answered. He continued, For a national chain to walk away from this lease, they have to declare bankruptcy of their entire chain. They cannot say these five properties are bankrupt, but these two hundred are not. They would have to walk away from all their properties. You want the national chain as the lessee for your protection against something like that happening. Lesson learned, I concluded. Chuck had to untangle the original lease agreement and then rework it, all the while getting all parties to consent to the changes necessary to make this deal work for us. It wasn't an easy task, but he got it done, and in the short time allotted. That's the benefit of having excellent legal advice and expertise. Chuck is not inexpensive, but he's worth his weight in gold. As a result of Chuck's diligence and know-how, he increased the value of our property well beyond what it would have been. So I'm happy to say that my respect and appreciation for the legal profession has been renewed. Yes, an attorney can be your friend. Tip. Lesson learned. When legal advice is needed on a real estate transaction, seek out a well-qualified expert and don't be afraid to pay well for it. Cheap advice is usually just that, cheap. And in my experience, whenever I go cheap, it ends up costing me more in the long run. Patience, a virtue, and an ongoing lesson. This same property to this day continues to teach me lessons I have yet to learn. So even though this property was purchased in 2004, my learning continues in a very good way. The latest is that this property is adjacent to three commercially zoned properties. They are all older buildings on land that could be added to our existing 5.2 acres to make a much larger property. So if any of these properties become available, we will naturally be interested in pursuing them. There is one property in particular that is of most interest to us. Knowing that was our long-term plan from the start, we offered Craig an equity position in the property in exchange for managing any problems or issues that might arise, and more importantly, for keeping us abreast of what's happening with the adjoining properties. 
People often ask why some of the best real estate deals seem to come to us first. My answer is pretty straightforward. We offer more to those we work with. It may be in the form of a higher commission, equity in the property, or solving a problem to help get the deal closed. Relationships, not the transaction, are the key to sound business. People who focus only on the transaction, getting the lowest price, paying the least in commissions, reneging on an agreement in order to get more money, etc., typically do not have strong relationships with those who have access to the best deals. If people are a pain to work with, otherwise known as high maintenance, then sooner or later people will stop working with them and the deal flow will dry up. Our brokers and real estate partners have become our good friends because we all trust one another and we all want one another to succeed and make a lot of money. We are in the relationship for the long term. Still patient. Craig has patiently been building relationships with the owners of these adjoining properties. He's candidly shared our interest in the properties, and they have openly been keeping Craig up to date on their plans. Again, it comes down to relationships. Many business people think you have to keep all your plans and desires close to the vest, that it's best not to reveal too much and sneak up on them at the last minute. That's a lot of work keeping things so secretive. When it comes to real estate, it's not rocket science. The property has a certain value. The buyer knows it, and the seller knows it. Every property has various uses. For example, an apartment building can be turned into individual condominiums or a hotel. A two-story office building could possibly become a four- or eight-story office building, the building could be torn down and something new could be put up in its place. What exactly the buyer has planned may not be revealed, but both parties know what the options are. So I prefer to be up front when possible and get to know the seller and what his or her needs are. It makes for a better negotiation and much less stress. Because of Craig's work, Robert and I now have a very pleasant relationship with the owners of the adjacent property. There's no hidden agenda. They know we want to buy their property. We talk openly about it. They also know we're not emotionally attached to it and will pay a price that makes good business sense. The owners have no need to sell right now. The property delivers a strong cash flow to them. We understand that. This is where patience comes in. We've been watching these properties for about four years and we'll continue to do so until the opportune moment arrives. Tip. Lesson learned. Sometimes the pieces have to come together and you just can't force that. You must wait patiently. The present versus the future. Oftentimes, the key with real estate is not so much what's happening today, but what you see coming in the future. This is where studying the market, watching and understanding the trends, and ongoing learning gives you the upper hand. By not understanding these things, your real estate investment could become one big fat liability instead of the asset you had intended. Look at what happened to so many investors in the subprime 2007 and 2008 real estate fiasco. 
They weren't paying attention to the signs, and it ended up costing them dearly. Why? As the market was surging and prices were soaring, many people thought the prices would just continue up, so they paid well over value for the properties, with generally one of these three scenarios in mind. One, they would buy the property and turn around quickly and sell it for a higher price, also known as flipping property. Two, they would buy a rental property and assume that housing prices would get so expensive that people could not afford to buy a home and rentals would be very attractive. Demand for rentals would increase and so would the rents. Three, they would buy a rental property, such as an apartment house, convert it to condos and sell them off individually for a big profit. Those strategies were all based on the then-present situation remaining the same, with prices continuing to increase. They were dealing with the present knowledge and ignoring the signs of future trends and situations. For example, my friend Ken McElroy, who is Robert's and my investment partner on several apartment buildings, said to me about two years before this current economical disaster came to be, Kim, Get ready for the market to turn. Housing prices are about to come down. Why do you say that? I asked. Because, he said, something just doesn't make sense when a husband and wife walk into our leasing office and fill out an application to rent an apartment. We turn them down because their income is too low to qualify for the rent they'd have to pay. But then they walk across the street to a condo complex and with the same income figures... They miraculously qualify to buy a condo with payments twice as high as our rent. This cannot go on for long. So Ken was already preparing for this mortgage crisis two years before it occurred because of a trend he saw occurring with his own properties. The Three P's, Patience, Preparation, and Profits Where patience pays off best is not to be patient just for patient's sake, but when you see the future trend unfolding and are preparing to take advantage of it. My neighbor Peter in Hawaii taught me about patience when he explained how he purchased a beautiful oceanfront house on the lot next to his residence. Peter understands real estate, and he understands trends. He's lived in Hawaii all his life, and he's seen the ups and downs of the market there. The house next door to his was purchased by a gentleman from Japan at a time when the Japanese were buying up a lot of Hawaiian real estate. He paid top dollar for this house. The house sat empty for years. One day, Peter noticed a for sale sign on the house and called the real estate agent. He discovered that the owner was facing some tough financial times and needed to sell the house. Of course, the house was listed for more than he paid for it. What the owner didn't realize, which Peter did, is that the Hawaii market had started on a downturn and prices were just beginning to fall. So he waited. Peter realized that by waiting, he risked the possibility of losing the property to someone who was willing to pay the asking price. But knowing the values of Hawaiian real estate and foreseeing prices falling even further, he was willing to take that risk. It wasn't long before he saw the words price reduced on the for sale sign. He called the agent. The price was still too high. He waited. He watched. 
another price reduction followed. He still waited. Finally, after about two years, the price came down to within striking range. He called the agent and made his offer. The offer was accepted. His patience paid off. The Future of Our Property I don't know if we'll end up purchasing any of the three properties adjacent to the property we own. That depends on the price, the terms, the market at the time, and the owner's wants and needs. But we are in position should that opportunity arise. Patience has already paid off to some degree simply because those properties are worth quite a bit less today than they were a couple of years ago. We prepare today for the future that we anticipate tomorrow. In summary, when it comes to real estate investing, the learning never stops. That's one of the beauties of being an active investor, hands-on, controlling the investment, closely involved, versus a passive investor, whereby you simply turn your money over to so-called financial experts and hope and pray they know what they're doing. The active investor is constantly learning, growing, and most importantly, getting smarter about money. The passive investor, by putting the money in someone else's hands and walking away, learns nothing. When the real estate market changes, it forces us to get smarter and more creative in order to use the changes to our advantage. Every property is a teacher to me in some way. If I learn my lessons well, I get a high grade. If I don't, it's a low grade. And my grade is determined by my primary reason for becoming a real estate investor. Cash flow. My two favorite words in the world of investing. Kim Kiyosaki began her real estate investing career in 1989 with the purchase of a small two-bedroom, one-bath rental property in Portland, Oregon. Today, Kim's real estate holdings include over 1,200 apartment units, commercial properties, and land, and she continues adding to her property portfolio. With a passion for educating women about money and investing, Kim draws on a lifetime of experience in business, real estate, and investing in her mission to support financial education. She is a sought-after speaker, television and radio talk show guest, the host of a PBS Rich Woman show, as well as a columnist for WomanEntrepreneur.com. She is a self-made millionaire and a happily married but fiercely independent woman. Her first book, Rich Woman, a book on investing for women, hit the Business Week bestseller list the month it was released and has held a spot there for the past 11 months. Rich Woman is a bestseller in Mexico, South Africa, India, Australia, New Zealand, and across Europe. Kim has used the international forum of the Rich Dad brand to showcase the startling statistics related to women and money, and through Rich Woman and www.richwoman.com, she has created a community where women can learn and grow and seek their own financial security and independence. Donald J. Trump, Chapter 25 In the Beginning Much of the world has heard or seen The Apprentice, Donald Trump's long-running television program. By writing a book together, I have had the benefit of being sort of an apprentice to Donald. Spending time writing Why We Want You to Be Rich, Two Men, One Message, 
I learned a lot about him personally, his business philosophy, his real estate philosophy, and why he is as successful as he is. Robert Kiyosaki My First Big Deal I was still in college when I did my first big deal. I spent my spare time in college reading the listings of federally financed housing projects that were in foreclosure. I knew my colleagues might be reading the sports pages, but real estate truly was my focus, even then. So I would devote my time to studying everything I could to learn about it. One day, I came across Swifton Village, which was in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was in big trouble, with 800 out of 1,200 vacant apartments. The developers had faltered. The government had foreclosed, and it wasn't looking too good. In fact, it was a mess. It was such a mess that there were no other bidders. This did not discourage me because I saw it as a big opportunity. I presented the situation at Swifton Village to my father, and we bought it together for less than $6 million. The project had cost $12 million two years earlier. We got a mortgage for what we paid, plus about $100,000 that we used to fix up the property which it badly needed. In translation, this means we got this project without putting down any of our own money, and it would be possible from the rent proceeds to cover the mortgage. As a college student, I found this to be very exciting stuff. I knew it'd be a challenge, and it was, but my enthusiasm was there because I could so clearly see a success coming out of it. I had done enough research to know it had great potential, potential as well as immediate problems. This complex had a reputation for having rent runners, tenants who would rent a trailer and in the middle of the night would pile their belongings into it and disappear. This happened on a regular basis, so I realized an immediate action would be for me to hire someone for 24-7 patrol, which I did. The other thing that had to be addressed quickly was the state of the buildings themselves. Disrepair is one thing, dilapidation is another, and this complex had a high proportion of both conditions. We estimated it would require at least $800,000 to make an effective difference. One good thing is that we were allowed to increase the rents immediately, which we found much easier to do in Cincinnati than in New York. The buildings were red brick, and we put white shutters on all the windows, which made a huge difference aesthetically. We fixed up the grounds. We replaced the very unattractive aluminum front doors on the apartments with white colonial doors, which, combined with the shutters, made a big difference. We didn't take shortcuts, but we made sure our improvements would be noticeable, and they were. Swifton Village had a new look, and people were impressed. We ran ads in the Cincinnati papers, and in less than a year, it was completely rented. We soon realized that we needed a permanent project manager. This was a big complex, and we'd already been through a few who hadn't worked out. I finally found a guy who has left a permanent impression on my memory. He was a con man from the inside out. He didn't try to hide that fact, and he had close to zero social skills. He was insulting, brash, and as politically incorrect as you could possibly be, but I noticed that he had the ability to get things done, to get them done quickly, and that he was effective as a property manager. The other guys I had might be more likable or more honest, but they were not as competent when it came to their job. I had to keep my eye on this particular guy, but in the long run, it was worth it to have the complex running well. This property became a great success, and it didn't require me to be there very often. The property manager ran the place well, and there were no more rent runners. All was well until a few years later when I visited and spoke with a tenant who had become a friend. He told me that the neighborhood had changed and that I should get out. Swifton Village was fully rented and there were no complaints about the management, but I respected his insights enough to spend a few days in Cincinnati and check it out for myself. I discovered that he was right. It was quickly becoming a very rough neighborhood. 
I decided to put Swifton Village up for sale, and it didn't take long to find a buyer. We sold it for $12 million, $6 million more than we had paid for it a few years earlier. For a first deal, it was a good one, and I learned some great lessons about human nature in the process. I also learned that foreclosures were not going to be my niche, but this first venture helped to fund my ultimate goal, which was to be a developer in Manhattan and to build my own buildings. I wasn't dabbling. My focus was intact. Another lesson was the importance of delivering quality. I made sure the buildings were clean, safe, and well presented. We didn't have marble floors or gold fixtures, but the simple steps of making the grounds appealing, along with the addition of white shutters and attractive front doors, went a long way to establishing my name with excellence. That's something to always keep in mind. Whether your name is on the building or not, learn to distinguish yourself in everything you do. Arriving in Manhattan Starting out in Manhattan was definitely a challenge. One big New York real estate guy was quoted as saying, Trump has a great line of S.T., but where are the bricks and mortar? It wasn't exactly a warm welcome, but at least I knew what I was up against. Looking back, I think perhaps they didn't know who they were up against. I'm the guy who would eventually write, never give up, and actually mean it. I'm still here, and going stronger than ever. That wasn't the case in the early 1970s. I was a newcomer, and the city was in debt. I even heard people talking about the city going bankrupt. It wasn't a nurturing environment for a budding developer, but my focus was so clear that I wasn't discouraged. I knew there were still opportunities even in a so-called terrible market. In fact, it was a terrible market at that time. But my determination was such that I refused to give in to the facts and continued to work my way around them. There was no place like Manhattan, and I intended to stay. My first real estate interests in the city were the abandoned rail yards along the Hudson River at 34th Street and 60th Street, which was about 100 acres. I then tried to convince the city that the site for the new convention center, now known as the Jacob Javits Center, should be built where it is on West 34th Street instead of where the city wanted to build it all the way downtown in Battery Park. As I said in my first book in 1987, The Art of the Deal, we won by wearing everyone else down. We never gave up. In referring to this 1977 battle. In 1978, the city finally decided to build on West 34th Street, which was a victory for me. However, the city and state decided they would oversee the job. My offer to manage it was rejected, and as a result, they went close to $700 million over budget. A lot of money was wasted, and today we are seeing how quickly the center has deteriorated. But at the time, I focused myself on the far more exciting prospect of the 60th Street rail yards that I had. I wanted to make it a residential haven that faced the Hudson River. I knew I'd face a lot of opposition there between zoning and the adjacent community, as well as from a city that was in financial crisis. It was in 1979 that I allowed my option on the 60th Street rail yards to expire, but somehow I knew I'd be involved with them again later, which has proven to be true. Trump Place now proudly stands on those former yards and is still being completed almost 30 years later. But that's another story. During this time with the rail yard property, I was still looking around at other opportunities in Manhattan. The old Commodore Hotel, which was situated next to Grand Central Station, was having a hard time of it. The whole area was having a hard time, in fact, and it looked like it. It had become a crummy neighborhood that everyone tried to avoid, certainly much different than it is today. I set out to try to acquire the Commodore Hotel and change it for the better. Once again, I wasn't met with great enthusiasm. 
Even my father said, buying the Commodore at a time when even the Chrysler building is in bankruptcy is like fighting for a seat on the Titanic. He was well aware of the risk involved. While I was aware of the risk, I also saw it as a way to get the city back to a flourishing condition, not just limping along, which is what was happening. The neighborhood had become dilapidated, and this was a good way to get it back on track again, along with providing some jobs. There are always several ways to view a situation, and it's a good idea to have your vision intact enough to withstand opposition. At the time that I was interested in going into negotiations for the hotel, they owed $6 million in back taxes, had recently spent $2 million in renovations, which was obviously not enough, and they wanted out. In order to purchase the hotel for $10 million, I would need a tax abatement from the city of New York, financing, and a commitment from an experienced hotel company. In addition, I would have to structure a deal with other interested parties, and that was certain to be complex. Complicated is an understatement for this situation, and it took several years of negotiating to work it all out. One of the first things I did was to find a designer who knew what I wanted to do and had the same enthusiasm for the project. I found a young architect named Der Scott who was a perfect fit. He understood what I wanted to do, which was to wrap the building and make it a reflecting facade for the building surrounding it. It might have been premature to find a designer before I knew the deal would even go through, but I'm a strong believer in following your vision and working from there. I also had a compatriot in vision who believed in my plans as vividly as I did. I also needed to find an operator, one with a lot of experience. I realized that a lot of big hotel chains had a presence in New York, but the one that I liked the most, the Hyatt, didn't. I called to see if they were interested, and they were. We made a deal quickly and announced it to the press in May of 1975. So I had a hotel partner. What was left was still monumental. I needed to get financing and a tax abatement from the city. I decided to hire a real estate broker who was in his 60s and had a lot of experience. I was 27 at the time, and I thought having a broker on board would look good, which it did. With an architect, a hotel partner, and an experienced broker lined up, I was ready to go for it. We hit a brick wall, and fast. Without financing, the city wasn't about to consider a tax abatement. Without a tax abatement, the banks weren't very interested in financing. It was a classic catch-22 situation. While discussing this, we decided we'd bring up the obviously hurting and decaying city and hopefully make the bankers feel guilty for looking the other way when we were obviously trying to do something constructive. Well, that didn't work. But we kept trying, and we finally found a bank that appeared to be interested. After spending many hours of time and effort with them, one guy suddenly just changed his mind. He brought up ridiculous and unimportant issues and was obviously trying to kill the deal. We tried everything, but he was set in a negative groove and couldn't be convinced to change his mind. It was at this point that I wanted to give up. Literally, I was worn out. It was my lawyer, George Ross, who convinced me to keep trying, and he made it clear that I'd already spent so much time on this project that I shouldn't just walk away from it. So I decided to approach the city, even without financing, to explain the situation. It was clear that the Hyatt Hotel organization was enthusiastic about coming to New York, and they'd do a great job, but the costs were just too high. We needed a break on property taxes or nothing would be done. I also pointed out how the new hotel could work as a catalyst for sparking up the whole Grand Central area into renovation and rejuvenation. It worked. The city agreed, and it was a deal that would make us partners and a deal that would benefit everyone. 
I would receive a property tax abatement for 40 years, and I would buy the Commodore for $10 million, with $6 million going to the city for back taxes. Then I would sell the hotel to the city for $1, and they would lease it back to me for 99 years. As a result, we got financing from two institutions. None of this was easy, and when I look back, I realize I had great fortitude to hang in there for so long, but it was worth it. The Hyatt at Grand Central started the revitalization of the whole area, and today it's a thriving and beautiful hub of New York City. The hotel itself reflects the architecture of the area in the four exterior walls of mirrors that replaced the formerly dingy facade of the Commodore. This project did not have my name on it, but I can tell you that every detail mattered. The quality was there, the vision was there, and the results are still there. Quotable Quotes by Donald Trump Big problems can equal big opportunities. If you don't have major problems, you're probably not doing something major. Adversity is a fact of life. Accept that, and you will be prepared. Business is an art, whether it's real estate or anything else. Treat it that way by developing your technique, being tenacious, and remaining passionate. My father's four-step formula is one I've always used because it works. Get in, get it done, get it done right, and get out. When you are confronted with a problem, ask yourself this question. Is this a blip or is it a catastrophe? That will align your thoughts and your reactions to where they should be. Reaping and sowing are directly related, but you need to know which comes first. Resilience is part of the survival of the fittest formula. Make sure you remain adaptable. Real estate has a way of evening itself out. There are always ups and downs, and that's a fact, not an aberration. Don't depend on anyone else for providing your financial security. 10 Small Steps to Big Success Find out what you love to do. Trust yourself enough to find out what is best for you and what you're best at doing. For great success, you need great passion, but make sure it's well directed. 2. Learn everything you can about what you're doing. Be an expert. 3. Ask yourself questions. For example, ask yourself, is there anyone else who can do this better than I can? It's another way of saying know yourself and know your competition. That can simplify things quickly. 4. Know the world. See the world as an emerging market. Study it daily. That's a requirement, not an elective. 5. Focus, and make sure it's a 100% focus, nothing less. 6. Know your own blind spots. Ask yourself, what am I pretending not to see? 7. Set the bar high. Do the best you possibly can. 8. Think positively. Zap negativity immediately. Focus on the solution, not the problem. 9. Be persistent, tenacious, and alert every single day. Get this momentum going daily and don't let up. 10. Never give up. Never, never give up. That is the best advice I can give you. Donald Trump is the chairman and president of the Trump Organization, a privately held company in New York. The Trump Organization encompasses global real estate development and global licensing, sales and marketing, property management, golf course development, entertainment, product licensing, and brand development. In a departure from his real estate acquisitions, he is a best-selling author, produces and stars in the television reality show The Apprentice, and partners with NBC Television Network in the ownership and broadcast rights for Miss Universe, Miss USA, and Miss Teen USA pageants. He is the archetypal businessman.
a deal-maker without peer, and an ardent philanthropist. Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump Chapter 26 What is the most important thing you've learned from your father about real estate? Donald Trump Jr. Don Trump Jr.'s father and I are the same age. The famous Donald Trump, one of the greatest celebrity real estate developers in the world, is a valued friend and mentor to me. Having Donald Trump as a co-author and friend has been one of the greatest blessings in my life. Another blessing has been getting to know Donald's two sons, Don Jr. and Eric. One night, Donald Trump and I were guests at the Quill Awards, an evening similar to the Academy Awards, but rather than recognizing Hollywood stars, the Quill Awards recognizes great authors. Donald Trump and I were there to present the award to the best business author. At the awards dinner, I got to sit next to Don Trump Jr. and his gorgeous wife. For some reason, our discussion got around to the subject of big game hunting. At that dinner, I found out that Don Jr., along with his brother Eric, is not only a hunter, but a gun collector, just like me. Now, I know that guns and hunting are not politically correct subjects, so it was refreshing to find a young man, actually two, who shared the same passion in life, a subject I tend to be secretive about, even to my wife Kim, who is an animal rights activist and person who is not particularly fond of guns. Kim, like Donald Trump, prefers the golf course to the wilds. Over the years, I have gone hunting with Don Jr. and Eric a number of times and have gotten to know them personally. They have it all. They are rich, famous, good-looking, and perfect gentlemen. They are not spoiled brats, as many rich kids are. They are driven, smart, experienced, and market-savvy. I learn a lot about real estate and life on every hunting trip we take together. Their father and mother can be very proud of these two young men. Robert Kiyosaki Tip. In life and in business, you never get anything you don't ask for. Always negotiate. This simple statement seems so obvious, but I am always amazed by the number of people who miss out on incredible opportunities because they're too afraid to simply ask. Ultimately, these people fear rejection. They are afraid of the word no. They are either shy, weak, or too proud to ask for something or to negotiate the things they want in life. The world of real estate is no place for people who fit this description. So here's your chance to buck up. Shrinking from the task of negotiating by being afraid of simply asking for what they want, people from all walks of life, not just real estate, miss a fundamental opportunity to do what all great business people try to do, buy goods or service at a better price. I learned from my father at a very early age that in business you must take advantage of every easy opportunity. He didn't sit me down and explain this lesson. Rather, it was one that took me two summers of very hard work to figure out. My first job was as a dock attendant at a marina we owned as part of what was, at the time, Trump's Castle Casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I was 14 years old and living away from home for two months, tying down boats and hooking up electrical and water systems and anything else that I could be persuaded to do for minimum wage plus tips. Everyone should work for tips at some point in their life. Nothing puts life, service, and work ethic into such clear perspective as that. Working for tips was a great lesson in and of itself. After two summers of dock work, it was time for me to start working as a landscaper at one of our properties. The position had a lot more responsibility and required more skill. I ran tractors, I operated chainsaws, and I performed the hard labor required to keep the property looking pristine. 
I was making minimum wage at this job, too, but there were no tips from the drunken boaters who occasionally let a twenty slip through their hands. My salary was minimum wage and nothing more. At first, I said nothing about the pay structure of this job. I didn't want to seem greedy, and I suppose I was too proud to ask for more money. But toward the end of the summer, I finally went to my father and asked him why I had not gotten a raise when I took this more skilled position, especially since the tip component of my salary was now non-existent. His answer was very simple. You did not get a raise because you did not ask for one. Why would I pay you more than you were willing to work for? Well, that did it for me. It was a hard lesson and one that in hindsight seemed so obvious. But the bottom line was that I had let my emotions, my fears, and my pride get in the way of what I wanted to achieve. Since then, I always make a conscious effort to never put myself in the same position again. The hard work that summer didn't bother me, but I felt like I had wasted an entire summer working a job that paid minimum wage when I could have been earning more if I had only asked for it. That lesson has stuck with me to this day. As is often the case, the hardest lessons are the best lessons, and my summer as a minimum wage landscaper certainly drove the message home. Thankfully, I learned it before the stakes got too high. If you're going to lose income, it's always better to do it when playing with low numbers. Learn your lessons like I did before too many zeros get into the mix. I no longer let the fear of no overpower me. Instead, I make a game of negotiations. Here's how I play it, and you can do it too. At every opportunity I ask for, negotiate, and almost always get something above and beyond where I started. To me, any time I save a few dollars or get an extra something thrown in, whatever that something may be that I'm asking for, I have created additional value. And here's a universal truth. Creating value is what business is all about. When it comes to real estate and life in general, don't be afraid to ask. The worst that can happen is that the person you ask says no, and in that case, you're no worse off than you were when you started. Asking is quick, it takes two seconds, and believe it or not, good business people expect it. By simply asking, you give yourself and everyone else the time and the opportunity to put themselves in a better financial position and add value. Even if you get the dreaded no at first, it's not so bad. Sure, you may not get exactly what you wanted, but often you can split the difference and end up somewhere in the middle with each side giving a little and getting a little. That's the power of negotiation. Even in that scenario, you end up ahead. The reality that I learned all too well is to just keep asking and pushing. No one in his right mind will refuse to sell you something at his original price simply because you tried to buy it cheaper. The worst-case scenario is that you end up exactly where you started. Eventually, you will come to realize that hearing no is not the worst thing in the world. After all, it becomes part of the game and hearing no actually makes it easier for you to ask in the future. Eventually, you'll get bolder. You'll discover when you ask for something egregious that you think the other person can't possibly deliver, often the compromised position ends up more in your favor than you could have ever hoped for. In some cases, the person may agree to your crazy question and take the bait, hook, line, and sinker. When playing the game, try not to fall out of your chair when this happens, and it will, because the last thing you want is the other person to realize that he made a mistake. He may try to renegotiate for a better deal, leaving you snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. The same holds true if a seller gives you a quote that you find completely thrilling. Don't accept the proposal as is. Go through the exercise of back-and-forth negotiation. Even after the back-and-forth seems to be over, ask him to do a bit better just so he feels he got the most out of you. It's how the game is played and it will ensure the deal closes. 
There will be time for exuberance, but it is not when you are at the table. Practice restraint so the other person feels they got the best of you, not the other way around. Do that, and you set the tone for future negotiations, and you set yourself up to win again and again and again. Finally, the more you ask, the easier it becomes to ask in the future. Hearing no becomes no big deal. You'll find the habit of asking and the skill of pushing creates a positive cycle of circumstances that can create benefits for you and the projects you apply the techniques to. Try to negotiate at every opportunity. I mean every opportunity. You'll be surprised where you'll find results. I even try negotiating at retail stores. When the regular clerk who is checking me out says no, I ask to speak to his manager. Do this and you're almost guaranteed a 10% break if you push a bit. Sounds crazy? Try it and see. A 10% savings is 10% earned. When you build up confidence in your negotiation techniques, become flexible in how you argue your points, and can adjust your style, you'll find the negotiating game becomes easier. Give it a go. You have nothing to lose and a lot to gain. Donald Trump Jr. is an innovator and leader in today's young business world. As an executive vice president at the Trump Organization, Donald Jr. works in tandem with his siblings, Ivanka and Eric, to expand the company's real estate, retail, commercial, and hotel interests nationally and internationally. His extensive real estate development experience, rigorous education, and inherent business sense add a level of detail and depth to the management of all current and future Trump projects. In addition to his real estate interests, Donald Jr. is an accomplished and sought-after speaker and has been featured as an advisor on the highly acclaimed NBC show, The Apprentice. Eric Trump I am afraid to say my wife, Kim, is in love with Eric Trump. While she is very fond of Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr., Eric has a special place in her heart. She loves him because he is an especially kind person, just like her, and good-looking. He is the youngest of three children, just like Kim, who is the youngest of three daughters. While all three Trump children have that celebrity magic, to Kim, Eric is special. One of the most memorable times in my life was when Don Jr. and Eric invited me to hunt pheasants at their club, an hour out of New York City. At the time, I did not really know the two young men. Spending the day in the mud and the cold, slogging through knee-high water and chasing pheasants with dogs, let me know how truly special and unique they are. I got to see them outside of the high-rise offices next to the Plaza Hotel and Central Park on Fifth Avenue. One of the first things I noticed is both young men shoot and collect the same antique shotguns I collect. They are old shotguns, about 75 years old, from Belgium, made by Francotte, a family of gunmakers few people have heard of. The next thing I noticed was how kind and respectful Eric and his brother were to everyone. They were not snobbish or arrogant. They were not even phony gentlemen. They were truly kind and respectful. It did not matter if the people were members of the club or workers of the club. All people were treated with the same warmth and respect. Later, as we drove back to New York City, we stopped by an old village inn, possibly 200 years old, to have a meal. Again, both young men went out of their way to greet and say hello to the staff of the restaurant. While the patrons gawked and stared at the two young celebrities, Eric and his brother went behind the counter into the kitchen to say hello to the kitchen staff. 
I gained a new level of respect for each of them on that day. Their kindness is extraordinary. In 2008, I invited both young men to a private island in the chain of Hawaiian Islands for a hunt. As we drove to the helicopter pad, Eric was texting his sister, Ivanka, a special family recipe. When I asked him if he knew how to cook, he and his brother chimed in saying, Of course! When I asked them how they learned to cook, both young men explained that they saw their family service staff as servants for their mom and dad, not servants for them. Rather than become spoiled kids who expected to be waited upon by their parents' servants, they learned to cook and take care of themselves and each other. I can say that all three children truly love each other. Today, I see all three kids as incredible role models for the next generation, just as their dad and mom were role models for my generation. It is with personal gratitude that my life's work has put me in contact with the Trump family and the people of the Trump Organization. Robert Kiyosaki For as long as I can remember, every morning started out the same way. I would make my way to my father's bedroom before school and kiss him goodbye. As I was leaving, he would always say, And remember, Eric, never trust anyone. These certainly are not the words you typically hear a father say to a son who is heading off to kindergarten, and the true meaning of the words didn't quite resonate until adulthood. Today, however, as I grow our business, my father's lesson is more relevant than ever. I first learned the meaning of my father's words from my older brother Don, who is not only my best friend, but also a mentor to me to this day. After school, Don would always suggest that we trade the coins in our piggy banks. I would happily exchange my quarters for several of his shiny pennies, thinking that the quantity I was receiving far outweighed the actual value of my coins. One day I walked into my father's room with my pile of pennies to show him what a great investment I had just made. Noticing how Don was conning his little brother, my father looked at me, explained the concept of value versus quantity, and exclaimed, Eric, what did I tell you? Never trust anyone. Suddenly, I remembered his daily admonition. Today, as Executive Vice President of Development and Acquisitions for the Trump Organization, I encounter situations on a daily basis that make me reflect on my father's words and advice. I've realized that self-reliance is a business person's most essential tool. Take one particular instance. I was negotiating a mutual partnership to bring an ultra-exclusive restaurateur into one of our projects. After months of tedious negotiations, the night before we intended to sign the deal, I learned, through a slip-up made by one of the restaurateur's architects, that they had been instructed to build a restaurant far exceeding all our agreed-upon budgets. Shocked by the dishonesty and fraudulent intentions exhibited by my would-be partner, I immediately cut off all negotiations and ended the deal. I am a firm believer that everything happens for a reason, and despite being upset over months of wasted efforts, today I have a smile on my face knowing we made the right decision, went with a different restaurateur, and now own the most successful restaurant in the city. In a similar instance, my father knew a successful businessman who pledged to donate $40 million to be paid in four equal installments to his alma mater. After paying the first two installments, the businessman ran into severe financial difficulties and asked the college for additional time in which to pay the remaining $20 million. Instead of being grateful for the $20 million that it had received, the college sued this man for both non-performance and breach of his contractual obligations. 
Eventually, this individual was forced to file for bankruptcy, and though he ultimately made a full financial recovery and was able to come back even stronger than before, he vowed to never give another cent to the college. I have been fortunate to have lived a privileged life and am sincerely grateful for my family, education, and upbringing. However, make no mistake that with this lifestyle I also face difficult challenges. It is human nature to be envious of what other people have. However, oftentimes such envy creates a variety of rationalizations for bad behavior. As a child, you do not necessarily see or know that you are privileged or underprivileged, and therefore you can be an easy target for people who may have ill intentions. That was me. But my father's words helped me to see the world as it is and learn that people usually act in their own self-interest, even to the detriment of others at times. This belief is a fine line to walk because I typically like to give people the benefit of the doubt, but as I grow older, I often tend to expect the worst from people, so I can avoid being taken by surprise or being disappointed. It is an unfortunate but necessary stance. However, it gives me a new appreciation and insight into what my father was trying to instill in me as a young child. Discernment comes with experience. In business and in life, there is simply one reality. There are good people and bad. There always have been and always will be. The simple lesson to learn is trust yourself, not others. Keep your head out of the clouds, and you will always succeed. As an executive vice president of development and acquisitions for the Trump Organization, Eric Trump is actively involved in all aspects of real estate development, both nationally and internationally. From the initial acquisitions and development partnerships to the final design, construction, sales, and marketing functions, he plays a pivotal role in Trump projects around the world. Eric appears as a keynote speaker for real estate conferences nationwide, as well as in various press outlets such as CNBC, Fox, NBC, and the New York Post. Along with his work with the Trump Organization, he works fervently to aid children in need having started the Eric Trump Foundation for St. Jude Children's Hospital. Robert Kiyosaki, Chapter 27 Overcoming the Fear of Failing For years I have traveled the world speaking on entrepreneurship and investing. My intent is to highlight the importance of financial education and how financial education is essential to financial freedom and financial security. When asked what I personally invest in, I say, I became financially independent investing in real estate. Regardless of where I am, the United States, Australia, South Africa, Europe, or Asia, or to whom I am speaking, rich or poor, what I hear back are similar responses to the idea of investing in real estate. Here are a few choice comments. I don't want to fix toilets. I don't have any money. I don't have the time. Real estate is risky. What if I lose money? You can't do what you do here. It is my opinion these responses are simply excuses. Excuses that mask a deeper, darker, hidden, unexpressed reality. In my opinion, most people who use these excuses are 1. Not educated in real estate 2. Lazy 3. Afraid of failing 4. All of the above I say this because most people want to be financially free. Most people would love to have financial security. Most people would love to have money coming in regardless of whether they worked or not. 
Many people would love to stop working and do something they really wanted to do. To me, real estate represents freedom. Real estate means control over my life and my future. I am not depending upon a retirement plan filled with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, investment that someone else manages. I want control of my financial destiny. This is why when I hear such excuses as, I don't have any money, or I don't want to fix toilets, I know these excuses are just that. I know people are looking at the journey, not the destination. A friend of mine has two sayings about this human failing. His first saying is, Everyone wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die. His second, many people will not start the journey until all the lights are green. Unfortunately, too many people allow their excuses to get between them and the life they would love to live. Rather than look beyond real estate, looking at what becoming a real estate investor can do for their lives, most people are blinded by their own excuses. They see what they are afraid of rather than what they want in life. Fear and laziness blur their vision, limiting the boundary of their lives. The following are my points of view regarding the four excuses. Excuses of the poor. Excuse number one, no education. Most people are smart enough to invest in real estate. Investing in real estate is not that tough. Anyone who has bought a home or rented a place to live has invested in real estate. So investing in real estate is not tough. Making money in real estate is another matter. Making money in real estate takes real real estate education. When I speak of making money in real estate, I am speaking of cash flow. Cash flow is income coming in every month, regardless of whether I work or not. I am not talking about capital gains. When people say their house has appreciated in value or they flipped a property, buying low, fixing it up, and selling it, they are speaking of capital gains. There is a tremendous difference between cash flow and capital gains. In my opinion, capital gains are easier to achieve than cash flow. Achieving sustainable cash flow requires a higher degree of financial education. The good news is... You do not have to go to college for four years to get this education. A three-day seminar is sufficient if it is a good seminar. The Rich Dad Company offers beginning and advanced courses in real estate investing. In 1997, when Rich Dad Poor Dad was published, I wrote about the difference between assets and liabilities. My Rich Dad's definitions were simple. Assets put money in your pocket, and liabilities take money from your pocket. In the book, I stated, your house is not an asset, it is a liability. In other words, for most people, their biggest real estate investment, their house, cash flows out, not in. I received hate mail for years because of this one point. After the subprime mess, massive foreclosures, and declining home values, millions of people now realize that real estate can be either an asset or a liability. For most people, their home is a liability, even if the mortgage is paid off. Most homes are liabilities because most homes do not produce any income. Most homes cost money for insurance, property tax, repairs, and other expenses. If a person sells his or her home and the sale puts money in that person's pocket, at that moment, the home is an asset. Until then, it is a liability. Tip. To be financially free, your real estate must produce income in good or bad economies. 
Once you learn to do that, you are free for life. This is why a little financial education is important. Excuse number two, laziness. Laziness is a personal matter. I know I am lazy. I battled the lazy boy inside of me on a daily basis. For example, when I wake up, I know I should go to the gym, but the lazy boy says, Oh, you can exercise tomorrow. Why not make a cup of coffee and read the paper? By the age of two, most people are experts at making excuses. When I hear people say, I don't want to fix toilets, or I don't have enough money, I know these are excuses from a lazy person because I use the same excuses. When I hear someone repeat to me the same excuses I use myself, I want to say, what makes you think I want to fix toilets? Or, what makes you think I have money? But what I really want to say is, it's because I don't want to fix toilets and it's because I want to have a lot of money. That's why I invest in real estate. Rich Dad often said, Many lazy people are hard-working people. At first, I did not understand what he meant. As I got older, I began to understand his words more clearly. Growing older, I also found it easier to be busy at work than it was to do what I needed to do. Today, I still use excuses such as, I'm busy, or I have too much work to do, or I need a break. Today, I meet many hard-working people hiding behind the curtain of hard work, yet deep down they are too lazy to get rich. So they invent an excuse. When I was in high school, my poor dad often said to me, I can't go to your football game because I've got work to do. He never attended a game in the three years I played high school football. He also said the same thing about becoming rich or at least financially free. He was always busy. In my opinion, he often used hard work as an excuse to hide from life. He was a good, hard-working, high-income, poor man. My rich dad was a rich man because he did not work hard for money. Instead, he worked hard at having his money work hard for him. The harder his money worked, the more money he made, and the more free time he had. The more free time he had, the more money he made. This drove my poor dad crazy. My poor dad often called people like my rich dad the idle rich. Rather than have his money work hard, my poor dad put his money in the bank. My poor dad believed in saving money. This drove my rich dad crazy. He would say, your father works hard because his money is lazy. All your dad's money does is sit in the bank. I come along, borrow your dad's money, buy a piece of real estate, and put your dad's money to work for me. Tip. Professional education is all about learning to work for money. Financial education is all about learning to have money work for you. So the question is, who works harder, you or your money? Excuse number three, fear of failing. Fear is often a combination of lack of education and laziness. The acronym F-E-A-R, fear, stands for false evidence appearing real. Because of fear, many people see only what can go wrong. Due to lack of education, they cannot see what can go right. When I am asked, how does a person overcome the fear of failing? I simply reply, get some education, gain some experience, find a mentor, and get off your butt. In other words, improve your vision. 
See what most people cannot see. See the opportunities most people cannot see because of fear. See the destination and the journey. Tip. One of the reasons I have a team of advisors when I invest is simply that each person sees something different. After listening to what each person has to say, I then make up my mind. Most great investments are right in front of you. The problem is seeing them. The reason most investments are hard to see is that great investments are seen with your mind, not your eyes. Years ago, I wanted to buy a piece of ranch land. My dream was to build a remote mountain cabin in the woods. I also wanted it for free. After challenging my mind, I went looking for my dream. A few months later, I came across a spectacular piece of property. It was approximately 80 acres, including an old rock house built in the 1880s. The asking price was $115,000. I believe I put $10,000 down with the terms of no interest and no payments and asked for one year to pay off the balance. After fixing the house, I subdivided the property, sold 30 acres with the house for approximately $215,000. I put some money, about $75,000, net in my pocket and still have the 50 free acres today. After the transaction was completed, a neighbor who lived in a remote cabin a few miles away came by and was upset that I had made money and got 50 acres for free. She had watched the property for years, but did nothing. She had a similar idea, but failed to buy the property because she was afraid of failing. What would you have done if you had failed? She asked. What if the property had not sold? I still would have had my dream, I replied. It would not have been for free, yet I would still have my dream. But what if you had failed, she demanded. Taking a deep breath, I replied, I knew that if things did not work out, I would have been creative and tried something else. Every failure would have made me smarter and eventually more successful. You can fail only if you do nothing. She looked back at me and said, And I did nothing, so I failed. Shrugging my shoulders, I said softly, I leave that decision up to you. The Deadliest Word one of the most deadly words in the English language is the word try. When someone says they will try to do something, I know they will probably not do it. There is a world of difference between the statements, I will try to do it, and I will do it. The difference between the two statements is the word commitment. My favorite way of describing the word commitment comes from the following question and answer. Question. What is the difference between bacon and eggs? Answer. The chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. If you want to become financially free, don't be a chicken. Get committed. Forbid yourself from using the word try. You either will or you won't. The Power of Education About 20 years ago, I took a simple two-day course on creative financing. I believe I paid about $350 for the program. I think lunch was included. If it hadn't been for that course, I would not have seen the free land opportunity. My neighbor, who did not take the course, could not see what I saw. All she could see was failure. As most of us know, we are in the information age. The problem is, there is too much information. 
The reason education is important is that education trains our brains to selectively take in information and turn information into meaning. Due to a lack of real estate education, my neighbor was overwhelmed with information, most of it negative. Her brain was not trained to focus, process information, and turn it into positive meaning. That is why a little real estate education can be priceless. Rich People and Cowards Fear is a very powerful human emotion. How we handle fear determines if we become rich people or cowards. When it comes to money, fear turns most people into cowards. Is it okay to have fear? While fear causes most people to do nothing, fear causes other people to take action. Since I do not want to fail and lose money, I take real estate education classes and read books on real estate. I did it 20 years ago and am still learning today. That is why I could ask my brain to find me a piece of land that I didn't have to pay for and why I continue to invest today. Buying the 80 acres or any investment, I still have fear. I still fear losing. I just use my fear to take action and get smarter. I know that if things do not go right, I will use my creative mind and gain wisdom in the process. Many people use fear of failing as a reason to do nothing. Tip. Fear causes most people to do nothing. Fear causes other people to take action. I still have fear. I still fear losing. I just use my fear to take action and get smarter. Then there are people who attend real estate classes, study hard, and they still let fear stop them. One reason is due to analysis paralysis. That means they study too much. When it comes time to put their money on the line, the coward in them chimes in and gives them all the reasons why the deal will not work. Just before they sign the papers, Chicken Little pops into their head and begins to shout, The sky is falling! The sky is falling! Just as I battled the lazy boy in me, I also do battle with my own resident Chicken Little. One of the beauties of real estate is that you have time to think. There have been many times that I have found a piece of property, put in an offer, had the offer accepted, and then I began my research, a process known as due diligence. It is during this due diligence period, a period that can be as short as a week or as long as six months, that I bring in my team of advisors and mentors. When I make the final decision either to buy or back out, I make it as a member of a calm, rational, educated and experienced team, like the team who contributed to this book. Due diligence periods do not guarantee success. There can still be unforeseen problems. If a problem arises, again I call on a team to assist me with problem solving, and it is that problem solving that increases my wisdom, wisdom that I can use on the next investment. At minimum, even if I lose some money, I will be smarter than someone who did nothing. It is with this philosophy that I invest in spite of my fear. Excuse number four, all of the above. All of us are human. All of us need more education. All of us can be lazy. All of us are afraid of failing. The difference between all of us begins with all of the traits that make us human. The difference between all of us begins with how we address our excuses. The following are some of the ways I personally address the four excuses. Addressing excuse number one, no real estate education. 
My financial education began with the game of Monopoly. Rich Dad would play that game with his son and me over and over again. When I asked him why we played the game so often, he said, because the formula for great wealth is found in this game. Most of us know the formula, which is this. Four green houses turns into one red hotel. At the age of nine, I realized that I could be rich if I followed this simple formula and turned a game into real life. To show us the game being played in real life, Rich Dad took his son and me to see his green houses. Ten years later, when I was 19, Rich Dad bought his red hotel on Waikiki Beach. When I returned to Hawaii from the Vietnam War, I asked my Rich Dad how I could get started in real estate. His reply was, first, get educated. I've taken you as far as I can go. You need to take the next step. A month later, I was watching television and saw an infomercial for a real estate course. I purchased the course for $385, which was a fortune at the time, since I made only about $600 a month as a Marine Corps pilot. It was after the course ended that my real education began. Everything the instructor taught us came true. He said, the first problems you will run into are real estate agents. Most real estate agents are salespeople, not investors. They would not know a good investment from a bad one. This is true today. For months, all I heard from real estate agents is, you can't do that. Those deals do not exist. The next thing the instructor said was, find a mentor, someone who did invest in real estate. Since my rich dad was already my mentor, I went immediately to him. Rich dad's first words were, how can I teach you something until you do something? For the next few months, I drove around in my spare time, looking at properties, talking to real estate agents, finally doing something as my rich dad had suggested. After I put an offer in on a property, I ran back to rich dad and proudly showed him the offer. As you can already guess, he ripped it to pieces. Although it was painful to find out how little I knew, that experience was priceless because I was finally doing something. The deal I brought him was a low down payment deal. The problem was I lost money every month. It was a negative cash flow investment. Rich Dad's lesson was, how many investments can you afford if you lose money every month? Obviously, my reply was, not many. His next question was, why do you want to pay money to lose money? Because the real estate agent said the price would go up and I would make my money back, I replied. Will the real estate agent guarantee that? Rich Dad asked. I don't know, I replied. He just said I would make a lot of money when I sold it. Will he guarantee that? Asked Rich Dad again. I don't know, I replied again. He then said, rather than lose money, how many investments can you afford if you make money every month? Thinking for a while, I replied hesitantly, As many as I can find? Rich Dad smiled and said, Go out and find investments you can make money on. Never bring me an investment that you pay to lose money on. Never bet on a property going up in value. It was back to the streets. As Rich Dad said, How can I teach you something until you do something? I was beginning to learn something. My next lesson was learning to handle discouragement. As time dragged on, I became more and more discouraged. Everything was too expensive or would have cost too much money in repairs. 
Dragging my tail between my legs, I went back to Rich Dad for some sympathy, and as you can guess, he gave me none. When I complained about not having enough money, Rich Dad just laughed. His lesson was, when you find an investment that makes money, you will find the money. A month later, I found a one-bedroom, one-bath condominium on the island of Maui, one block from a gorgeous white sand beach. I was excited that I finally found a great investment. I bought three of them with credit cards and seller financing. Each month, I made a net $25 per unit. I was making money, not losing money. Rich Dad was correct. When you find a great investment, you will find the money. For your information, even if $25 does not sound like much, it is one of four sources of income. In real estate, the four sources of income are 1. Cash flow. In this example, I was making $25 a month. 2. Amortization. Each month, a little bit of my loan was being paid off. If I held the property to the end of the mortgage, technically my tenants would have paid off my mortgage. 3. Depreciation. Accounting and tax rules allow me to depreciate my property, which means I am making money, but it looks like I am losing money. I am making money because I am legally allowed to pay less in taxes. So, this is money coming in because less money is paid out in taxes. It is also known as phantom cash flow. 4. Appreciation. This is the price of the unit going up in value. Appreciation is also known as capital gains. Most people invest for appreciation. During the last real estate boom, flippers were buying and then selling for a profit. This is investing for appreciation, capital gains. These four sources of income are also known IRR, an internal rate of return. Being able to see these four different incomes gives me a lot more confidence. As I said earlier, I don't invest for appreciation. I invest for cash flow. In fact, one of the reasons why I do not like to flip property is that I like all four of these income opportunities, and it takes such a long time to find a great property. Another reason why I do not like to flip a property is that I can gain access to my appreciation without selling the property. For example, let's say I buy a property for $200,000 and a few years later it goes to $300,000. Rather than sell the property, I would rather borrow out the equity and continue to let the tenant pay for my second mortgage. Obviously, I borrow only if my rent can cover the increase in monthly payments. I learned the hard way about selling or flipping a property. Here's the story. More than fixing a toilet. I wish I could say my education was complete after I bought the three units. Little did I know that the next phase of education was about to begin, an education in property management. After owning the three condos for a few months, the septic system on the entire development burst, and the sewage runoff ran into one of my condos. Next on my real estate education curriculum was how to deal with developers, homeowners associations, lawyers, and a smelly rental unit. My first plumbing problem was much bigger than fixing a toilet. Selling out of the problem. The good news is, even though I was losing money because the tenants moved out, the Maui real estate market was taking off. A real estate agent, the very type of person I was warned to be wary of in my real estate course, offered me $48,000 per unit. 
Since my base cost was only $18,000 a unit, my gross capital gains would be about $30,000 a unit. The money and the septic system went to my head. I sold. Immediately after I sold and put the money in my pocket, the real estate agent sold the units for $65,000 a unit a few weeks later. The lessons were piling up. I made money, but I was really losing money. The septic system caused me to think emotionally rather than rationally. In real estate investor terms, the septic system made me a perfect candidate for another investor. I became known as a don't-wanter. A don't-wanter is someone who does not want their property. They want out. They are emotional and irrational. Soon after the subprime mortgage mess hit in 2007, the market was filled with don't-wanters. Great investors love don't-wanters. If you want to become rich, look for don't-wanters, and then look at the real estate they don't want. The Bigger Problem and the Better Lesson Another lesson I gained from that first experience is this. If just starting out, make sure the real estate is less than an hour's drive away. Since these properties were on another island, when there was a problem, I had to take time off from work, drive to the airport, park my car, take a flight, rent a car, drive an hour to the property, work on the problem, and then hurry back home, missing a day's work. That was expensive. Today I can handle properties far away, but when I was just starting out, I should have found a property as close to home as possible, less than an hour's drive away. After you have purchased at least 10 properties because each property will have a new lesson, then you can start expanding your operational radius. More properties, more problems, more money. Next on my educational curriculum were capital gains taxes. Selling the three units put a lot of money in my pocket, and I spent it. The next year, I found out what capital gains taxes were. I had made money, and now I had tax problems. I found out that the government tax collectors do not like excuses. Every property comes with different problems and different lessons. Each lesson caused me to seek further education and gain more real-life experience. This is how I got smarter, wiser, and richer. I got richer by failing. I found out that people who do not fail also do not succeed. Today, my wife Kim and I own approximately 1,500 apartment units and earn more money in a month than most people earn in years. While the education and experience have not stopped, the financial rewards have gone up. Even during the subprime mortgage crisis, our properties have continued to do well. No matter how tough times get, most people want a roof over their heads. As far as mentors go, the real estate professionals in this book are our mentors. Whenever Kim and I have a question, these are the people we call. Simply said, our education never ends because the problems and challenges we face never end. So how does one overcome the fear of failing? My answer is, grow up. Since failing is part of learning, start with baby steps. Babies crawl before they walk and walk before they run. Babies fall many times during the learning process. That is why it is good that babies are short when they start out. They do not have far to fall. Our educational system makes two big mistakes when teaching people. The first mistake is that it punishes students for making mistakes. If you make no mistakes, you are an A student. If you make too many mistakes, you are labeled a failure. 
This is why so many people who did well in school do not do well in real life. The second mistake is that in school, you have to take tests on your own. If you cooperate with your classmates during test time, it is called cheating. One of the reasons I make more money than many A students is because I make more mistakes and I cheat, meaning that I cooperate. This book is written by the people I cooperate with at test time. How to find great advisors and mentors. A question I am often asked is, how do I find great advisors and mentors? My reply is this. In fairy tales and in real life, you kiss many frogs before you find a prince or princess. So, start kissing. One valuable lesson I have learned is, in every bad deal, I meet good people. For example, I was working on a deal with a person who talked like and looked like he knew what he was doing. Joe, not his real name, had the credentials and the diplomas. Then the deal we were working on went bad, and his true personality, his dark side, came out. The good thing was that I met Ken McElroy through the process. I do not know where Joe is today, but Ken and I have become great friends and have gone on to make millions of dollars together. Today I am not afraid of deals going bad because I know that through bad deals I meet good people. In other words, when deals go bad, the true character, the good or the bad in a person, comes out from behind the curtain. How do you overcome the fear of failing? Here are 10 things you can do right now. 1. Take classes or read books before starting. If you have no money, go to the library. Remember, your mind is your greatest asset. Invest in that first. 2. Avoid taking advice from losers. Stay away from people who say that something cannot be done. Be aware of real estate salespeople who give investment advice, but who do not invest in real estate. 3. Find mentors, people who have already gone to where you want to go. 4. Look at a minimum of 100 investments before buying anything. Take a new route home from work and look at different neighborhoods. Jog or ride a bike in the new neighborhoods. Observe if neighborhoods are changing, going up or going down. Talk to people who live in the area to find out what is going on. Once you find an area you are interested in, become a five-block expert. Become the smartest person in one square mile. When you begin to see investments that make money, the money will find you. 5. Start small. Know that you will make mistakes. My rich dad often said, when someone does something to make a killing, they get killed. Invest in property less than an hour from where you live. 6. Stay humble. When people make money, they often get cocky. When people get cocky, they make foolish mistakes. It is through humility and humor, being able to laugh at our successes as well as our failures, that we learn best. In other words, don't take yourself too seriously. The septic system blowing up and flowing into my first condo still causes me to laugh. Today I am cautious about investing in anything that is downhill from something else. Today I do know exactly what rolls downhill. 7. Dream Big The only difference between my first investment and my investments today are zeros. 
My dream was not real estate. My dream was financial freedom, and each property, good or bad, was a stepping stone to that dream. 8. Remember, the world is filled with hard-working, poor people. Many people today are slaves to money. Today, many people will have to work for money all their lives. So every day, remind yourself not to be one of them. Work hard at having your money work hard for you, so you do not have to work hard for money. 9. There are no perfect investments. Each investment comes with problems. Each investment will challenge you. Each investment will teach you something new. If you do nothing, you learn nothing. If you learn nothing, you remain poor. So remember, the only way you can fail is to fail to do something. 10. And no, I do not fix toilets. If I knew how to fix toilets, I would, so I never learned how to fix them. Instead, I learned how to hire and fire professionals such as real real estate agents, accountants who know the tax advantages of investing in real estate, mortgage bankers who personally invest in real estate, lawyers who understand real estate law, property managers who love taking care of property, contractors whose passion is building or fixing real estate, and other specialists whose business is to be the best at the business of real estate. So I do not know how to fix toilets or how to do accounting or real estate law, but I know who does. As the years go on, you will get smarter, and so will your team of professional advisors. Ultimately, real estate is not your asset. Real estate alone does not make anyone rich. Investing in real estate offers you the opportunity to get smarter. It is your education, good and bad experiences, lessons learned, wisdom that comes with time, and your team, a team like my team, that contributed to this book that will ultimately become your greatest assets. Tip. If you do not have enough money for an investment, remind yourself that if you do not solve that problem, you will have money problems all your life. My rich dad said, if you can solve the problem of not having money, you will have more money for life. Henry Ford said, thinking is the hardest work there is. That's why so few people engage in it. Real Life Story Why Waste a Priceless Mistake during this last real estate bubble, a friend bought one property, flipped it, and made some money. That first easy success went to his head. He now thought he was Donald Trump's long-lost brother. As the property bubble continued to inflate, he went on a buying spree, buying properties in Las Vegas, Miami, San Francisco, Mexico, London, and Phoenix. Today he is bankrupt and blames real estate for his problems. His problem was he knew only one type of market, a market bubble. He now knows what a real estate bust looks like. Since he blames real estate rather than himself, he has not learned much. He has wasted priceless mistakes. He fails to learn that it is after the bubble bursts that the real real estate investors come out and the real killings are made. The killings are made from foolish investors who got killed. Tip. The reason there are more poor people than rich people is that it is easier to say, I can't afford it, rather than ask the question, how can I afford it? The moment you ask yourself the question, how can I afford it, your most important asset, your mind, goes to work. If you use the excuse, 
I can't afford it. Your mind goes back to sleep, and you get back to working hard as a slave to money. So please, do not allow the fear of failing to come between you and your financial freedom. Failing is essential to success. Tip. If you do nothing, you learn nothing. If you learn nothing, you remain poor. So remember, the only way you can fail is to fail to do something. We hope you have enjoyed our presentation of The Real Book of Real Estate, Real Experts, Real Stories, Real Life by Robert Kiyosaki. Copyright 2009 by Robert Kiyosaki. Read by Bruce Risen, Jim Bond, and Sandra Burr. Directed by Jim Bond. Engineered by Melissa Coates. Performance copyright 2009, Brilliance Audio. All rights reserved. For further information concerning this program or other Brilliance Audio titles, please call the following toll-free number. 1-800-222-3225 or visit our website at www.brilliantsaudio.com. No part of this recording may be played for an audience or reproduced in any form. It may not be streamed, downloaded, broadcast, or copied without written permission. Address all inquiries to Brilliance Audio, Post Office Box 887, Grand Haven, Michigan, 49417. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. This is...